This is Audible. Tantor Audio, a division of Recorded Books, presents How Europe Underdeveloped Africa by Walter Rodney. Narrated by Myron Willis. Forward. Angela Y. Davis. When Walter Rodney was assassinated in 1980 at the young age of 38, he had already accomplished what few scholars achieve during careers that extend considerably longer than his. The field of African history would never be the same after the publication of How Europe Underdeveloped Africa. At the same time, this meticulously researched analysis of the abiding repercussions of European colonialism on the continent of Africa has radicalized approaches to anti-racist activism throughout the world. In fact, the term scholar-activist acquires its most vigorous meaning when it is employed to capture the generative passion that links Walter Rodney's research to his determination to rid the planet of all the outgrowths of colonialism and slavery. Almost forty years after his death, we certainly need such brilliant examples of what it means to be a resolute intellectual who recognizes that the ultimate significance of knowledge is its capacity to transform our social worlds. We have learned from Walter Rodney and those before and after him who have critically engaged with Marxism while developing historical analyses of colonialism and slavery— that challenging capitalism's deeply entrenched suppositions about human nature and progress is one of the most important tasks of theorists and activists who set out to dismantle structures and ideologies of racism. In refuting the argument that Africa's subordination to Europe emanated from a natural propensity toward stagnation, Rodney also repudiates the ideological assumption that external intervention alone would be capable of provoking progress on the continent. Although colonization officially lasted only seventy years or so, which, as Rodney points out, was a relatively short period, it was during this period that colossal changes took place both in the capitalist world, that is, in Europe and the United States, as well as in the emergent socialist world, especially in Russia and China. To mark time, he insists, or even to move slowly while others leap ahead, is virtually equivalent to going backward. In How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, Walter Rodney painstakingly argues that imperialism and the various processes that bolstered colonialism created impenetrable structural blockades to economic and thus also political and social progress on the continent. At the same time, his argument is not meant to absolve Africans of the ultimate responsibility for development. I feel extremely privileged to have been able to meet Walter Rodney during my first trip to the African continent in 1973. I mentioned this visit to Dar es Salaam because it took place shortly after the original publication of How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, and because I witnessed firsthand for a brief period of time the revolutionary urgency generated within the scholarly and activist circles surrounding him. Not only did I have the opportunity to witness lectures and discussions he organized at the University of Dar es Salaam on the relation between African liberation and global contestations to capitalism, but I also visited the training camps of the MPLA, where I met Augustino Neto and the military cadre fighting the Portuguese army. Walter Rodney's analyses reflected both a sober, well-reasoned historical investigation shaped by Marxist categories and critiques, 
and a deep sense of the historical conjuncture defined by global revolutionary upheavals, especially by African liberation struggles at that time. Because he was such a methodical scholar, he did not ignore gender issues, even though he wrote without the benefit of the feminist vocabularies and frameworks of analysis that were later developed. Others have pointed out that he would have no doubt given greater emphasis to these questions had he been active at a later time. Nonetheless, at several strategic junctures in the text, Rodney addresses the role of gender, and he is careful to point out that under colonialism, African women's social, religious, constitutional, and political privileges and rights disappeared, while the economic exploitation continued and was often intensified. He emphasizes that the impact of colonialism on labor in Africa redefined men's work as modern, while constituting women's work as traditional or backward. Therefore, the deterioration in the status of women's work was bound up with the consequent loss of the right to set indigenous standards of what work had merit and what did not. At the time that How Europe Underdeveloped Africa was published, black activism, at least in the United States, was influenced not only by cultural nationalist notions of intrinsic female inferiority, often fallaciously attributed to African cultural practices, but also by officially sponsored attributions of a matriarchal, in other words, defective family structure to U.S. black communities, such as the 1965 Moynihan Report. This book was an important tool for those of us who were intent on contesting such essentialist notions of gender within black radical movements of that era. If Walter Rodney's scholarly and activist contributions exemplified what was most demanded at that particular historical moment, he was assassinated because he believed in the real possibility of radical political change, including in Guyana, his natal land. His ideas are even more valuable today at a time when capitalism has so forcibly asserted its permanency, and when once existing organized opposing forces, not only the socialist community of nations, but also the non-aligned nations, have been virtually eliminated. Those of us who refuse to concede that global capitalism represents the planet's best future, and that Africa and the former Third World are destined to remain forever ensconced in the poverty of underdevelopment, are confronted with this crucial question. How can we encourage radical critiques of capitalism as integral to struggles against racism as we also advance the recognition that we cannot envision the dismantling of capitalism as long as the structures of racism remain intact? In this sense, it is up to us to follow, expand upon, and deepen Walter Rodney's legacy. Preface This book derives from a concern with the contemporary African situation. It delves into the past, only because otherwise it would be impossible to understand how the present came into being and what the trends are for the near future. In the search for an understanding of what is now called underdevelopment in Africa, the limits of inquiry have had to be fixed as far apart as the 15th century on the one hand and the end of the colonial period on the other. Ideally, the analysis of underdevelopment should come even closer to the present than the end of the colonial period in the 1960s. The phenomenon of neocolonialism cries out for extensive investigation in order to formulate the strategy and tactics of African emancipation and development. 
This study does not go that far, but at least certain solutions are implicit in a correct historical evaluation, just as given medical remedies are indicated or contraindicated by a correct diagnosis of a patient's condition and an accurate case history. Hopefully, the facts and interpretation that follow will make a small contribution towards reinforcing the conclusion that African development is possible only on the basis of a radical break with the international capitalist system, which has been the principal agency of underdevelopment of Africa over the last five centuries. As the one will observe, the question of development strategy is tackled briefly in the final section by A. M. Babu, former Minister of Economic Affairs and Development Planning who has been actively involved in fashioning policy along those lines in the Tanzanian context. It is no accident that the text as a whole has been written within Tanzania, where expressions of concern for development have been accompanied by considerably more positive action than in several parts of the continent. Many colleagues and comrades shared in the preparation of this work. Special thanks must go to comrades Karim Herji and Henry Mapolu of the University of Dar es Salaam, who went over the manuscript in a spirit of constructive criticism. But contrary to the fashion in most prefaces, I will not add that all mistakes and shortcomings are entirely my responsibility. That is sheer bourgeois subjectivism. Responsibility in matters of these sorts is always collective, especially with regards to the remedying of shortcomings. The purpose has been to try and reach Africans who wish to explore further the nature of their exploitation, rather than to satisfy the standards set by our oppressors and their spokesmen in the academic world. Walter Rodney Dar es Salaam Introduction At the outset, before anything else is written, we need openly to acknowledge how difficult it has been for us to come to terms with the undeniable fact that Walter Rodney, our brother, friend, and comrade, is dead. On June 13, 1980, the author of this unparalleled work of historical analysis became the best-known victim of a systematic campaign of assassination and other forms of ruthless repression carried out by the governing authorities of his native land, Guyana. The end was predictable, for Walter had determined that the only path to true human development and liberation for the majority of the people of his country was through the transformation of their own lives in a struggle to replace and reshape the neo-colonialist government that dominated their society and prescribed their existence. However, Forbes Burnham, the president of Guyana, had made it clear on many occasions that in this struggle for the minds and hearts of the people, he knew no limits in the determination to exterminate the forces of opposition. In the opinion of many, there was no doubt that the bomb that tore away the life of Walter Rodney was the result of Burnham's deadly pledge. Hard as his death is to accept and absorb, we must begin here, not primarily for purposes of sentiment or political invective, but because no new introduction to how Europe underdeveloped Africa is possible without a serious and direct encounter with Walter Rodney, the revolutionary scholar, the scholar-revolutionary, the man of great integrity and hope. For, more so than most books of its genre, this work is clearly imbued with the spirit, the intellect, and the commitment of its author, 
both the man who produced the audacious and wide-ranging study before he was thirty, and the man who moved with unswerving integrity to live out its implications in his relatively brief years. With Rodney, the life and the work were one, and the life drives us back to recall the essential themes of the work. In spite of its title, this is not simply a work about European oppressors and African victims, serving primarily as a weapon to flay the exploiters and beat them out their own intellectual games. Of course, it has done yeoman service in that limited role. Rather, there is much more to this masterly survey, and at its deepest levels it offers no easy comfort to any of us. At one point early in the book, Rodney summarizes its basic message. The question as to who and what is responsible for African underdevelopment can be answered at two levels. Firstly, the answer is that the operation of the imperialist system bears major responsibility for African economic retardation by draining African wealth and by making it impossible to develop more rapidly the resources of the continent. Secondly, one has to deal with those who manipulated the system and those who are either agents or unwitting accomplices of the said system. The capitalists of Western Europe were the ones who actively extended their exploitation from inside Europe to cover the whole of Africa. In recent times, they were joined, and to some extent replaced, by the capitalists from the United States. And for many years now, even the workers of those metropolitan countries have benefited from the exploitation and underdevelopment of Africa. All this Walter supported with a profuse and creative set of precise examples from many sources, periods, and places. Yet he was not satisfied to pour well-documented blows upon the oppressors, though he was a master at this activity. Nor did it suffice to remind many of us who live in the United States that our blackness provides no exemption from our willing participation in the benefits of our country's exploitation of Africa. Rather, his summary of the book's central themes concluded with words that moved beyond accusation or guilt. He said, None of these remarks are intended to remove the ultimate responsibility for development from the shoulders of Africans. Not only are there African accomplices inside the imperialist system, but every African has a responsibility to understand the system and work for its overthrow. Unlike many of us who read and write such words, Walter took them seriously. He knew that they were meant for him, for the children of Africa and the Caribbean, and the United States of America. For Indians, Asians, and many other sufferers at the hands of European fueled underdevelopment. Indeed, he knew they were meant, too, for all those Europeans and Americans who claimed solidarity with the Third World's struggle for development and liberation. Rodney envisioned and worked on the assumption that the new development of Africans and other dependent peoples of the periphery would require what he called a radical break with the international capitalist system, a courageous challenge to the failing center of the current world order. Of course, he also knew that any such break or serious contestation would participate in and precipitate profound revolutionary changes at the center itself. Thus, from his perspective, what was ultimately at stake, what was absolutely necessary, was a fundamental transformation in the ordering of the political, cultural, and economic forces that have dominated the world for almost half a millennium. This was an awesome vision, 
especially when Walter dared to say and believe that such a stupendous transformation must be initiated by Africans and other dwellers in the nether regions of exploitation and subordination. Nevertheless, he did not flinch from the implications of his own analysis. Instead, he continued, especially by his example, to encourage all of us to move toward a radically transformed vision of ourselves and of our capacities for changing our lives and our objective conditions. Quietly, insistently, he urged us to claim our full responsibility for engaging in the struggle for a new world order. No one could ignore Walter's work, nor question his call, for he set the example by assuming his own part of the awesome responsibility. That is why he was in Guyana in June 1980. That is why he had been there since 1974, developing the leadership of what was called the Working People's Alliance, WPA, struggling to support his family, somehow finding time to carry on research and writing on the history of the working people of his country and other parts of the Caribbean. That is why he was murdered. In the midst of our sorrow and indignation, none of us who knew Walter could honestly say that we were surprised by the news of his death. For his life carried a certain consistency and integrity that could not be ignored or denied. Indeed, in his relatively brief time, certain patterns were established early. Born on March 23, 1942, Rodney grew up in Georgetown, the capital of what was then British Guiana. From the outset, he was part of a family that took transformational politics with great seriousness. His parents, especially his father, were deeply involved in the development of the People's Progressive Party, PPP. A multiracial party, it was at the time the only mass political organization in the Caribbean that was opening the common people to the world of Marxist-slash-socialist thought, as well as raising the possibilities of alternative futures that might go beyond the mere establishment of independence within the British Commonwealth. So, even before he entered his teens, Walter was already engaged in leafeting, attending party meetings, and absorbing the thousands of hours of political discussions that went on in his home. Then when he entered Queen's College, the highly regarded secondary school in Georgetown, the young political activist also became one of the scholarship boys, so familiar to West Indian life at the time. Bright, energetic, and articulate, he excelled in academics and sports. He broke his school record for the high jump, and when he won the coveted Guyana Scholarship to the University College of the West Indies at Mona, Jamaica, the traditional path to academic prestige and distinction was open to him. In 1963, Rodney graduated with first-class honors in history from UCWI and was awarded a scholarship to the University of London, where he entered the School of Oriental and African Studies to work on his doctorate in African history. Walter's political instincts and early nurturing would not allow him to settle into the safety of conventional academic life. Instead, the years in London were among the most important of his continuing political and intellectual development he immediately became part of a study group of younger West Indians who met regularly under the guidance of the man who was then the exemplar of the revolutionary intellectual C.L.R. James, the Trinidadian Marxist scholar, best known for his history of the Haitian Revolution, Black Jacobins. The experience with James and the study group was a crucial supplement to Rodney's earlier exposure to the day-to-day -day life of radical Caribbean politics, and it was also an important source of grounding and in intellectual reality as he moved through the sometimes surreal world of the academic community. By the time he left London for Tanzania, 
1966. Rodney was prepared to write history from what he later described as a revolutionary, socialist, and people-centered perspective. During the 1966-67 academic year, Walter taught history at the University College in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. In 1968, he returned to Jamaica to take a post in history at his alma mater and to develop what he planned to be a major program in African and Caribbean studies. More importantly, he wanted to test his convictions about the need for revolutionary intellectuals to remain grounded in the ongoing life of the people. Walter met with initial success in both of these endeavors, but it was precisely this success, especially in his work among the common people of the Jamaican streets, hills, and gullies, that led to a drastic foreshortening of his stay in that country. In less than a year, Rodney had come in touch with and helped articulate the profound discontent and unrest that filled the lives of the ordinary people of Jamaica, as well as many of the university students. As they began seriously to talk and listen together, to ground with one another, about the ways to organize for change, as they heard and pondered the implications of the powerful calls for black power rising in this country, it was obvious that a deep and unpredictable ferment was at work and the conservative Jamaican government readily identified Walter as an undesirable foreign element. Thus, in October 1968, while attending a Black Writers' Conference in Montreal, Walter Rodney was officially expelled from Jamaica. The government action led to several days of protest in Kingston, but Rodney was kept out. It was this political activity, combined with his powerful participation in the Montreal Conference, that first brought the 26-year-old Caribbean historian to the attention of many of us in the United States. Then, following the Jamaican government's action, Walter's fellow members of the C.L.R. James study group and other Caribbean activists, based in London, pressed Walter for the opportunity to publish some of the lectures that he had delivered in Jamaica. With that purpose in mind, they formed the Bogo Louverture Publishing House, and in 1969 brought out Walter's first widely read book, Groundings with My Brothers. Walter returned to Dar es Salaam, teaching again at the university, while Groundings was making a profound impression on many people in this country, especially among those of us who were involved in the struggle for hegemony over the definitions of the black and white experience in the United States, a struggle temporarily crystallized in the black studies movement. Not surprisingly, it was at one of the many conferences spawned by that movement that Walter Rodney was first introduced to a major audience of Afro-Americans. In May 1970, he participated in the second annual gathering of the African Heritage Studies Association at Howard University. While one of the contributors to this introduction had already met and worked with Walter at the University of the West Indies, the Howard Conference provided the first opportunity for the other two of us. Like many persons at the conference, my first impression of this slightly-built, soft-spoken, dark-skinned brother from Guyana was his capacity to speak without notes, and largely without rhetorical flourish, for more than an hour, and yet have his highly informative material so carefully and cogently organized that it would have been possible to take it directly from a transcript and publish it. Eventually we discovered that this tremendous intellectual discipline and political instinct was matched by a disciplined force of spirit a mastery of, but not slavery to, dialectical materialism, and an unflinching commitment to collective work on behalf of the wretched of the earth. All this was insulated from self-righteousness by a dry and ready sense of humor. In other words, it was clear to us 
that Walter Rodney was a moral, political, and intellectual force to be reckoned with, one of Africa's most beautiful children. From the point of our first encounter, we knew that we had met a brother, teacher, and comrade. At the time of the Howard Conference, Robert Hill, Bill Strickland, and I were working with others in the development of the Institute of the Black World, IBW, an Atlanta-based center for research, publication, and advocacy. Immediately, we began to explore with Walter some of the ways in which he might share with us in this experiment and in collective intellectual work. As a result, in a series of visits, he spent quiet, unhurried time among us. In our homes, we also shared the company of his wife, Pat, and their lively children, Shaka, Kanini, and Asha. As our ties were being developed and cemented, the first edition of How Europe Underdeveloped Africa was jointly published by Vogel Louverture and the Tanzanian Publishing House in 1972. For all of us who could obtain copies of the work, it was like a mighty uplifting gust of fresh air. Without romanticizing pre-colonial Africa, Walter had placed it in the context of human development across the globe traced its real historical relationships to the colonizing forces of Europe, and suggested the path for Africa's movement toward a new life for its people and a new role in the reshaping of the world. The book immediately struck an exciting and responsive chord among many in this country. Among politically oriented black people, it played something of the same formative role as Franz Fanon's Wretched of the Earth, almost a decade before. Indeed, both men were dealing with the ravages of colonialism and neocolonialism. Both were calling for a break with the exploiting, ravaging system in order to move forward and create a new order. Both were living examples of the transformation they demanded. Like Fanon's seminal work, Rodney's also began from an African-slash-Caribbean perspective, but we in the United States of America immediately recognized the global connection. Although Walter ended his primary historical analysis with the close of the 1950s, he nevertheless offered a brief, cogent, and powerful treatment of the contemporary role of the United States in the exploitation of Africa, implicitly warning us against our own active or passive participation in that damaging work. But there were also connections, perhaps even more directly related to the Afro-American struggles in the early 1970s, especially in his treatment of colonial and neocolonial education, and its effects on the African mind and spirit. For instance, Walter wrote, In the final analysis, perhaps the most important principle of colonial education was that of capitalist individualism. In Africa, both the formal school system and the informal value system of colonialism destroyed social solidarity and promoted the worst form of alienated individualism without social responsibility. We Afro-Americans immediately recognized that condition. Indeed, one of the central themes of the movement for black studies and black power had been the call for social solidarity among black people and resistance to the destructive individualism of the mainstream American way of life. For we were painfully aware of the rising alienation among our young people as they moved ever more fully into the cultural flow of mass American society with its powerful networks of formal and informal miseducation. Thus, it was natural that those of us at the Institute of the Black World, IBW, invited Walter Rodney to participate with us in two projects directly related to those concerns. The first was as a contributor to a book-length monograph, Education and Black Struggle, that we organized and edited for Harvard Educational Review in 1974. 
His paper was on Education in Africa and Contemporary Tanzania. The second project was of a different nature. Early in 1974, Walter had received an appointment as professor and chairman of history at the University of Guyana. The appointment was considered a clear victory for Walter and his supporters, a vindication of his vision. We invited him to spend part of the summer in Atlanta with us before his return to Guyana. He spent more than a month at IBW, primarily in the development and leadership of a summer research symposium. Colleagues from other parts of the nation and from the Caribbean joined us in the venture as we experimented with models for an educational program that would provide broader scope and new alternatives for young black people in colleges and universities across the country. At the same time, in an act of vision and courage, the Howard University Press was publishing the first American edition of How Europe Underdeveloped Africa. The extended time that Walter spent at IBW that summer was critical to us all. It helps to crystallize much of our thinking about the role of black intellectuals in our own society and the role that IBW might play in that development. Concurrently, it provided Walter with an opportunity to explore more deeply the implications of the unique black American experience. Moreover, it brought us all into community with an exciting group of students and co-workers, and we looked forward to the many ways in which we could continue to work together with Walter in his new post at the University of Guyana. However, even before Walter left Atlanta, we had begun to receive signals that all was not well with the university appointment. By the time he arrived home, the official word was given. At the last moment, in an unprecedented move, the appointment had been cancelled, apparently the result of pressure from the highest levels of government. From that point on, Walter Rodney, revolutionary scholar, began once more to dig deeply into the soil of his native land. In spite of invitations and appeals from many places, he steadfastly refused to leave Guyana on any permanent basis. He had set himself two major tasks, both consistent with his definition of his role as a black intellectual who was committed to the liberation and development of his people. Both required his presence in Guyana. The first was to develop a major multi-volume work on the history of the working people of his country. The second task, and this was all-encompassing, was to immerse himself in the contemporary life of those same people and search with them to find a way to resist the power of a government that had clearly betrayed their hopes and their trust, a government that now stood in the way of their development. In other words, Walter was still trying to deal with the neo-colonial implications of how Europe underdeveloped Africa, dauntlessly carrying out the search for solutions to the center of his own life and the life of his nation. All the while, especially since Pat, his wife, had also been denied an opportunity to work at her profession of social welfare, Walter had to find ways to feed, clothe, and house his family. Even though it was hard for some of us to imagine how he did it, in spite of a situation of constantly heightening tension and danger, Walter managed to find time and energy to spend long hours in the Guiana National Archives and in the Caribbean Research Library at the University in Georgetown. In addition to a number of monographs, the ultimate fruit of that disciplined and sacrificial work will appear when the Johns Hopkins University Press publishes Walter's History of the Guyanese Working People, 1888-1905. He also published, during this period of intensified struggle and important text, Guyanese sugar plantations in the late 19th century. Meanwhile, he continued to organize. Before 1974 was over, Walter had helped to centralize the Working People's Alliance. 
This became his political base, and the relentless struggle to build a force that would bring about the revolutionary transformation of the Guianese society. With the help of many persons in the United States and other parts of the world, Walter found opportunities to lecture and teach in an attempt to keep in touch with his comrades outside of Guiana and to earn the funds his family needed. Whenever Walter traveled abroad, especially as the government's repression increased, many friends urged him to leave Guiana and bring himself and his family to some place of relative safety. Walter's response to us generally had two parts. First was his sense of the responsibility he had to his comrades and the people of Guiana. He said that he was working among them to encourage them in a fearless struggle for the transformation of themselves and their society, and that he could not leave simply because he happened to have ready access to the means of escape. Second, Rodney said he felt he had been singularly privileged in the broad set of contacts he had been able to establish in the course of his work and travels throughout the Third World. For him, this privilege carried with it a responsibility to continue to share with his people the content and spirit of that international network of women and men involved in liberation struggles, thus without any trace of a desire for martyrdom, but with a clear recognition of the situation he faced. Walter's response was always the same. It is imperative that I stay here. Toward the end, all these dangers, hopes, and tensions were concentrated in the events of one last year-long outpouring of life and death. In June 1979, the WPA formally announced that it had transformed itself into a political party, one that would work untiringly for the overthrow of the stronghold that Burnham's People's National Congress had established in the country. In the following month, a government building in Georgetown was set afire, and Walter and four other WPA members were among the eight persons arrested and charged with arson. Because it was a government building, the charge was very serious, but it was also clear to many observers that the action was entirely set up as part of the measures for breaking the force of Rodney's small but influential organization. On the day of the arraignment, Father Bernard Donke, a priest who was a reporter for the Catholic Standard, was fatally stabbed in the back as he stood observing a pro-WPA demonstration outside the court building. From that point on, a repressive situation deteriorated into what might be called a long night of official terrorism, including bombings, police beatings, and escalating threats of extermination by Burnham against Walter and other leaders of the opposition WPA. By the end of February 1980, two of Walter's close associates in the WPA, Ohine Kuwama, and Edward Dublin had been killed by the police, others shot and beaten, still others jailed, their houses raided, ransacked, and bombed. By then, some of the leading members of the WPA were actually being held as political prisoners in Guyana, for their government refused them permission to leave the country. However, Rodney managed to get out in May 1980, accepting an invitation from the Patriotic Front to attend the independence ceremonies in Zimbabwe. Then Walter returned to Guiana, continuing to work in the archives, to organize among the people. He had ominously told some of us in this country that we might not see him again. On June 2nd, the trial for arson began, witnessed by concerned observers from the Caribbean, the United States, and England. Within a few days it was clear that the government had no case and could not prosecute Rodney and his co-workers. As a result, on June 6th, at the request of the government, the trial was adjourned until August 20th. One week after the adjournment on Friday evening, June 13th, Walter was sitting in his brother's car waiting for Donald Rodney at the driver's seat. 
they had stopped at the house of a man who we now know had infiltrated the ranks of the WPA. Donald Rodney went in to pick up what the man said was a walkie-talkie that Walter wanted. As they stood in the infiltrator's yard around 7.30 p.m., he told Rodney to drive off and wait for a test signal at 8 o'clock. Donald returned to the car and drove away. When the signal came, it turned out to be the explosion that ended Walter Rodney's life. A few weeks before his death, Rodney had been persistently interviewed about the dangers that he faced and his plans for defending himself against them. He said, As to my own safety, and the safety of a number of other persons within the WPA, we will try to guarantee our safety by the level of political mobilization and political action inside and outside of the country. Ultimately, it is this, rather than any kind of physical defense, which will guarantee our safety. None of us are unmindful of the threat that is constantly posed. We don't regard ourselves as adventurers, as martyrs, or potential martyrs, but we think there is a job which needs to be done, and at a certain point in time, we have to do what has to be done. Again, Walter's courageous sense of commitment and integrity evokes sharp memories of Fanon. He too sacrificed his life for the liberation of his people and died before he was forty. He too called the children of Africa and all those damned by Europe to seize the initiative and change our ways. He too asked us to resist all temptations to live out our lives as permanent victims, angry accusers, or fawning imitators of Europe. It was he who said, Come, then, comrades. The European game has finally ended. Look at them today swaying between atomic and spiritual disintegration. We must find something different. We today can do everything, so long as we do not imitate Europe, so long as we are not obsessed by the desire to catch up with Europe. We have taken the liberty at this point of changing Europe to Europe-slash-America, we think Fanon would permit that. The third world faces Europe-slash-America like a colossal mass whose aim should be to try to resolve the problems to which Europe-slash-America has not been able to find the answers. So, comrades, let us not pay tribute to Europe-slash-America by creating states, institutions, and societies which draw their inspiration from her. If we want humanity to advance a step further, if we want to bring it up to a different level than that which Europe-slash-America has shown it, then we must invent, and we must make discoveries. If we wish to live up to our people's expectations, we must seek the response elsewhere than in Europe-slash-America. For Europe-slash-America. For ourselves, and for humanity, comrades. We must turn over a new leaf. We must work out new concepts, and we must try to set afoot a new man. From Walter's perspective, that was the job that needs to be done, the challenge that he and his comrades had determined to take on, experimenting, inventing, risking, trying to work out new forms of organization, new modus of struggle, new visions and concepts to guide and undergird them, starting on their own home ground. For Walter Rodney, the WPA was one element of the job, and his research and writing was another. He saw no contradiction between them. 
All elements of the task were held firmly together by the righteous integrity of his life. The disciplined power of his visions and his undying love for the people and their possibilities. Thus he went about doing the job that needed to be done. But as it was said of Malcolm X, so it could be said of Walter. He became much more than there was time for him to be. Now we are starkly aware of the fact that the time he no longer has is really ours, that the job he took on is in our hands to continue, to redefine, wherever we are, whoever we are. The call that he tried to answer is here for us all if we want humanity to advance a step further. We must invent, and we must make discoveries. We must turn over a new leaf. We must work out our new concepts. We must try to set afoot a new humanity. Walter's Legacy It is in our courageous, creative attempts to respond to such a magnificent summons that we begin to break the chains of our underdevelopment and shake the foundations of all human exploitation. And is it not clear by now that the process of exploitation leads to an underdeveloped humanity both at the center and at the periphery? Do we not see that the underdevelopment of the center— and the homeland of the exploiters, is simply covered over with material possessions and deadly weaponry, but that the nakedness and human retardation are nevertheless there. So who among us does not need to break the coils of the past, to transcend and recreate our history? Perhaps it is only as we take up the challenge of Walter and Fanon that we will be prepared to give up all the deadly gains of the last half-millennia, seeking out new means of defense, new forms of struggle, new pathways toward revolution, new visions of what truly humane society demands of us. Only as we begin to entertain such thoughts, consider such inventions, will we be prepared to carefully examine again, and then move beyond the marvelous limits of how Europe underdeveloped Africa, pressing on, in the spirit of Rodney and Fanon, to ask a new question. How shall we redevelop the world? Beginning with ourselves, beginning where we are, what must we tear down? What must we build up? What foundations must we lay? Who shall we work with? What visions can we create? What hopes shall possess us? How shall we organize? How shall we be related to those who raise the same questions in South Africa, in El Salvador, in Guyana? How shall we communicate with others the urgency of our time? How shall we envision and work for the revolutionary transformation of our own country? What are the inventions, the discoveries, the new concepts that will help us move toward the revolution we need in this land? Neither rhetoric nor coercion will serve us now. We must decide whether we shall remain crippled and underdeveloped, or move to participate in our own healing by taking on the challenge to redevelop ourselves, our people, our endangered nation, and the earth. No one can force us toward this. By conventional measurements there are no guarantees of success, as the blood of our martyrs and heroes known and less known, like Walter Rodney and Franz Fanon, Ruby Doris and Fanny Lou, Malcolm and Martin, fully testify. But there is a world waiting for us. Indeed, many worlds await us. One is the world of our children not yet born, or just beginning, but wanting to live, to grow, to become their best possible selves. 
This will not happen unless, as Walter suggests, the center is transformed and fundamentally changed. That will not happen unless we are transformed, redeveloped, and renewed. The future of our children depends upon these rigorous transformations. The Afro-American Challenge Then there is another more difficult world that awaits us, the world of the sons and daughters of Europe-slash-America, who have begun to discover their own underdevelopment, who recognize the warping and desensitizing of their spirits. Without rehearsing all the old political arguments about coalitions and alliances, neither forgetting the past nor being bound by it, we must find some way to respond to them and to allow them to come in touch with us. This is no passing luxury in the old nice relations style. Rather, we now realize that the children of the oppressed and the children of the oppressors are involved in a dialectical relationship that is deeper than most of us choose to recognize, and that there is no fundamental redevelopment for one without the other. This is a heavy burden, but it represents a great possibility as well. In this country, with our peculiar history, it is also an undeniable reality. So it is by the way of these difficult issues that we return to Walter and his great work. Now what seems demanded of us as we revisit how Europe underdeveloped Africa is that we consider it this time in the light of Walter Rodney's life and death, this time in the consciousness of the dangerous, explosive American center, this time in the company of our children, this time in the presence of Fanon's insistent call to us all. Then we shall likely see more clearly than ever before that Europe's underdevelopment of Africa and other worlds required Europe's ravaging of itself and everyone and everything that came under its sway. So the wounded are all around us and within us, now opening ourselves to all those who recognize the brutal dialectics of underdevelopment, who acknowledge the cohesive powers of our common needs, our common dangers, and our common possibilities— we can begin to stand in a newly grounded solidarity and reach out toward each other, facing the harsh but beautiful fact that we must either redevelop ourselves and our world, or be pushed together into some terrible, explosive closing of the light. Of course, if we choose to go the way of our essential community, we cannot go far by responding primarily to the urgency of fear, for that would repeat history rather than transform it, and that would be unfaithful to a courageous brother like Walter. Instead, we must be drawn by the fact that there is much to attract us. For instance, one of the hopeful elements on the other side of the patterns of domination-slash-subordination of the past five hundred years has been the drawing of humankind into networks of communication and interrelatedness that hold great possibilities for the establishment of new communities beyond the traditional national barriers. Reshaped and redirected, the mechanisms of exploitation may actually place some vital means of redevelopment within our grasp. Now it is in our hands to overcome our history, to break the shackles of the past, to redevelop ourselves, our people, our nation, and our world, to find humane, creative, and fearless ways of dealing with those who presently oppose such development. These are audacious visions and truly awesome responsibilities. But we must go forward. Indeed, it seems clear to us that even without any guarantees of success, we must move in the flow of humankind's best, most creative imagination in the direction of our most profoundly renewing dreams.
Anything less is inadequate for the perilous times. Anything less would be unworthy of the memory of our brother, the needs of our children, or the magnificent untapped capacities of our own best selves. March 1981 Vincent Harding Robert Hill William Strickland Chapter 1 Some Questions on Development In contrast with the surging growth of the countries in the socialist camp and the development taking place, albeit much more slowly, in the majority of the capitalist countries is the unquestionable fact that a large proportion of the so-called underdeveloped countries are in total stagnation, and that in some of them the rate of economic growth is lower than that of population increase. These characteristics are not fortuitous. They correspond strictly to the nature of the capitalist system in full expansion, which transfers to the dependent countries the most abusive and bare-faced forms of exploitation. It must be clearly understood that the only way to solve the questions now besetting mankind is to eliminate completely the exploitation of dependent countries by developed capitalist countries, with all the consequences that this implies. Che Guevara 1964 What is development? Development in human society is a many-sided process. At the level of the individual, it implies increased skill and capacity, greater freedom, creativity, self-discipline, responsibility, and material well-being. Some of these are virtually moral categories and are difficult to evaluate, depending as they do on the age in which one lives, one's class origins, and one's personal code of what is wrong. However, what is indisputable is that the achievement of any of those aspects of personal development is very much tied in with the state of the society as a whole. From earliest times, man found it convenient and necessary to come together in groups to hunt, and for the sake of survival. The relations which develop within any given social group are crucial to an understanding of the society as a whole. Freedom, responsibility, skill, have real meaning only in terms of the relations of men in society. Of course, each social group comes into contact with others. The relations between individuals in any two societies are regulated by the form of the two societies. Their respective political structures are important because the ruling elements within each group are the ones that begin to have dialogue, trade, or fight, as the case may be. At the level of social groups, therefore, development implies an increasing capacity to regulate both internal and external relationships. Much of human history has been a fight for survival against natural hazards and against real and imagined human enemies. Development in the past has always meant the increase in the ability to guard the independence of the social group and indeed to infringe upon the freedom of others, something that often came about irrespective of the will of the persons within the societies involved. Men are not the only beings that operate in groups, but the human species embarked upon a unique line of development because man had the capacity to make and use tools. The very act of making tools was a stimulus to increasing rationality rather than the consequence of a fully matured intellect. In historical terms, man, the worker, was every bit as important as man, the thinker, because the work with tools liberated men from sheer physical necessity 
so that he could impose himself upon other more powerful species, and upon nature itself. The tools with which men work, and the manner in which they organize their labor, are both important indices of social development. More often than not, the term development is used in an exclusive economic sense, the justification being that the type of economy is itself an index of other social features. What, then, is economic development? A society develops economically as its members increase jointly their capacity for dealing with the environment. This capacity for dealing with the environment is dependent on the extent to which they understand the laws of nature, science, on the extent to which they put that understanding into practice by devising tools, technology, and on the manner in which work is organized. Taking a long-term view, it can be said that there has been constant economic development within human society since the origins of man, because man has multiplied enormously his capacity to win a living from nature. The magnitude of man's achievement is best understood by reflecting on the curly history of human society and noting the following. Firstly, the progress from crude stone tools to the use of metals. Secondly, the changeover from hunting and gathering wild fruit to the domestication of animals and the growing of food crops. And thirdly, the improvement and organization of work from being an individualistic activity towards being an activity which assumes a social character through the participation of many. Every people have shown a capacity for independently increasing their ability to live a more satisfactory life through exploiting the resources of nature. Every continent independently participated in the early epochs of the extension of man's control over his environment, which means, in effect, that every continent can point to a period of economic development. Africa, being the original home of man, was obviously a major participant in the processes in which human groups displayed an ever-increasing capacity to extract a living from the natural environment. Indeed, in the early period, Africa was the focus of the physical development of man as such, as distinct from other living beings. Development was universal because the conditions leading to economic expansion were universal. Everywhere, man was faced with the task of survival by meeting fundamental material needs, and better tools were a consequence of the interplay between human beings and nature as part of the struggle for survival. Of course, human history is not a record of advances and nothing else. There were periods in every part of the world when there were temporary setbacks and actual reduction of the capacity to produce basic necessities and other services for the population. But the overall tendency was towards increased production, and at given points of time, the increase in the quantity of goods was associated with a change in the quality or character of society. This will be shown later with reference to Africa, but to indicate the universal application of the principle of quantitative-slash-qualitative change, an example will be drawn from China. Early man in China lived at the mercy of nature, and slowly discovered such basic things as the fact that fire can be man-made, and that seeds of some grasses could be planted in the soil to meet food requirements. Those discoveries helped inhabitants of China to have simple farming communities using stone tools and producing enough for bare subsistence. That was achieved several thousand years ago before the birth of Christ or the flight of the prophet Muhammad. The goods produced at that stage were divided more or less equally among the members of society who lived and worked in families. By the time of the Tang dynasty of the 7th century A.D., 
China had expanded its economic capacity not only to grow more food, but also to manufacture a wide variety of items such as silks, porcelain, chips, and scientific devices. This, of course, represented a quantitative increase in the goods produced, and it was interrelated with qualitative changes in Chinese society. By the later date, there was a political state, where before there were only self-governing units. Instead of every family and every individual performing the tasks of agriculturalists, house builders, tailors, there had arisen specialization of function. Most of the population still tilled the land, but there were skilled artisans who made silk and porcelain, bureaucrats who administered the state, and Buddhist and Confucian religious philosophers who specialized in trying to explain those things that lay outside of immediate understanding. Specialization and division of labor led to more production as well as inequality in distribution. A small section of Chinese society came to take a disproportionate share of the proceeds of human labor, and that was the section which did least to actually generate wealth by working in agriculture or industry. They could afford to do so because grave inequalities had emerged in the ownership of the basic means of production, which was the land. Family land became smaller as far as most peasants were concerned, and a minority took over the greater portion of the land. Those changes in land tenure were part and parcel of development in its broadest sense. That is why development cannot be seen purely as an economic affair, but rather as an overall social process which is dependent upon the outcome of man's efforts to deal with his natural environment. Through careful study, it is possible to comprehend some of the very complicated links between the changes in the economic base and changes in the rest of the superstructure of the society including the sphere of ideology and social beliefs. The changeover from communalism in Asia and Europe led, for instance, to codes of behavior peculiar to feudalism. The conduct of the European knights in armor had much in common with that of the Japanese samurai, or warriors. They developed notions of so-called chivalry, conduct becoming a gentleman knight on horseback. Wild in contrast, the peasant had to learn extreme humility, deference, and obsequiousness symbolized by doffing his cap and standing bareheaded before his superiors. In Africa, too, it was to be found that the rise of the state and superior classes led to the practice whereby common subjects prostrated themselves in the presence of the monarchs and aristocrats. When that point had been reached, it became clear that the rough equality of the family had given way to a new state of society. In the natural sciences, it is well known that in many instances, quantitative change becomes qualitative after a certain period. The common example is the way that water can absorb heat, a quantitative process, until at 100 degrees Celsius, it changes to steam, a qualitative change of form. Similarly, in human society, it has always been the case that the expansion of the economy leads eventually to a change in the form of social relations. Karl Marx, writing in the 19th century, was the first writer to appreciate this, and he distinguished within European history several stages of development. The first major stage, following after simple bands of hunters, was communalism, where property was collectively owned, work was done in common, and goods were shared equally. The second was slavery, caused by the extension of domineering elements within the family and by some groups being physically overwhelmed by others. Slaves did a variety of tasks, but their main job was to produce food. 
The next stage was feudalism, where agriculture remained the principal means of making a livelihood, but the land which was necessary for that purpose was in the hands of the few, and they took the lion's share of the wealth. The workers on the land, now called serfs, were no longer the personal property of the masters, but were tied to the land of a particular manor or estate. When the manor changed hands, the serfs had to remain there and provide goods for the landlord, just keeping enough to feed themselves. Just as the child of a slave was a slave, so the children of serfs were also serfs. Then came capitalism, under which the greatest wealth of the society was produced not in agriculture, but by machines, in factories, and in mines. Like the preceding phase of feudalism, capitalism was characterized by the concentration in a few hands of ownership of the means of producing wealth and by unequal distribution of the products of human labor. The few who dominated were the bourgeoisie, who had originated in the merchants and craftsmen of the feudal epoch, and who rose to be industrialists and financiers. Meanwhile, the serfs were declared legally free to leave the land and go in search of employment in capitalist enterprises. Their labor thereby became a commodity, something to be bought and sold. It was predicted that there would be a further stage, that of socialism in which the principle of economic equality would be restored, as in communalism. In the present century, the phase of socialism has indeed emerged in some countries. Economically, each succeeding stage represented development in the strict sense that there was increased capacity to control the material environment and thereby to create more goods and services for the community. The greater quantity of goods and services were based on greater skills and human inventiveness. Man was liberated in the sense of having more opportunities to display and develop his talents. Whether man uplifted himself in a moral sense is open to dispute. The advance in production increased the range of powers which sections of society had over other sections, and it multiplied the violence which was part of the competition for survival and growth among social groups. It is not all clear that a soldier serving capitalism in the last world war was less primitive in the elemental sense of the word than a soldier serving in one of Japan's feudal armies in the 16th century, or, for that matter, than a hunter living in the first phase of human organization in the forests of Brazil. Nevertheless, we do know that in those three respective epochs, hunting land, feudalism, capitalism, the quality of life improved. It became less hazardous and less uncertain, and members of society potentially had greater choice over their destinies. All of that is involved when the word development is used. In the history of those societies which have passed through several modes of production, the opportunity is presented of seeing how quantitative changes give rise ultimately to an entirely different society. The key feature is that, at given junctures, the social relations and the society were no longer effective in promoting advance. Indeed, they began to act as breaks on the productive forces and therefore had to be discarded. Take, for instance, the epoch of slavery in Europe. However morally indefensible slavery may have been, it did serve for a while to open up the mines and agricultural plantations in large parts of Europe, and notably within the Roman Empire. But then those peasants who remained free had their labor depressed and underutilized because of the presence of slaves. The slaves were not disposed to work at any tasks requiring skills, so the technological evolution of society threatened to come to a halt. Furthermore, the slaves were restless, and slave revolts were expensive to put down. 
the landowner, seeing their estates going to ruin, decided that it would be best to grant the legal freedom for which slaves were clamoring, and to keep exploiting the labor of these free serfs by ensuring that they had no lands to plow other than those of the landlords, thereby a new set of social relations, that of landlord and serf, replaced the old relations of slave-master and slave. In some instances, the changeover to a new mode was accompanied by violence at a critical point. This occurred when the ruling classes involved were being threatened with removal by the process of change. The feudal landlords remained in power for centuries, during which the merchant and manufacturing interests grew wealthy and sought to achieve political power and social preeminence. When classes are so well-defined, their consciousness is at a high level. Both the landlord class and the capitalists recognized what was at stake. The former fought to hold on to the social relations which no longer correspond to the new technology of machine production and the organization of work by means of purchasing labor power. The capitalists flung themselves into revolutions in Europe in the 18th and 19th centuries to break the old relations of production. The notions of revolution and class consciousness must be borne in mind when it comes to examining the situation of the modern worker and peasant classes in Africa. However, for the greater part of Africa's history, the existing classes have been incompletely crystallized, and the changes have been gradual rather than revolutionary. What is probably of more relevance for early African development is the principle that development over the world's territories has always been uneven. While all societies have experienced development, it is equally true that the rate of development differed from continent to continent, and within each continent, different parts increased their command over nature at different rates. Inside Africa, Egyptians were capable of producing wealth in abundance 25 centuries ago because of mastery of many scientific natural laws and their invention or technology to irrigate, grow food, and extract minerals from the subsoil. At that time, hunting with bows and even wooden clubs was what people depended on for survival in most parts of the African continent and in various other places, such as the British Isles. One of the most difficult questions to answer is exactly why different peoples developed at different rates when left on their own. Part of the answer lies in the environment in which human groups evolved, and part of it lies in the superstructure of human society. That is to say, as human beings battled with the material environment, they created forms of social relations, forms of government, patterns of behavior, and systems of belief which together constituted the superstructure which was never the same in any two societies. Each element in the superstructure interacted with other elements in the superstructure, as well as with the material base. For instance, the political and religious patterns affected each other and were often intertwined. The religious belief that a certain forest was sacred was the kind of element in the superstructure that affected economic activity, since that forest would not be cleared for cultivation. While in the final analysis, the breakthrough to a new stage of human development is dependent upon man's technical capacity to deal with the environment, it is also to be borne in mind that peculiarities in the superstructure of any given society have a marked impact on the rate of development. Many observers have been puzzled by the fact that China never became capitalist. It entered the feudal phase of development virtually 1,000 years before the birth of Christ. It had developed many aspects of technology, and it had many craftsmen and artisans. Yet the mode of production was never transformed to one where machines were the main means of producing wealth, and where the owners of capital would be the dominant class. The explanation is very complex, but in general terms, 
The main differences between feudal Europe and feudal China lay in the superstructure, that is, in the body of beliefs, motivations, and socio-political institutions which derived from the material base, but in turn affected it. In China, religious, educational, and bureaucratic qualifications were of utmost importance, and government was in the hands of state officials rather than being run by the landlords on their own feudal estates. Besides, there were greater egalitarian tendencies in Chinese land distribution than in European land distribution, and the Chinese state owned a great deal of land. The consequence was that the landowners had greater powers as bureaucrats than as men of property, and they used that to keep social relations in the same mold. It would have been impossible for them to have done that indefinitely, but they slowed down the movement of history. In Europe, the elements of change were not stifled by the weight of a state bureaucracy. As soon as the first capitalist appeared in European society, an incentive was created for further development through the attitude of this class. Never before in any human society had a group of people seen themselves consciously functioning in order to make the maximum profit out of production. To fulfill their objective of acquiring more and more capital, capitalists took a greater interest in the laws of science, which could be harnessed in the form of machinery to work and make profit on their behalf. At the political level, capitalism was also responsible for most of the features which today are referred to as Western democracy. In abolishing feudalism, the capitalists insisted on parliaments, constitutions, freedom of the press. These, too, can be considered as development. However, the peasants and workers of Europe, and eventually the inhabitants of the whole world, paid a huge price so that the capitalists could make their profits from the human labor that always lies behind the machines. That contradicts other facets of development, especially viewed from the standpoint of those who suffered and still suffered to make capitalist achievements possible. This latter group are the majority of mankind. To advance, they must overthrow capitalism, and that is why at the moment capitalism stands in the path of further human social development. To put it another way, the social class relations of capitalism are now outmoded, just as slave and feudal relations became outmoded in their time. There was a period when the capitalist system increased the well-being of significant numbers of people as a byproduct of seeking out profits for a few, but today the quest for profits comes into sharp conflict with people's demands that their material and social needs should be fulfilled. The capitalist or bourgeois class is no longer capable of guiding the uninhibited development of science and technology, again because these objectives now clash with the profit motive. Capitalism has proved incapable of transcending fundamental weaknesses such as underutilization of productive capacity, the persistence of a permanent sector of unemployed, and periodic economic crises related to the concept of market, which is concerned with people's ability to pay rather than their need for commodities. Capitalism has created its own irrationalities, such as a vicious white racism, the tremendous waste associated with advertising, and the irrationality of incredible poverty in the midst of wealth, and wastage even inside the biggest capitalist economies, such as that of the United States of America. Above all, capitalism has intensified its own political contradictions in trying to subjugate nations and continents outside of Europe, so that workers and peasants in every part of the globe have become self-conscious and are determined to take their destiny into their own hands. Such a determination is also an integral part of the process of development. It can be offered as a generalization that all phases of development are temporary or transient, 
and are destined sooner or later to give way to something else. It is particularly important to stress this with reference to capitalism, because the capitalist epoch is not quite over, and those who live at a particular point in time often fail to see that their way of life is in the process of transformation and elimination. Indeed, it is one of the functions of those bourgeois writers who justify capitalism to try and pretend that capitalism is here to stay. A glance at the remarkable advance of socialism over the last fifty-odd years will show that the apologists for capitalism are spokesmen of a social system that is rapidly expiring. The fact that capitalism today is still around alongside socialism should warn us that the modes of production cannot simply be viewed as a question of successive stages. Uneven development has always ensured that societies have come into contact when they were at different levels. For example, one that was communal and one that was capitalist. When two societies of different sorts come into prolonged and effective contact, the rate and character of change taking place in both is seriously affected to the extent that entirely new patterns are created. Two general rules can be observed to apply in such cases. First, the weaker of the two societies, that is, the one with less economic capacity, is bound to be adversely affected, and the bigger the gap between the two societies concerned, the more detrimental are the consequences. For example, when European capitalism came into contact with the indigenous hunting societies of America and the Caribbean, the latter were virtually exterminated. Second, assuming that the weaker society does survive, then ultimately it can resume its own independent development only if it proceeds to a level higher than that of the economy which had previously dominated it. The concrete instances of the operation of this second rule are found in the experience of the Soviet Union, China, and Korea. China and Korea were both at a stage approximating feudalism when they were colonized by the capitalist powers of Europe and Japan. Russia was never legally colonized, but while in the feudal stage and before its own indigenous capitalism could get very far, the Russian economy was subjugated by the more mature capitalism of Western Europe. In all three cases, it took a socialist revolution to break the domination of capitalism, and only the rapid tempo of socialist development could make amends for the period of subjugation when growth was misdirected and retarded. Indeed, as far as the two biggest socialist states are concerned, the Soviet Union and China, socialist development has already catapulted them beyond states such as Britain and France, which have been following the capitalist path for centuries. Up to the end of the 1950s, the point at which this study terminates. Russia, China, Korea, and certain nations in Eastern Europe were the only countries which had decisively broken with capitalism and imperialism. Imperialism is itself a phase of capitalist development in which Western European capitalist countries, the USA and Japan, established political, economic, military, and cultural hegemony over other parts of the world which were initially at a lower level and therefore cannot resist domination. Imperialism was, in effect, the extended capitalist system, which for many years embraced the whole world, one part being the exploiters and the other the exploited, one part being dominated and the other acting as overlords, one part making policy and the other being dependent. Socialism has advanced on imperialism's weakest flanks, in the sector that is exploited, oppressed, and reduced to dependency. In Asia and Eastern Europe, socialism released the nationalist energies of colonized peoples. It turned the goal of production away from the money market 
and towards the satisfaction of human needs. It has eradicated bottlenecks, such as permanent unemployment and periodic crises. And it has realized some of the promise implicit in Western or bourgeois democracy by providing the equality of economic condition which is necessary before one can make use of political equality and equality before the law. Socialism has reinstated the economic equality of communalism, but communalism fell apart because of low economic productivity and scarcity. Socialism aims at and has significantly achieved the creation of plenty, so that the principle of egalitarian distribution becomes consistent with the satisfaction of the wants of all members of society. One of the most crucial factors leading to more rapid and consistent expansion of economic capacity under socialism has been the implementation of planned development. Most of the historical processes so far described relate to involuntary and unplanned development. No one planned that at a given stage human beings should cease using stone axes and use iron implements instead, and to come to more recent times, while individual capitalist firms plan their own expansion, their system is not geared to overall planning of the economy and the society. The capitalist state intervened only fitfully and partially to supervise capitalist development. The socialist state has as its prime function the control of the economy on behalf of the working classes. The latter, that is, workers and peasants, have now become the most dynamic force in world history and human development. To conclude this brief introduction to the extremely complex problem of social development, it is useful to recognize how inadequate are the explanations of that phenomenon which are provided by bourgeois scholars. They very seldom try to grapple with the issue in its totality, but rather concentrate attention narrowly on economic development. As defined by the average bourgeois economist, development becomes simply a matter of the combination of given factors of production, namely land, population, capital, technology, specialization, and large-scale production. Those factors are indeed relevant, as is implied in the analysis so far, but omissions from the list of what bourgeois scholars think relevant are really overwhelming. No mention is made of the exploitation of the majority which underlay all development prior to socialism. No mention is made of the social relations of production or of classes. No mention is made of the way that the factors and relations of production combined to form a distinctive system or mode of production, varying from one historical epoch to another. No mention is made of the imperialism as a logical phase of capitalism. In contrast, in the approach which tries to base itself on socialist and revolutionary principles, must certainly introduce into the discussion at the earliest possible point the concepts of class, imperialism, and socialism, as well as the role of the workers and oppressed peoples. Each new concept bristles with its own complications, and it is not to be imagined that the mere resort to certain terminology is the answer to anything. However, one has at least to recognize the full human, historical, and social dimensions of development before it is feasible to consider underdevelopment or the strategies for escaping from underdevelopment. What is underdevelopment? Having discussed development, it is easier to comprehend the concept of underdevelopment. Obviously, underdevelopment is not absence of development, because every people have developed in one way or another, and to a greater or lesser extent. Underdevelopment makes sense only as a means of comparing levels of development. It is very much tied to the fact that human social development has been uneven, 
From a strictly economic viewpoint, some human groups have advanced further by producing more and becoming more wealthy. The moment that one group appears to be wealthier than others, some inquiry is bound to take place as to the reason for the difference. After Britain had begun to move ahead of the rest of Europe in the 18th century, the famous British economist Adam Smith felt it necessary to look into the causes behind the wealth of nations. At the same time, many Russians were very concerned about the fact that their country was backward in comparison with England, France, and Germany in the 18th century, and subsequently in the 19th century. Today, our main preoccupation is with the differences in wealth between, on the one hand, Europe and North America, and on the other hand, Africa, Asia, and Latin America. In comparison with the first, the second group can be said to be backward or underdeveloped. At all times, therefore, one of the ideas behind underdevelopment is a comparative one. It is possible to compare the economic conditions at two different periods for the same country and determine whether or not it had developed. And more importantly, it is possible to compare the economics of any two countries at any given period of time. A second and even more indispensable component of modern underdevelopment is that it expresses a particular relationship of exploitation, namely the exploitation of one country by another. All of the countries named as underdeveloped in the world are exploited by others, and the underdevelopment with which the world is now preoccupied is a product of capitalist, imperialist, and colonialist exploitation. African and Asian societies were developing independently until they were taken over directly or indirectly by the capitalist powers. When that happened, exploitation increased, and the export of surplus ensued depriving the societies of the benefit of their natural resources and labor. This is an integral part of underdevelopment in the contemporary sense. In some quarters, it has often been thought wise to substitute the term developing for underdeveloped. One of the reasons for so doing is to avoid any unpleasantness which may be attached to the second term, which might be interpreted as meaning underdeveloped mentally, physically, morally, or in any other respect. Actually, if underdevelopment were related to anything other than comparing economies, then the most underdeveloped country in the world would be the United States, which practices external oppression on a massive scale, while internally there is a blend of exploitation, brutality, and psychiatric disorder. However, on the economic level, it is best to remain with the word underdeveloped rather than developing because the latter creates the impression that all the countries of Africa, Asia, and Latin America are escaping from a state of economic backwardness relative to the industrial nations of the world, and that they are emancipating themselves from the relationship of exploitation. That is certainly not true, and many underdeveloped countries in Africa and elsewhere are becoming more underdeveloped in comparison with the world's great powers, because their exploitation by the metropoles is being intensified in new ways. Economic comparisons can be made by looking at statistical tables or indices of what goods and services are produced and used in the societies under discussion. Professional economists speak of the national income of countries and the national income per capita. These phrases have already become a part of the layman's language by way of the newspapers, and no detailed explanation will be offered here. It is enough to note that the national income is a measurement of the total wealth of the country, while the per capita income is a figure obtained by dividing the national income by the number of inhabitants in order to get an idea of the average wealth of each inhabitant. This average can be misleading where there are great extremes of wealth.
A young Ugandan put it in a very personal form when he said that the per capita income of his country camouflaged the fantastic difference between what was earned by his poor peasant father and what was earned by the biggest local capitalist, Madbani. And considering the question of development away from the state of underdevelopment, it is of supreme importance to realize that such a process demands the removal of the gross inequalities of land distribution, property holding, and income, which are camouflaged behind national income figures. At one stage in history, advance was made at the cost of entrenching privileged groups. In our times, development has to mean advance which liquidates present privileged groups with their corresponding unprivileged groups. Nevertheless, the per capita income is a useful statistic for comparing one country with another, and the developed countries all have per capita incomes several times higher than any one of the recently independent African nations. The gap is not only great, but it is also increasing. Many people have come to realize that the developed countries are growing richer quite rapidly, while underdeveloped countries, for the most part, show stagnancy or slow rates of growth. In each country, a figure can be calculated to represent the rate at which the economy grows. The growth rate is highest in socialist countries, followed by the big capitalist countries, and with the colonies and ex-colonies trailing far behind. The proportion of international trade which is in the hands of the underdeveloped countries is declining. That proportion was roughly 30% in 1938 and went down to less than 20% in the 1960s. This is an important indicator because trade is both a reflection of the quantity of goods produced and a way of obtaining goods not locally produced. Developed economies have certain characteristics which contrast with underdeveloped ones. The developed countries are all industrialized. That is to say, the greater part of their working population is engaged in industry rather than agriculture, and most of their wealth comes out of mines, factories, and other industries. They have a high output of labor per man in industry because of their advanced technology and skills. This is well known, but it is also striking that the developed countries have a much more advanced agriculture than the rest of the world. Their agriculture has already become an industry, and the agricultural part of the economy produces more even though it is small. The countries of Africa, Asia, and Latin America are called agricultural countries because they rely on agriculture and have little or no industry. But their agriculture is unscientific, and the yields are far less than those of the developed countries. In several of the largest underdeveloped nations, there was a stagnation and fall in agricultural output in and after 1966. In Africa, the output of food per person has been falling in recent years. Because the developed countries have a stronger industrial and agricultural economy than the rest of the world, they produce far more goods than the poor nations in the category of necessities as well as luxuries. It is possible to draw up statistical tables showing the production of grain, milk, steel, electric power, paper, and a wide range of other goods, and showing at the same time how much of each commodity is made available to each citizen on the average. Once again, the figures are highly favorable to a few privileged countries in the world. The amount of steel used in a country is an excellent indicator of the level of industrialization. At one extreme, one finds that the USA consumes 685 kilograms of steel per person, Sweden, 623, and East Germany, 437. At the other extreme, one finds that Zambia consumes 10 kilograms, East Africa, 8, and Ethiopia, 2. 
When the same kind of calculation is made for sugar, a sample of the results shows Australia with 57 kilograms, and North America and the Soviet Union with 45 to 50 on the average. Africa, however, consumes only 10 kilograms of sugar per person per year, and this is better than Asia, with 7. An even more gloomy set of statistics relates to basic food requirements. Each individual needs a certain quantity of food per day, measured in calories. The desirable amount is 3,000 calories per day. But no African country comes anywhere near that figure. Algerians consume an average of only 1,870 calories per day, while Ivory Coast can consider itself very well off with an African context with 2,290 calories as the national average. Furthermore, one also has to judge the protein content of the food, and many parts of Africa suffer from protein famine, which means that even when calories are available from starchy foods, protein is not to be found. Persons in developed capitalist and socialist countries consume twice as much protein food as those in underdeveloped countries. Such differences help to make it clear which countries are developed and which are underdeveloped. The social services provided by a country are of importance equal to that of its material production in bringing about human well-being and happiness. It is universally accepted that the state has the responsibility to establish schools and hospitals, but whether these are provided by the government or by private agencies, their numbers can be established in relation to the size of the population. The extent to which basic goods and social services are available in a country can also be measured indirectly by looking at the life expectancy, the frequency of deaths among children, the amount of malnutrition, the occurrence of diseases which could be prevented by inoculation and public health services, and the proportion of illiterates. In all these respects, the comparison between the developed and underdeveloped countries shows huge and even frightening differences. For every 1,000 children who are born alive in Cameroon, 100 never live to see their first birthday. And out of every 1,000 African children born alive in rural Sierra Leone, 160 die before reaching one year. Yet the comparable figures for the United Kingdom and Holland are only 12 and 18, respectively. Besides, many more African children die before they reach the age of five. Lack of doctors is a major drawback. In Italy, there is one doctor for every 580 Italians, and in Czechoslovakia, there is one doctor for every 510 citizens. In Niger, one doctor must do for 56,140 persons. In Tunisia, one doctor for every 8,320 Tunisians. And in Chad, one doctor for 73,460 persons. It takes a large number of skilled people to make an industrial economy function, while the countries of Africa have a woefully insufficient number of highly qualified personnel. The figures on doctors just given confirm this, and the same problem exists with engineers, technicians, agriculturalists, and even administrators and lawyers in some places. Middle-level skills in fields such as welding are also lacking. To make matters worse, there is at present a brain drain from Africa, Asia, Latin America, and Western Europe. This is to say, professionals, technicians, high-level administrators, and skilled workers immigrate from their homes, and the small number of skilled people available to the underdeveloped world is further depleted by the lure of better pay and opportunities in the developed world. 
This lopsided nature of the present international economy is strikingly brought home by the fact that the underdeveloped countries must in turn recruit foreign experts at fantastic cost. Most of the data presented so far can be described as quantitative. It gives us measurements of the quantity of goods and services produced in various economies. In addition, certain qualitative assessments have been made concerning the way that a given economy is put together. For economic development, it is not enough to produce more goods and services. The country has to produce more of those goods and services, which in turn will give rise spontaneously to future growth in the economy. For example, the food-producing sector must be flourishing so that workers would be healthy, and agriculture on the whole must be efficient so that the profits or savings from agriculture would stimulate industry. Heavy industries such as the steel industry and the production of electrical power must be present so that one is capable of making machinery for other types of industry and for agriculture. Lack of heavy industry, inadequate production of food, unscientific agriculture, those are all characteristics of the underdeveloped economies. It is typical of underdeveloped economies that they do not or are not allowed to concentrate on those sectors of the economy which in turn will generate growth and raise production to a new level altogether. And there are very few ties between one sector and another so that, say, agriculture and industry could react beneficially on each other. Furthermore, whatever savings are made within the economy are mainly sent abroad or are fritted away in consumption rather than being redirected to productive purposes. Much of the national income which remains within the country goes to pay individuals who are not directly involved in producing wealth, but only in rendering auxiliary services. Civil servants, merchants, soldiers, entertainers. What aggravates the situation is that more people are employed in those jobs than are really necessary to give efficient service. And to crown it all, these people do not reinvest in agriculture or industry. They squander the wealth created by the peasants and workers by purchasing cars, whiskey, and perfume. It has been noted with irony that the principal industry of many underdeveloped countries is administration. Not long ago, 60% of the internal revenue of Dahomey went into paying salaries of civil servants and government leaders. The salaries given to the elected politicians are higher than those given to a British member of parliament, and the number of parliamentarians in the underdeveloped African countries is also relatively high. In Gabon, there is one parliamentary representative for every 6,000 inhabitants, compared to one French parliamentary representative for every 100,000 Frenchmen. Many more figures of that sort indicate that in describing a typical underdeveloped economy, it is essential to point out the high disproportion of the locally distributed wealth that goes into the pockets of a privileged few. Members of the privileged groups inside Africa always defend themselves by saying that they pay the taxes which keep the government going. At face value, this statement sounds reasonable, but on close examination, it is really the most absurd argument and shows total ignorance of how the economy functions. Taxes do not produce national wealth and development. Wealth has to be produced out of nature, from tilling the land, or mining metals, or felling trees, or turning raw materials into finished products for human consumption. These things are done by the vast majority of the population who are peasants and workers. There would be no incomes to tax if the laboring population did not work. The incomes given to civil servants, professionals, and merchants come from the store of wealth produced by the community. Quite apart from the injustices and the distribution of wealth, 
one has to dismiss the argument that the taxpayer's money is what develops a country. In pursuing the goal of development, one must start with the producers and move on from there to see whether the products of their labor are being rationally utilized to bring greater independence and well-being to the nation. By paying attention to the wealth created by human labor out of nature, one can immediately appreciate that very few underdeveloped countries are lacking in the natural resources which could go into making a better life. And in those cases, it is usually possible for two or three territories to combine together for their mutual benefit. In fact, it can be shown that the underdeveloped countries are the ones with the greatest wealth of natural resources, and yet the poorest in terms of goods and services presently provided by and for the citizens. The United Nations Survey of Economic Conditions in Africa, up to 1964, had this to say about the continent's natural resources. Africa is well endowed with mineral and primary energy resources. With an estimated 9% of the world population, the region accounts for approximately 28% of the total value of world mineral production and 6% of its crude petroleum output. In recent years, its share of the latter is increasing. Of 16 important metallic and non-metallic minerals, the share of Africa in 10 varies from 22 to 95% of the world production. Actually, African potential is shown to be greater every day with new discoveries of mineral wealth. On the agricultural side, African soil is not as rich as the picture of tropical forests might lead one to believe. But there are other climatic advantages so that with proper irrigation, crops can be grown all year round in most parts of the continent. The situation is that Africa has not yet come anywhere close to making the most of its natural wealth, and most of the wealth now being produced is not being retained within Africa for the benefit of Africans. Zambia and Congo produce vast quantities of copper, but that is for the benefit of Europe, North America, and Japan. Even the goods and services which are produced inside of Africa, and which remain in Africa, nevertheless fall into the hands of non-Africans. Thus, South Africa boasts of having the highest per capita income in Africa. But as an indication of how this is shared out, one should note that while the apartheid regime assures that only 24 white babies die out of every 1,000 live births, they are quite happy to allow 128 African babies to die out of every 1,000 live births. In order to understand present economic conditions in Africa, one needs to know why it is that Africa has realized so little of its natural potential. And one also needs to know why so much of its present wealth goes to non-Africans who reside for the most part outside of the continent. In a way, underdevelopment is a paradox. Many parts of the world that are naturally rich are actually poor, and parts that are not so well off in wealth of soil and subsoil are enjoying the highest standards of living. When the capitalists from the developed parts of the world try to explain this paradox, they often make it sound as though there is something God-given about the situation. One bourgeois economist in a book on development accepted that the comparative statistics of the world today show a gap that is much larger than it was before. By his own admission, the gap between the developed and the underdeveloped countries has increased by at least 15 to 20 times over the last 150 years. However, the bourgeois economist in question does not give a historical explanation nor does he consider that there is a relationship of exploitation which allowed capitalist parasites to grow fat and impoverished the dependencies. 
Instead, he puts forward a biblical explanation. He says, It is all told in the Bible. For unto every one that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. The story of the hath-nots is the story of the modern, underdeveloped countries. Presumably the only comment which one can make on that is Amen. The interpretation that underdevelopment is somehow ordained by God is emphasized because of the racist trend in European scholarship. It is in line with racist prejudice to say openly or to imply that their countries are more developed because their people are innately superior and that the responsibility for the economic backwardness of Africa lies in the generic backwardness of the race of black Africans. An even bigger problem is that the people of Africa and other parts of the colonized world have gone through a cultural and psychological crisis and have accepted, at least partially, the European version of things. That means that the African himself has doubts about his capacity to transform and develop his natural environment. With such doubts, he even challenges those of his brothers who say that Africa can and will develop through the efforts of its own people. If we can determine when underdevelopment came about, it would dismiss the lingering suspicion that it is racially or otherwise predetermined and that we can do little about it. When the experts from capitalist countries do not give a racist explanation, they nevertheless confuse the issue by giving as causes of underdevelopment the things which really are consequences. For example, they would argue that Africa is in a state of backwardness as a result of lacking skilled personnel to develop. It is true that because of lack of engineers, Africa cannot on its own build more roads, bridges, and hydroelectric stations. But that is not a cause of underdevelopment except in the sense that causes and effects come together and reinforce each other. The fact of the matter is that the most profound reasons for the economic backwardness of a given African nation are not to be found inside that nation. All that we can find inside are the symptoms of underdevelopment and the secondary factors that make for poverty. Mistaken interpretations of the causes of underdevelopment usually stem either from prejudiced thinking or from the error of believing that one can learn the answers by looking inside the underdeveloped economy. The true explanation lies in seeking out the relationship between Africa and certain developed countries and in recognizing that it is in a relationship of exploitation. Man has always exploited his natural environment in order to make a living. At a certain point in time, there also arose the exploitation of man by man, in that a few people grew rich and lived well enough through the labor of others. Then a stage was reached by which people in one community, called a nation, exploited the natural resources and the labor of another nation and its people. Since underdevelopment deals with the comparative economics of nations, it is the last kind of exploitation that is of greatest interest here. That is, the exploitation of nation by nation. One of the common means by which one nation exploits another, and one that is relevant to Africa's external relations, is exploitation through trade. When the terms of trade are set by one country in a manner entirely advantageous to itself, then the trade is usually detrimental to the trading partner. To be specific, one can take the export of agricultural produce from Africa and the import of manufactured goods into Africa from Europe, North America, and Japan. The big nations establish the price of the agricultural products and subject these prices to frequent reductions. At the same time, the price of manufactured goods is also set by them, along with the freight rates necessary for trade in the ships of those nations. 
The minerals of Africa also fall into the same category as agricultural produce, as far as pricing is concerned. The whole import-export relationship between Africa and its trading partners is one of unequaled exchange and of exploitation. More far-reaching than just trade is the actual ownership of the means of production in one country by the citizens of another. When citizens of Europe own the land and the mines of Africa, this is the most direct way of sucking the African continent. Under colonialism, the ownership was complete and backed by military domination. Today, in many African countries, the foreign ownership is still present, although the armies and flags of foreign powers have been removed. So long as foreigners own land, mines, factories, banks, insurance companies, means of transportation, newspapers, power stations, then for so long will the wealth of Africa flow outwards into the hands of those elements. In other words, in the absence of direct political control, foreign investments ensures that the natural resources and the labor of Africa produce economic value, which is lost to the continent. Foreign investment often takes the form of loans to African governments. Naturally, these loans have to be repaid, and in the 1960s the rate of repayment amortization on official loans in underdeveloped countries rose from $400 million per year to about $700 million per year and is constantly on the increase. Besides, there is interest to be paid on these loans as well as profits which come from the direct investment in the economy. These two sources accounted for the fact that over $500 million flowed outwards from the underdeveloped countries in 1965. The information on these matters is seldom complete, for the obvious reason that those making the profit are trying to keep things quiet. So the figures we just talked about are likely to be underestimates. They are meant to give some idea of the extent to which the wealth of Africa is being drained off by those who invest in, and thereby own, a large part of the means of production of wealth in Africa. Furthermore, in more recent times, the forms of investment have become more subtle and more dangerous. They include so-called aid and the management of local African companies by international capitalist experts. While Africa trades mainly with the countries of Western Europe, North America, and Japan, Africa is also diversifying its trade by dealing with socialist countries, and if that trade proves disadvantageous to the African economy, then the developed socialist countries will also have joined the ranks of the exploiters of Africa. However, it is very essential at this stage to draw a clear distinction between the capitalist countries and the socialist ones, because socialist countries have never at any time owned any part of the African continent, nor do they invest in African economies in such a way as to expatriate profits from Africa. Therefore, socialist countries are not involved in the robbery of Africa. Most of the people who write about underdevelopment and who are read in the continents of Africa, Asia, and Latin America are spokesmen for the capitalist or bourgeois world. They seek to justify capitalist exploitation both inside and outside their own countries. One of the things which they do to confuse the issue is to place all underdeveloped countries in one camp and all developed countries in another camp, irrespective of different social systems, so that the terms capitalist and socialist never enter the discussion. Instead, one is faced with a simple division between the industrialized nations and those that are not industrialized. It is true that both the United States and the Soviet Union are industrialized, and it is true that when one looks at the statistics, countries such as France, Norway, Czechoslovakia, and Romania are much closer together than any one of them is to an African country. 
but it is absolutely necessary to determine whether the standard of living in a given industrialized country is a product of its own internal resources or whether it stems from exploiting other countries. The United States has a small proportion of the world's population and exploitable natural wealth, but it enjoys a huge percentage of the wealth which comes from exploiting the labor and natural resources of the whole world. The erroneous views about underdevelopment and the oversimplified distinction between rich and poor nations are opposed by socialist scholars both inside and outside the socialist countries. Those erroneous views are also being exposed by economists in underdeveloped countries who are discovering that the explanations offered by bourgeois scholars are explanations which suit the interests of those countries which exploit the rest of the world through trade and investment. One French socialist writer, Pierre Jolie, proposes that to obtain a proper perspective of relations between developed countries and underdeveloped ones, two categories should be set up, namely imperialist and socialist. The socialist camp includes all countries, big and small, which have decided to break away from international capitalism. The imperialist camp contains not only the capitalist giants like the United States, France, West Germany, and Japan, but also the weak nations in which those industrial nations have investments. Therefore, the imperialist camp can be subdivided into exploiting and exploited countries. For the most part, the nations of Africa fall into the group of exploited countries inside the capitalist-slash-imperialist system. Roughly one-third of the world's peoples are already living under some form of socialism. The other two-thirds constitute the capitalist-slash-imperialist camp, with the majority being in the exploited section. It is interesting to notice that in spite of their efforts to confuse the situation, the bourgeois writers often touch on the truth. For example, the United Nations, which is dominated by Western capitalist powers, would never stress the exploitation by capitalist nations, but their economic reviews refer, on the one hand, to the centrally planned economies, which means the socialist countries, and on the other hand, they speak of the market economies, which means, in effect, the imperialist sector of the world. The latter is subdivided into the developed market economies and the developing market economies, disguising the fact that the market means capitalist market. This study is concerned with analyzing the relations between those countries which are together within the capitalist market system. The things which bring Africa into the capitalist market system are trade, colonial domination, and capitalist investment. Trade has existed for several centuries. Colonial rule began in the late 19th century and has almost disappeared. And the investment in the African economy has been increasing steadily in the past century. Throughout the period that Africa has participated in the capitalist economy, two factors have brought about underdevelopment. In the first place, the wealth created by African labor and from African resources was grabbed by the capitalist countries of Europe. And in the second place, restrictions were placed upon African capacity to make the maximum use of its economic potential, which is what development is all about. Those two processes represent the answer to the two questions raised earlier as to why Africa has realized so little of its potential and why so much of its present wealth goes outside of the continent. African economies are integrated into the very structure of the developed capitalist economics, and they are integrated in a manner that is unfavorable to Africa and ensures that Africa is dependent on the big capitalist countries. Indeed, structural dependence is one of the characteristics of underdevelopment, most progressive writers divide the capitalist-slash-imperialist system into two parts. The first is the dominant or metropolitan section, 
and the countries in the second group are often called satellites because they are in the orbit of the metropolitan economies. The same idea is conveyed by simply saying that the underdeveloped countries are dependencies of the metropolitan capitalist economics. When a child or the young of any animal species ceases to be dependent upon its mother for food and protection, it can be said to have developed in the direction of maturity. Dependent nations can never be considered developed. It is true that modern conditions force all countries to be mutually interdependent in order to satisfy the needs of their citizens. But that is not incompatible with economic independence, because economic independence does not mean isolation. It does, however, require a capacity to exercise choice in external relations, and above all, it requires that a nation's growth at some point must become self-reliant and self-sustaining. Such things are obviously in direct contradiction to the economic dependence of numerous countries on the metropoles of Western Europe, North America, and Japan. It is also true that metropoles are dependent on the wealth of the exploited portions of the world. This is a source of their strength and a potential weakness within the capitalist slash imperialist system, since the peasants and workers of the dependencies are awakening to a realization that it is possible to cut the tentacles which imperialism has extended into their countries. However, there is a substantial difference between the dependence of the metropoles on the colonies and the subjugation of the colonies under a foreign capitalist yoke. The capitalist countries are technologically more advanced and are therefore the sector of the imperialist system which determined the direction of change. A striking example of this effect is the fact that synthetic fabrics manufactured in the capitalist metropoles have begun to replace fabrics made from raw material grown in the colonies. In other words, within certain limits, it is the technologically advanced metropoles who can decide when to end their dependence on the colonies in a particular sphere. When that happens, it is the colony, or neo-colony, which goes begging cap in hand for a reprieve on a new quota. It is for this reason that a formerly colonized nation has no hope of developing until it breaks effectively with the vicious circle of dependence and exploitation which characterizes imperialism. At the social and cultural level, there are many features which aid in keeping underdeveloped countries integrated into the capitalist system and, at the same time, hanging on to the apron strings of the metropoles. The Christian Church has always been a major instrument for cultural penetration and cultural dominance, in spite of the fact that, in many instances, Africans sought to set up independent churches. Equally important has been the role of education in producing Africans to service the capitalist system and to subscribe to its values. Recently, the imperialists have been using new universities in Africa to keep themselves entrenched at the highest academic level. Something as basic as language has come to serve as one of the mechanisms of integration and dependence. The French and English that are so widely used in Africa are more for the purpose of African communication with the exploiters than for African with African. Actually, it would be difficult to find a sphere which did not reflect the economic dependence and structural integration. At a glance, nothing could be less harmful and more entertaining than music, and yet this too is used as a weapon of cultural domination. The American imperialists go so far as to take the folk music, jazz, and soul music of oppressed black people and transform this into American propaganda over the voice of America beamed at Africa. During the colonial period, the forms of political subordination in Africa were obvious. There were governors, colonial officials, and police. In politically independent African states, the metropolitan capitalists have to ensure favorable political decisions by remote control.
So they set up their political puppets in many parts of Africa, who shamelessly agree to compromise with the vicious apartheid regime of South Africa when their masters tell them to do so. The revolutionary writer Frantz Fanon has dealt scorchingly and at length with the question of the minority in Africa, which serves as the transmission line between the metropolitan capitalists and the dependencies in Africa. The importance of this group cannot be underestimated. The presence of a group of African sellouts is part of the definition of underdevelopment. Any diagnosis of underdevelopment in Africa will reveal not just low per capita income and protein deficiencies, but also the gentlemen who dance in Abidjan, Accra, and Kinshasa when music is played in Paris, London, and New York. Political instability is manifesting itself in Africa as a chronic symptom of the underdevelopment of political life within the imperialist context. Military coups have followed one after the other, usually meaning nothing to the mass of the people, and sometimes representing a reactionary reversal of the efforts at national liberation. This trend was well exemplified in Latin American history, so that its appearance in neo-colonial South Vietnam or in neo-colonial Africa is not at all surprising. If economic power is centered outside national African boundaries, then political and military power in any real sense is also centered outside, until and unless the masses of peasants and workers are mobilized to offer an alternative to the system of sham political independence. All of those features are ramifications of underdevelopment and of the exploitation of the imperialist system. In most analyses of this question, they are either left out entirely, or the whole concept of imperialism and neocolonialism is dismissed as mere rhetoric, especially by academics who claim to be removed from politics. During the remainder of this study, a great deal of detail will be presented to indicate the grim reality behind the so-called slogans of capitalism, imperialism, colonialism, neocolonialism, and the like. For the present moment, the position to be adopted can be stated briefly in the following terms. The question as to who and what is responsible for African underdevelopment can be answered at two levels. First, the answer is that the operation of the imperialist system bears major responsibility for African economic retardation by draining African wealth and by making it impossible to develop more rapidly the resources of the continent. Second, one has to deal with those who manipulate the system and those who are either agents or unwitting accomplices of the said system. The capitalists of Western Europe were the ones who actively extended their exploitation from inside Europe to cover the whole of Africa. In recent times, they were joined and to some extent replaced by capitalists from the United States. And for many years now, even the workers of those metropolitan countries have benefited from the exploitation and underdevelopment of Africa. None of these remarks are intended to remove the ultimate responsibility for development from the shoulders of Africans. Not only are there African accomplices inside the imperialist system, but every African has a responsibility to understand the system and work for its overthrow. Chapter 2 how Africa developed before the coming of the Europeans, up to the 15th century. Before even the British came into relations with our people, we were a developed people, having our own institutions, having our own ideas of government. J. E. Casely Hayford, 1922, African Gold Coast Nationalist A General Overview it has been shown that, using comparative standards, Africa today 
is underdeveloped in relation to Western Europe and a few other parts of the world, and that the present position has been arrived at not by the separate evolution of Africa on the one hand and Europe on the other, but through exploitation. As is well known, Africa has had prolonged and extensive contact with Europe, and one has to bear in mind that contact between different societies changes their respective rates of development. To set the record straight, four operations are required. One, reconstruction of the nature of development in Africa before the coming of Europeans. Two, reconstruction of the nature of development which took place in Europe before expansion abroad. Three, analysis of Africa's contribution to Europe's present developed state. Four, Analysis of Europe's Contribution to Africa's Present Underdeveloped State The second task has already been extensively carried out in European literature, and only passing references need be made, but the others are all deserving of further attention. The African continent reveals very fully the workings of the law of uneven development of societies. There are marked contrasts between the Ethiopian Empire and the hunting groups of pygmies in the Congo Forest or between the empires of the Western Sudan and the Khoisan hunter-gatherers of the Kalahari Desert. Indeed, there were striking contrasts within any given geographical area. The Ethiopian Empire embraced literate feudal Amharic noblemen, as well as simple Kaffa cultivators and Gala pastoralists. The empires of the Western Sudan had sophisticated, educated Mandinga townsmen, small communities of Bozo fishermen, and nomadic Fulani herdsmen. Even among clans and lineages that appear roughly similar, there were considerable differences. However, it is possible to distinguish between what was uniquely African and what was universal in the sense of being characteristic of all human societies at a given stage of development. It is also essential to recognize the process of dialectical evolution from lower to higher forms of social organization. And in looking at the most advanced social formations, one would appreciate the potential of the continent as a whole and the direction of change. The moment that the topic of the pro-European African past is raised, many individuals are concerned for various reasons to know about the existence of the African civilizations. Mainly this stems from a desire to make comparisons with European civilizations. This is not the context in which to evaluate the so-called civilizations of Europe. It is enough to note that behavior of European capitalists from the epoch of slavery through colonialism, fascism, and genocidal wars in Asia and Africa. Such barbarism causes suspicion to attach to the use of the word civilization to describe Western Europe and North America. As far as Africa is concerned during the period of early development, it is preferable to speak in terms of cultures rather than civilizations. A culture is a total way of life. It embraces what people ate and what they wore, the way they walked and the way they talked, the manner in which they treated death and greeted the newborn. Obviously, unique features came into existence in virtually every locality with regard to all social details. In addition, the continent of Africa, south of the Great Sahara Desert, formed a broad community where resemblances were clearly discernible. For example, Music and dance had key roles in uncontaminated African society. They were ever-present at birth, initiation, marriage, death, as well as at times of recreation. Africa is the continent of drums and percussion. African peoples reached the pinnacle of achievement in that sphere. 
because of the impact of colonialism and cultural imperialism, which will be discussed later. Europeans and Africans themselves in the colonial period lacked due regard for the unique features of African culture. Those features have a value of their own that cannot be eclipsed by European culture either in the comparable period before 1500 or in the subsequent centuries. They cannot be eclipsed because they are not really comparable phenomena. Who in this world is competent to judge whether an Austrian waltz is better than a Makande Ngoma? Furthermore, even in those spheres of culture that are more readily comparable, such as the fine arts, it is known that African achievements of the pre-European period stand as contributions to man's heritage of beautiful creations. The art of Egypt, the Sudan, and Ethiopia was well known to the rest of the world at an early date. That of the rest of Africa is still being discovered and rediscovered by Europeans and present-day Africans. The verdict of art historians on the Ife and Benin bronzes is well known. Since they date from the 14th and 15th centuries, they are very relevant to any discussion of African development in the epoch before the contacts with Europe. Nor should they be regarded as unusual, except with regard to the material in which the sculptures were executed. The same skill and feeling obviously went into sculpture and artwork in non-durable materials, especially wood. African dance and art were almost invariably linked with a religious world outlook in one way or another. As is well known, traditional African religious practices exist in great variety, and it should also be remembered that both Islam and Christianity found homes on the African continent almost from their very inception. The features of the traditional African religions helped to set African cultures apart from those in other continents, but in this present context, it is more important to note how much African religion had in common with religion elsewhere, and how this can be used as an index to the level of development in Africa before European impact in the 15th century. Religion is an aspect of the superstructure of a society, deriving ultimately from the degree of control and understanding of the material world. However, when man thinks in religious terms, he starts from the ideal rather than with the material world, which is beyond his comprehension. This creates a non-scientific and metaphysical way of viewing the world, which often conflicts with the scientific materialist outlook and with the development of society. African ancestral religions were no better or worse than other religions as such, but by the end of feudalism, Europeans began to narrow the area of human life in which religion and the church played a part. Religion ceased to dominate politics, geography, medicine. To free those things from religious restraints, it had to be argued that religion had its own sphere, and the things of this world had their own secular sphere. This secularization of life speeded up the development of capitalism and later socialism. In contrast, the period before the coming of the whites, religion pervaded African life, just as it pervaded life in other pre-feudal societies, such as those of the Maoris of Australia or the Afghans of Afghanistan or the Vikings of Scandinavia. Religion can play both a positive and a negative role as an aspect of the superstructure. In most instances in early Africa, religious beliefs were associated with the mobilization and discipline of large numbers of people to form states. In a few instances, religion also provided concepts in the struggle for social justice. The negative aspects usually arose out of the tendency of religion to persist unchanged for extremely long periods, especially when the technology of earning a living changes very slowly. 
This was the case in African societies, as in all other pre-capitalist societies. At the same time, the religious beliefs themselves react upon the mode of production, further slowing up progress in that respect. For instance, belief in prayer and in the intervention of ancestors and various gods could easily be a substitute for innovations designed to control the impact of weather and environment. The same kind of two-sided relationship also exists between the means of earning a living and the social patterns that arise in the process of work. In Africa, before the 15th century, the predominant principle of social relations was that of family and kinship, associated with communalism. Every member of an African society had his position defined in terms of relatives on his mother's side and on his father's side. Some societies placed greater importance on matrilineal ties and others on patrilineal ties. Those things were crucial to the daily existence of a member of an African society because land, the major means of production, was owned by groups such as the family or clan, the head of which were parents and those yet unborn. In theory, this pattern was explained by saying that the residents in any community were all direct descendants of the first person who settled the land. When a new group arrived, they often made a pretense that they too had ancestry dating back to the settling of the land, or else they ensured that members of the earliest kin groups continued to perform the ceremonies related to the land and water of the region. Similarly, the labor that worked the land was generally recruited on a family basis. A single family or household would till its own plots, and it would also be available to share certain joint farming activities with other members of the extended family or clan. Annual hunts and river fishing were also organized by a whole extended family or village community. In a matrilineal society such as that of the Bimba, Zambia, the bridegroom spent a number of years working for the father of his bride and many young men who had married daughters of the same household often formed work teams to help each other. In Dahomey, a young man did not go to live with his wife's family, but the Dokpwe, or work team, allowed a son to participate in carrying out a task of some magnitude for the father of his wife. In both of those examples, the right of the father-in-law to acquire labor and the obligations of the son-in-law to give labor were based on kinship. This can be contrasted with capitalism, where money buys labor, and with feudalism, where the serf provides labor in order to have access to a portion of land which belongs to the landlord. Having been produced on land that was family property and through family labor, the resultant crops and other goods were distributed on the basis of kinship ties. If a man's crops were destroyed by some sudden calamity, relatives in his own village helped him. If the whole community was in distress— People moved to live with their kinsmen in another area where food was not scarce. In Akan country, Ghana, the clan system was highly organized, so that a man from Rong could visit Fonte many hundred miles away and receive food and hospitality from a complete stranger who happened to be of his own clan. Numerous examples could be brought forward to show the dominance of the family principle in the communal phase of African development. It affected the two principal factors of production— land, and labor, as well as the system of distributing goods. European anthropologists who have studied African societies have done so mainly from a very prejudiced and racist position, but their researchers can nevertheless provide abundant facts relating to family homesteads and compounds, to the extended family, including a final members who join by association rather than by birth, and to lineages and clans, which carried the principles of kinship alliances over large areas.
However, while the exact details might have differed, similar social institutions were to be found among the Gauls of 11th century France, among the Viet of Indochina at the same date, and virtually everywhere else in the world at one time or another, because communalism is one phase through which all human society passed. In all African societies during the early epoch, the individual at every stage of life had a series of duties and obligations to others in the society, as well as a set of rights, namely things that he or she could expect or demand from other individuals. Age was a most important factor determining the extent of rights and obligations. The oldest members of the society were highly respected and usually in authority, and the idea of seniority through age was reflected in the presence of age grades and age sets in a great many African societies. Circumcision meant initiation into the society and into adulthood. From that moment, a man was placed with others in his own age group, and a woman likewise. Usually, there were at least three age grades, corresponding roughly to the young, the middle-aged, and the old. In large parts of Europe, when communalism broke down, it gave way to widespread slavery as the new form in which labor was mobilized. This slavery continued throughout the European Middle Ages, with the Crusades between Christians and Muslims giving an added excuse for enslaving people. Slavery, in turn, gave way to serfdom, whereby the laborer was tied to the land and could no longer be sold and transported. Because it took many years for the transition from slavery to feudalism to take place in Europe, it was common to find that feudal society still retained numbers of slaves. Parts of China, Burma, and India also had considerable numbers of slaves as the society moved away from elementary communalism, but there was never any time span when slavery was the dominant mode of production in Asia. In Africa, there were few slaves, and there was certainly no epoch of slavery. Most of the slaves were in North African and other Muslim societies, and in those instances a man and his family could have the same slave status for generations within the overall feudal structure of the society. Elsewhere in Africa, communal societies were introduced to the concept of owning alien human beings when they took captives in war. At first, those captives were in a very disadvantaged position, comparable to that of slaves, but very rapidly, captives or their offspring became ordinary members of the society, because there was no scope for the perpetual exploitation of a man by man in a context that was neither feudal nor capitalist. Both Marxists and non-Marxists alike, with different motivations, have pointed out that the sequence of modes of production noted in Europe were not reproduced in Africa. In Africa, after the communal stage, there was no epoch of slavery arising out of the internal evolution, nor was there a mode of production which was the replica of European feudalism. Marx himself recognized that the stages of development in Asia had produced a form of society which could not easily be fitted into a European slot. That he called the Asian mode of production. Following along those lines, a number of Marxists have recently been discussing whether Africa was in the same category as Asia, or whether Africa had its own African mode of production. The implications of the arguments are very progressive, because they are concerned with the concrete conditions of Africa, rather than with preconceptions brought from Europe. But the scholars concerned seem to be bent on finding a single term to cover a variety of social formations which were existing in Africa from about the 5th century A.D., to the coming of colonialism. 
The assumption that will underlie this study is that most African societies before 1500 were in a transitional stage between the practice of agriculture, plus fishing and herding, in family communities, and the practice of the same activities within states and societies comparable to feudalism. In a sense, all history is transition from one stage to another, but some historical situations along the line have more clearly distinguishable characteristics than others. Thus, under communalism, there were no classes, and there was equal access to land, and equality in distribution, at a low level of technology and production. Feudalism involved great inequality in distribution of land and social products. The landlord class and its bureaucracy controlled the state, and used it as an instrument for oppressing peasants, serfs, slaves, and even craftsmen and merchants. The movement from communalism to feudalism in every continent took several centuries, and in some instances, the interruption of internal evolution never allowed the process to mature. In Africa, there is no doubt that the societies which eventually reached feudalism were extremely few. So long as the feudal state was still in the making, elements that were communal coexisted with elements that were feudal, and with some peculiarities due to African conditions. The transition was also characterized by a variety of social formations. There were pastoralists and cultivators, fishing societies and trading societies, raiders and nomads. They were all being progressively drawn into a relationship with the land, with each other, and with the state, through the expansion of productive forces and the network of distribution. In feudal societies, there were clashes between the landlord and peasant masses, and later on, between the landlord and merchant classes. Under capitalism, the principal class, contradiction inside Europe, was between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. Those hostile class relations provided the motive force within the respective societies. African communal societies had differences, such as age grades, and differences between ordinary members and religious leaders, such as rainmakers. However, those were not exploitative or antagonistic relations. The concept of class as a motive force in social development had not yet come about, and in the communal phase, one must look at the fundamental forces of production to understand the process of change. Using a number of methods and concepts, it is possible to reconstruct the most likely manner in which isolated family living was broken down and production increased. For instance, the rise of age grades can be seen as responding to the need for greater solidarity, because age grades included and cut across many families. Similarly, communal labor was entered into by cross-sections of the community to make work more efficient. The Dogpoe work group of Dahomey mentioned had a wider application in serving the whole community to perform such heavy tasks as clearing land and house-building. With the offer of some food and beer or palm wine, a work team or work bee, could be mobilized in a short time in most African communities, including those of the light-skinned Berbers of North Africa. Of course, while the organization of labor might have helped to produce more, the principal change in the productive forces was that which comprised new techniques, using the word in its broadest sense to include both tools and skills in dealing with the environment mid new plant and animal species. The first prerequisite for mastery of the environment is knowledge of that environment. By the 15th century, Africans everywhere had arrived at a considerable understanding of the total ecology, of the soils, climate, animals, plants, and the multiple interrelationships. The practical application of this lay in the need to trap animals, to build houses, to make utensils, 
to find medicines, and above all, to devise systems of agriculture. In the centuries before the contact with Europeans, the overwhelmingly dominant activity in Africa was agriculture. In all the settled agricultural communities, people observed the peculiarities of their own environment and tried to find techniques for dealing with it in a rational manner. Advanced methods were used in some areas, such as terracing, crop rotation, green manuring, mixed farming, and regulated swamp farming. The single most important technological change underlying African agriculture development was the introduction of iron tools, notably the axe and the hoe, replacing wooden and stone tools. It was on the basis of the iron tools that new skills were elaborated in agriculture as well as in other spheres of economic activity. The coming of iron, the rise of cereal growing, and the making of pottery were all closely related phenomena. In most parts of Africa, it was in the period after the birth of Christ that those things came about. The rate of change over a few centuries was quite impressive. Millet and rice had been domesticated from wild grasses, just as yams were made to evolve from selected wild roots. Most African societies raised the cultivation of their own particular staple to a fine art. Even the widespread resort to shifting cultivation with burning and light hoeing was not as childish as the first European colonists supposed. That simple form of agriculture was based on a correct evaluation of the soil potential, which was not as great as initially appears from the heavy vegetation. And when the colonists started upsetting the thin top soil, the result was disastrous. The remarks show that when an outsider comes into a new ecological system, even if he is more skilled, he does not necessarily function as effectively as those who have familiarized themselves with the environment over centuries, and the newcomer is likely to look more ridiculous if he is too arrogant to realize that he has something to learn from the natives. However, it is not being suggested that African agriculture in the early period was superior to that of other continents. On the contrary, African standards of husbandry on the land and with livestock were not as high as those independently evolved in most parts of Asia and Europe. The weakness in Africa seems to have been the lack of a professional interest in acquiring more scientific knowledge and in devising tools to lighten the load of labor, as well as to transform hostile environments into areas suitable for human activity. As far as agriculture and Europe was concerned, this professionalism was undertaken by the class with a vested interest in the land namely the feudalist landowners and later the capitalist farmers. It has previously been stated that development is very much determined by the social relations of production, that is, those which have to do with people's functions in producing wealth. Where a few people owned the land and the majority were tenants, this injustice at a particular stage of history allowed the few to concentrate on improving their land. In contrast, under communalism, Every African was assured of sufficient land to meet his own needs by virtue of being a member of a family or community. For that reason, and because land was relatively abundant, there were few social pressures or incentives for technical changes to increase productivity. In Asia, where much of the land was communally owned, there were tremendous advances in some types of farming, especially irrigated farming. This was because the state in India, China, Ceylon, and other places intervened and engaged in irrigation and other hydraulic works on a large scale. This was also true of North Africa, which in most respects followed a pattern of evolution similar to that of Asia. The African land tenure pattern was closer to that of Asia than to that of Europe, 
but even the most politically developed African states did not play the role of initiators and supervisors of agricultural development. One reason may have been the lack of population pressure, and hence the scattered nature of settlements. Another may have been state concentration on trading non-agricultural products to the exclusion of other things. Certainly, when African societies became linked up with other social systems outside the continent on the basis of trade, little attention was paid to agriculture. When it comes to the question of manufacturing in Africa before the time of the white man, it is also essential to recognize where achievements have been underestimated. African manufacturers have been contemptuously treated or overlooked by European writers because the modern conception of the word brings to mind factories and machines. However, manufactures means literally things made by hand, and African manufacture in this sense had advanced appreciably. Most African societies fulfilled their own needs for a wide range of articles of domestic use, as well as for farming tools and weapons. One way of judging the level of economic development in Africa five centuries ago is through the quality of the products. Here, a few examples would be given of articles which came to the notice of the outside world. Through North Africa, Europeans became familiar with a superior brand of red leather from Africa, which was termed Moroccan leather. In fact, it was tanned and dyed by Hausa and Mandinga specialists in northern Nigeria and Mali. When direct contact was established between Europeans and Africans on the east and west coasts, many more impressive items were displayed. As soon as the Portuguese reached the old kingdom of Congo, they sent back word on the superb local cloths made from bark and palm fiber, and having a finish comparable to velvet. The Baganda were also expert bark cloth makers. Yet Africa had even better to offer in the form of cotton cloth, which was widely manufactured before the coming of the Europeans. Well into the present century, local cottons from the Guinea coast were stronger than Manchester cottons. Once European products reached Africa, Africans too were in a position to make comparisons between their commodities and those from the outside. In Katanga and Zambia, the local copper continued to be preferred to the imported items, while the same held true for iron in a place like Sierra Leone. It was at the level of scale that African manufacturers had not made a breakthrough. That is to say, the cotton looms were small, the iron smelters were small, the pottery was turned slowly by hand and not on a wheel. Yet some changes were taking place in this context. Under communalism, each household met its own needs by making its own clothes, pots, mats, and such. That was true of every continent. However, economic expansion from there on was associated with specialization and localization of industry, people's needs being met by exchange. This trend was displayed in the principal African manufacturers, and notably in the cloth industry. Cotton fiber had to be ginned, separated from the seed, then carded, and spun into yarn, before being woven. Either the yarn or the woven cloth had to be dyed, and the making of the dye itself was a complex process. There was a time when all these stages would be performed by a single family, or rather by the women in a single family, as in Yoruba land. But economic development was reflected in the separation of dyeing from cloth-making, and the separation of spinning from weaving. Each separation marked greater specialization and quantitative and qualitative changes in output. European industry has been intensively studied, and it is generally recognized that in addition to new machinery, a most decisive factor in the growth of industry was the changeover from domestic production to the factory system, 
with the Guild marking an intermediary stage. The Guild was an association of specialists, passing on their skills by training apprentices and working in buildings set aside for that purpose. Africa, too, had elements of the Guild system. At Timbuktu, there were tailoring guilds, while in Benin, guilds of a very restricted caste type controlled the famous brass and bronze industry. In Nupay, now northern Nigeria, the glass and head industry operated on a guild basis. Each Nupay guild had a common workshop and a master. The master obtained contracts, financed the guild, and disposed of the product. Both his own relatives as well as strangers were free to enter the guild and learn the various specialized tasks within the glass industry. What this amounted to was simply that there was increasing specialization and division of labor. Traditional African economies are usually called subsistence economies. Often small villages farmed, hunted, fished, and looked after themselves independently with little reference to the rest of the continent. Yet at the same time, the vast majority of African communities fulfilled at least a few of their needs by trade. Africa was a continent of innumerable trade routes, some extended for long distances, like the routes across the Sahara, or the routes connected with Katanga Copper. But in the main, it was trade between neighboring or not-too-far-distant societies. Such trade was always a function of production. Various communities were producing surpluses of given commodities which could be exchanged for items which they lacked. In that way, the salt industry of one locality would be stimulated while the iron industry would be encouraged in another. In a coastal, lake, or river area, dried fish would become profitable, while yams and millet would be grown in abundance elsewhere to provide a basis for exchange. The trade so readily distinguishable in every part of the continent between the 10th and 15th centuries was an excellent indicator of economic expansion and other forms of development which accompanied increasing mastery over the environment. As part of the extension of trade, it was noticeable that barter was given way to some forms of money exchange. Barter was generally practiced when the volume of trade was small and when only a few commodities were involved. However, as trade became more complicated, some items began to be used as the standards for measuring other goods. Those items could be kept as a form of wealth, easily transformed into other commodities when the need arose. For example, salt, cloth, iron hose, and cowrie shells were popular forms of money in Africa, apart from gold and copper, which were much rarer and therefore restricted to measuring things of great value. In a few places such as North Africa, Ethiopia, and the Congo, the monetary systems were quite sophisticated, indicating that the economy was far removed from simple barter and subsistence. There are many other changes of a socio-political nature accompanying the expansion of the productive forces. Indeed, things such as agricultural practices, industry, trade, money, and political structures were inseparable, each interacting with the others. The most developed areas of Africa were those where all the elements converged and the two socio-political factors which were the outstanding indices to development were the increase of stratification and the consolidation of states. The principles of family and deferment to age were slowly breaking down throughout the centuries preceding the arrival of Europeans and their sailing ships. Changes in technology and in the division of labor made that inevitable. The introduction of iron, for example, gave economic and military strength to those who could make and acquire it. Better tools meant more food and a greater population. 
but the latter tended to outrun the supplies of material goods, and the possibilities of wealth opened up by the possession of iron were seized upon by a few to their own advantage. Skilled workers in iron, cloth, pottery, leather, or salt-making tended to pass on their skills in closed groups known as castes. That ensured that the division of labor operated in their favor because their position was privileged and strategic. Iron workers were particularly favored in some African societies in which they either became the ruling groups or were very close to the top of the social hierarchy. The division of labor also carried over into non-material spheres, producing professional minstrels and historians. They, too, had certain special rights and privileges, notably the ability to criticize freely without fear of reprisal. In some circumstances, skilled castes were reduced to very low status. But that was rare, and in any case, it does not contradict the general assertion that the tendency was for communalism to give rise to more and more stratification. Social stratification was the basis for the rise of classes and for social antagonisms. To some extent, this was a logical follow-up of the previous non-antagonistic differences in communal society. For instance, old men could use their control over land allocation, over bride price, and over other traditional exchanges to try to establish themselves as a privileged economic stratum. Secret societies arose in the area that is now Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Guinea, and they permitted knowledge, power, and wealth to pass into the hands of the elders and ultimately to the elders of particular lineages. The contradiction between young men and their elders was not the type that caused violent revolution. But young men clearly had reasons for resenting their dependence on elders, especially when it came to such vital personal matters as the acquisition of wives. When disgruntled, they could either leave their communities and set up for themselves, or they could challenge the principles within the society. In either case, the trend was that some individuals and families were more successful than others, and those families established themselves as permanent rulers. Then age ceased to matter as much, because even a junior could succeed his father once the notion of royal blood or royal lineage was established. In the period of transition, while African society retained many features that were undisputably communal, it also accepted the principle that some families or clans or lineages were destined to rule and others were not. This was true not only of cultivators, but of pastoralists as well. In fact, livestock became unevenly distributed much more readily than land, and those families with the largest herds became socially and politically dominant. An even more important aspect of the process of social stratification was that brought about by contact between different social formations. Fishermen had to relate to cultivators, and the latter to pastoralists. There were even social formations, such as bands of hunters and food gatherers, who had not yet entered the phase of communal cooperation. Often the relationship was peaceful. In many parts of the African continent, there arose what is known as symbiosis between groups earning their living in different ways, which really means that they agreed to exchange goods and coexist to their mutual advantage. However, there was also room for considerable conflict, and when one group imposed itself by force on another, the result was invariably the rise of social classes with the conquerors on top and the conquered at the bottom. The most common clashes between different social formations were those between pastoralists and cultivators. In some instances, the cultivators had the upper hand, as for instance in West Africa, where cultivators like the Mandinga and Hausa 
were the overlords of the Rulani cattlemen right up to the 18th and 19th centuries. The reverse situation was found in the Horn of Africa and most of East Africa. Another type of clash was that in which raiding peoples took power over agriculturalists, as happened in Angola and in and around the Sahara, where the Moors and Tuareg exacted tribute from and even enslaved more peaceful and sedentary peoples. The result in each case was that a relatively small faction held control of the land and, where relevant, cattle, mines, and long-distance trade. It meant also that the minority group could make demands of the labor of their subjects, not on the basis of kinship, but because a relationship of domination and subordination existed. In truly communal societies, the leadership was based on religion and family ties. The senior members of the society shared the work with others and received more or less the same share of the total product. Certainly, no one starved while others stuffed themselves and threw away the excess. However, once African societies began to expand by internal evolution, conquest, or trade, the style of life of the ruling group became noticeably different. They consumed the most and the best that the society offered, yet they were least directly involved in the production of wealth by farming, cattle herding, or fishing. The ruling class, and the kings in particular, had the right to call upon the labor of the common man for certain projects and for a given number of days per year. This is known as corvée labor, from a similar procedure followed in feudal France. Such a system meant greater exploitation and at the same time greater development of productive resources. Social stratification, as outlined a moment ago, went hand in hand with the rise of the state. The notion of royal lineages and commoner clans could not have any meaning except in a political state with a concrete geographical existence. It is significant that the great dynasties of the world ruled over feudal states. To the European or European-trained ear, the names of the Tudors, Bourbons, Hohenzollerns, and Romanovs would already be familiar. Japan had its Kamakuras and its Tokugawas. China had its Tang and its Ming. India had its Guptas and its Marathas, and so on. All of these were feudal dynasties existing in a period some centuries after the birth of Christ, but in addition, there were dynasties which ruled in each of those countries before feudal land tenure and class relations had fully crystallized. It means that the transition to feudalism in Europe and Asia saw the rise of ruling groups and the state as interdependent parts of the same process. In that respect, Africa was no different. From a political perspective, the period of transition from communalism to feudalism in Africa was one of state formation. At the beginning, and for many centuries, the state remained weak and immature. It acquired definite territorial boundaries, but inside those boundaries, subjects lived in their own communities with scarcely any contact with the ruling class until the time came to pay an annual tax or tribute. Only when a group within the state refused to pay the tribute did the early African states mobilize their repressive machinery in the form of an army to demand what is considered as its rights from subjects. Slowly, various states acquired greater power over their many communities of citizens. They exacted corvée labor, they enlisted soldiers, and they appointed regular tax collectors and local administrators. The areas of Africa in which labor relations were breaking out of communal restrictions corresponded to areas in which sophisticated political states were emerging. The rise of states was itself a form of development which increased the scale of African politics and merged small ethnic groups into wider identities suggestive of nations. 
In some ways, too much importance is attached to the growth of political states. It was in Europe that the nation-state reached an advanced stage, and Europeans tended to use the presence or absence of well-organized polities as a measure of civilization. That is not entirely justified, because in Africa there were small political units which had relatively advanced material and non-material cultures. For instance, neither the Igbo people of Nigeria nor the Kikuyu of Kenya ever produced large centralized governments in their traditional setting. But both had sophisticated systems of political rule based on clans, and in the case of the Igbo, on religious oracles and secret societies. Both of them were efficient agriculturalists and iron workers, and the Igbo had been manufacturing brass and bronze items ever since the ninth century A.D., if not earlier. However, it can be conceded that on the whole, the larger states in Africa had the most effective political structures and greater capacity for producing food. Clothing, minerals, and other material artifacts. It can readily be understood that those societies which had ruling classes were concerned with acquiring luxury and prestige items. The privileged groups in control of the state were keen to stimulate manufactures as well as to acquire them through trade. They were the ones that mobilized labor to produce a greater surplus above subsistence needs, and in the process, they encouraged specialization and the division of labor. Scholars often distinguish between groups in Africa which had states and those which were stateless. Sometimes the word "stateless" is carelessly or even abusively used, but it does describe those peoples who had no machinery of government coercion and no concept of political unit wider than the family or the village. After all, if there is no class stratification in a society, it follows that there is no state. Because the state arose as an instrument to be used by a particular class to control the rest of society in its own interests. Generally speaking, one can consider the stateless societies as among the older forms of socio-political organization in Africa, while the large states represented an evolution away from communalism, sometimes to the point of feudalism. Again, it must be emphasized that a survey of the scene in Africa before the coming of Europeans would reveal considerable unevenness of development. There were social formations representing hunting hands, communalism, feudalism, and many positions intermediate between the last two. The remainder of this section will be devoted to a review of the principal features of several of the most developed societies and states of Africa in the last thousand years or so before Africa came into permanent contact with Europe. The areas to be considered are Egypt, Ethiopia, Nubia, Morocco, the Western Sudan, the interlacustrine zone of East Africa, and Zimbabwe. Each serves as an example of what development meant in early Africa and what the direction of social movement was. To a greater or lesser extent, each was also a leading force on the continent in the sense of carrying neighbors along the same path, either by absorbing them or influencing them more indirectly. Some concrete examples: Egypt. It is logical to start with Egypt as the oldest culture in Africa, which rose to eminence. The glories of Egypt under the pharaohs are well known and do not need recounting. At one time, it used to be said or assumed that ancient Egypt was not African—a curious view which is no longer seriously propounded. However, for the present purposes, it is more relevant to refer to Egypt under Arab and Turkish rule from the seventh century onwards. During that latter period, the ruling class was foreign, 
and that meant that Egypt's internal development was tied up with other countries, notably Arabia and Turkey. Colonized Egypt sent abroad great amounts of wealth in the form of food and revenue, and that was a very negative factor. But the tendency was for the ruling foreigners to break with their own imperial masters and to act simply as a ruling elite within Egypt, which became an independent feudal state. One of the first features of feudalism to arrive in Egypt was the military aspect. The Arab, Turk, and Circassian invaders were all militarily inclined. This was particularly true of the Mamluks, who held power from the 13th century onwards. Political power in Egypt from the 7th century lay in the hands of a military oligarchy, which delegated the actual government to bureaucrats, thereby creating a situation similar to that in places like China and Indochina. Even more fundamental was the fact that land-tenure relations were undergoing change in such a way that a true feudal class came on the scene. All the conquerors made land grants to their followers and military captains. Initially, the land in Egypt was the property of the state, to be rented out to cultivators. The state then had the right to reappropriate the land and allocate it once more, somewhat like the head of a village community acting as the guardian of the lands of related families. However, the ruling military elements also became a new class of landowners. By the 15th century, most of the land in Egypt was the property of the sultan and his military lords. If there was a small class which monopolized most of the land, it followed that there was a large class of the landless. Peasant cultivators were soon converted into mere agricultural laborers, tied to the soil as tenants or vassals of the feudal landlords. These peasants, with little or no land, were known as the fellahin. In Europe, there are legends about the exploitation and suffering of the Russian serfs, or mujik under feudalism. In Egypt, the exploitation of the fellahin was carried out even more thoroughly. The feudalists had no interest in the fellahin beyond seeing that they produced revenue. Most of what the peasants produced was taken from them in the form of tax, and the tax collectors were asked to perform the miracle of taking from the peasants even that which they did not have. When their demands were not met, the peasants were brutalized. The antagonistic nature of the contradiction between the feudal warrior landlords and the fellahin were revealed by a number of peasant revolts, notably in the early part of the 8th century. In no continent was feudalism an epic of romance for the laboring classes, but the elements of development were seen in the technology and the increase of productive capacity. Under the patronage of the Fatimid dynasty, science flourished and industry reached a new level in Egypt. Windmills and water wheels were introduced from Persia in the 10th century. New industries were introduced, paper making, sugar refining, porcelain, and the distillation of gasoline. The older industries of textiles, leather, and metal were improved upon. The succeeding dynasties of the Ayyubids and the Mamluks also achieved a great deal, especially in the building of canals, dams, bridges, and aqueducts, and in stimulating commerce with Europe. Egypt at that time was still able to teach Europe many things, and was flexible enough to receive new techniques in return. Although feudalism was based on the land, it usually developed towns at the expense of the countryside. The high points of Egyptian feudal culture were associated with the towns. The Fatimids founded Cairo, which became one of the most famous and most cultured cities in the world. At the same time, they established the Azhar University, which exists today as one of the oldest in the world. The feudalists and the rich merchants were the ones who benefited most, but the craftsmen and other city dwellers of Cairo and Alexandria were able to participate to some extent in the leisured lives of the towns.
Ethiopia. Ethiopia, too, at the start of its history as a great power, was ruled over by foreigners. The kingdom of Aksum was one of the most important of the nuclei around which feudal Ethiopia eventually emerged, and Aksum was founded near the Red Sea coast by a dynasty of Sabaean origin from the other side of the Red Sea. But the kings of Aksum were never agents of foreign powers, and they became completely Africanized. The founding of Aksum goes back to the first century A.D., and its ruling class was Christianized within a few centuries. After that, they moved inland and participated in the development of the Christian feudal Ethiopian state. The Ethiopian, Tigrian, and Amharic ruling class was a proud one, tracing its descent to Solomon. As a state which incorporated several other smaller states and kingdoms, it was an empire in the same sense as feudal Austria or Prussia. The emperor of Ethiopia was addressed as conquering lion of the tribe of Judah. Elect of God, Emperor of Ethiopia, King of Kings. In practice, however, the Solomonic line was not unbroken. Most of the consolidation of the inland Ethiopian plateau was carried out in the 12th century by an intruding dynasty, the Zagwe, who made claims to descent from Moses. The Zagwe kings distinguished themselves by building several churches cut out of solid rock. The architectural achievements attest to the level of skill reached by Ethiopians, as well as the capacity of the state to mobilize labor on a huge scale. Such tasks could not have been achieved by voluntary family labor, but only through the labor of an exploited class. A great deal is known of the superstructure of the Ethiopian Empire, especially its Christianity and its literate culture. History was written to glorify the king and the nobility, especially under the restored Solomonic dynasty, which replaced the Zagwe in 1270 A.D. Fine illuminated books and manuscripts became a prominent element of Amharic culture. Equally fine garments and jewelry were produced for the ruling class and for the church. The top ecclesiastics were part of the nobility, and the institution of the monastery grew to great proportions in Ethiopia. The association of organized religion with the state was implicit in communal societies, where the distinction between politics, economics, religion, medicine was scarcely drawn. Under feudalism everywhere, church and state were in close alliance. The Buddhists were preeminent in feudal Vietnam, Burma, Japan, and to a lesser extent in China. In India, a limited Buddhist influence was overwhelmed by that of the Hindus and Muslims, and, of course, in feudal Europe, it was the Catholic Church which played the role paralleled by the Orthodox Church in Ethiopia. The wealth of Ethiopia rested on an agricultural base. The fertile uplands supported cereal growing, and there was considerable livestock raising, including the rearing of horses. Craft skills were developed in a number of spheres, and foreign craftsmen were encouraged. For instance, early in the 15th century, Turkish artisans settled in the country and made coats of mail and weapons for the Ethiopian army. Coptics from Egypt were also introduced to help run the financial administration. No one denies that the word feudal can be applied to Ethiopia in those centuries because there existed a clear-cut class contradiction between the landlords and the peasants. Those relations grew out of the communalism that had characterized Ethiopia, like other parts of Africa, much earlier. Feudal Ethiopia included lands that were communally owned by village and ethnic communities, as well as lands belonging directly to the crown. But in addition, large territories were conferred by the conquering Amharic dynasties on members of the royal family and on soldiers and priests. Those who received huge areas of land became Ross, 
or provincial princes, and they had judges appointed by the emperor attached to them. The peasants in their domain were reduced to tenants who could earn their living only by offering produce to the landlord and taxes to the state, also in produce. The landlords exempted themselves from tax, a typical situation in feudal societies, and one which fed the fires of revolution in Europe when the bourgeois class grew powerful enough to challenge the fact that the feudalists were using political power to tax everyone but themselves. Ethiopia, of course, never reached that stage of transition to capitalism. What is clear is that the transition to feudalism had been made. Nubia Nubia was another Christian region in Africa, but one which is not so famous as Ethiopia. In the 6th century AD, Christianity was introduced in the Middle Nile, in the districts once ruled by the famous state of Cush or Meroe. In the period before the birth of Christ, Cush was a rival to Egypt in splendor, and it ruled Egypt for a number of years. Its decline in the 4th century AD was completed by attacks from the then-expanding Axum. The three small Nubian states, which arose sometime afterwards, were to some extent the heirs of Cush, although after their conversion to Christianity, it was this religion which dominated Nubian culture. The Nubian states, which had consolidated to two by about the 8th century, achieved most from the 9th to the 11th centuries, in spite of great pressures from Arab and Islamic enemies, and they did not finally succumb until the 14th century. Scholarly interest in Nubia has focused on the ruins of large red-brick churches and monasteries, which had murals and frescoes of fine quality. Several conclusions can be drawn from the material evidence. In the first place, a great deal of labor was required to build those churches, along with the stone fortifications which often surrounded them. As with the pyramids of Egypt or the feudal castles of Europe, the common builders were intensely exploited and probably coerced. Secondly, skilled labor was involved in the making of the bricks and in the architecture. The paintings indicate that the skills surpassed mere manual dexterity, and the same artistic merit is noticeable in fragments of painted pottery recovered from Nubia. It has already been indicated that the churches and monasteries played a major role in Ethiopia, and this is worth elaborating on with respect to Nubia. The monastery was a major unit of production. Numerous peasant huts were clustered around each monastery, which functioned very much as it did the manner of a feudal lord. The wealth that accumulated inside the churches was alienated from the peasants, while the finest aspects of the non-material culture, such as books, were accessible only to a small minority. Not only were the peasants illiterate, but in many cases they were non-Christians, or only nominally Christian, judging from the better-known Ethiopian example of the same date. When the Christian ruling class of Nubia was eliminated by the Muslims, very little of the achievements of the old state remained in the fabric of the people's daily lives. Such reversals in the historical process are not uncommon throughout human experience. Ultimately, the dialectic of development asserts itself, but some ebbing and flowing is inevitable. The Nubian states were not in existence in the 15th century, but they constitute a legitimate example of the potentialities of African development. One can go further and discern that Kush was still contributing to African development long after the kingdom had declined and given way to Christian Nubia, it is clear that Kush was a center from which many positive cultural elements diffused to the rest of Africa. Brasswork of striking similarity to that of Meroe was reproduced in West Africa, and the technique by which West Africans cast their brass is generally held to have originated in Egypt and to have passed on by way of Kush. 
Above all, Kush was one of the earliest and most vigorous centers of iron mining and smelting in Africa, and it was certainly one of the sources from which this crucial aspect of technology passed to the rest of the continent. That is why the Middle Nile was a leading force in the social, economic, and political development of Africa as a whole. The Maghreb Islam was the great revealed religion which played the major role in the period of the feudal development of the Maghreb. The lands at the western extremity of the Islamic empires that stretched across Africa, Asia, and Europe within years of the Prophet Muhammad's death in the 7th century of the Christian era. The Arab empire building under the banner of Islam is a classic example of the role of religion in that respect. Ibn Khaldun, a great 14th century North African historian, was of the opinion that Islam was the most important force allowing the Arabs to transcend the narrow boundaries of small family communities which were constantly struggling among each other. He wrote, Arab pride, touchiness, and intense jealousy of power render it impossible for them to agree. Only when their nature has been permeated by a religious impulse are they transformed, so that the tendency to anarchy is replaced by a spirit of mutual defense. Consider the moment when religion dominated their policy and led them to observe a religious law designed to promote the moral and material interests of civilization. Under a series of successors to the Prophet Muhammad, how vast their empire became, and how strongly was it established. The remarks by Ibn Khaldun cover only one aspect of Arab imperial expansion, but it was certainly a crucial one, and attested to the essential role of ideology in the developmental process. That has to be considered in relation to and in addition to the material circumstances. Furthermore, in judging the material conditions at any given time which might form the basis for further expansion of production and further growth of the society's power, it is also necessary to consider the historical legacy. Like Islamic Egypt and Christian Nubia, the Maghreb of the Islamic dynasties inherited a rich historical and cultural tradition. It was the seat of the famous society of Carthage, which nourished between 1200 B.C. and 200 B.C., and which was a blend of foreign influences from the eastern Mediterranean with the Berber peoples of the Maghreb. The region had subsequently been an important section of the Roman and Byzantine empires, and before becoming Muslim, the Maghreb had actually distinguished itself as a center of nonconformist Christianity, which went under the name of Donatism. The striking achievements of Muslim Maghreb were spread over the naval, military, commercial, and cultural spheres. Its navies controlled the western Mediterranean, and its armies took over most of Portugal and Spain. When the Muslim advance into Europe was turned back in the year 732 A.D., North African armies were already deep into France. In the 11th century, the armies of the Almoravid dynasty gathered strength from deep within Senegal and Mauritania, and launched themselves across the Strait of Gibraltar to reinforce Islam in Spain, which was being threatened by Christian kings. For over a century, the Almoravid rule in North Africa and Iberia was characterized by commercial wealth and a resplendent literary and architectural record. After being ejected from Spain in the 1230s, the Maghreb Muslims, or Moors as they were called, continued to maintain a dynamic society on African soil. As one index to the standard of social life, it has been pointed out that public baths were common at the sites of Maghreb at a time when, in Oxford, the doctrine was still being propounded that the washing of the body was a dangerous act. 
One of the most instructive aspects of the history of the Maghreb is the interaction of social formations to produce the state. A major problem that had to be resolved was that of integrating the isolated Berber groups into larger political communities. There were also contradictions between sedentary groups and nomadic pastoral sectors of the populations. The Berbers were mainly pastoralists, organized in patriarchal clans and in groups of clans, and in groups of clans connected by democratic council of all adult males. Grazing land was under communal ownership, and maintaining irrigation was also a collective responsibility for the agriculturalists. Yet cooperation within kin groups contrasted with hostility between those who had no immediate blood ties, and it was only in the face of the Arab invaders that the Berbers united, using a nonconformist Karajite Islam as their ideology. The Karajite revolt of 739 A.D. is considered in one sense as being nationalistic, and in another sense, a revolt of the exploited classes against the Arab military, bureaucratic and theocratic elite, who professed the orthodox Sunni Islam. That revolt of the Berber masses laid the basis for Moroccan nationalism, and three centuries later, the Almohad dynasty brought political unity to the whole of Maghreb as a product of the synthesis of Berber and Arab achievements in the sphere of state-building. Unfortunately, the Maghreb nation did not last, and instead the region was bequeathed the nuclei of three nation-states, Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia. Within each of the three areas, divisive tendencies were very strong in the 14th and 15th centuries. For instance, in Tunisia, the ruling Hafsid dynasty was constantly involved in crushing local rebellions and defending the integrity of the state. It has been noted already that the political state in Africa and elsewhere was a consequence of development of the productive forces, but the state in turn also conditioned the rate at which the economy advanced, because the two were dialectically interrelated. Therefore, the failure of the Maghreb to build a nation-state, and the difficulties of consolidating state power even within the three divisions of Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia, were factors holding back the further development of the region. Further, political division weakened the Maghreb vis-a-vis -vis foreign enemies, and Europe was soon to take advantage of those internal weaknesses by launching attacks from the year 1415 onwards. The experience of the Maghreb can be drawn upon to illustrate the lengthy nature of transition from the one mode of production to another, and the fact that two different ways of organizing society could coexist side by side over centuries. Throughout the period under discussion, a great deal of land in that part of Africa retained its communal ownership and family labor. Meanwhile, considerable socioeconomic stratification had taken place and antagonistic classes had emerged. At the very bottom of the ladder were the slaves, or Haratine, who were most often black Africans from south of the Sahara. Then came the Akahame, or landless peasants, who worked the proprietor's land and gave the latter four-fifths of whatever was produced. Special mention should be made of the position of women, who were not a class by themselves, but who suffered from deprivations at the hands of their own menfolk and of the male-controlled ruling class. Therefore, the women in the Akame class were in a very depressed condition. At the top of the society were the big landowners, who wielded political power along with other devotees of the Muslim religion. None of the African societies discussed so far can be said to have thrown up capitalist forms to the point where the accumulation of capital became the principal motive force. However, they all had flourishing commercial sectors. 
moneylenders, and strong handicraft industries, which were the features which ultimately gave birth to modern capitalism through evolution and revolution. The Maghreb merchants were quite wealthy. They gained from the energies of the cultivators, cattlemen, and shepherds. They indirectly or directly mobilized the labor in the mines of copper, lead, antimony, and iron. And they appropriated surplus from the skills of the craftsmen making textiles, carpets, leather, pottery, and articles of brass and iron. The merchants were a class of accumulators, and their dynamism made itself felt not only in the Maghreb, but also in the Sahara and across the Sahara and West Africa. In that way, the development of the Maghreb acted as a factor in the development of what was called the Western Sudan. The Western Sudan To the Arabs, the whole of Africa south of the Sahara was the Bilad as-Sudan, the land of the blacks. The name survives today only in the Republic of Sudan on the Nile, but references to the Western Sudan in early times concerned the zone presently occupied by Senegal, Mali, Upper Volta, and Niger, plus parts of Mauritania, Guinea, and Nigeria. The Western Sudanic empires of Ghana, Mali, and Songhai have become bywords in the struggle to illustrate the achievements of the African past. That is the area to which African nationalists and progressive whites point when they want to prove that Africans, too, were capable of political, administrative, and military greatness in the epoch before the white men. However, a people's demands at any given time change the kinds of questions to which historians are expected to provide answers. Today, the masses of Africa seek development and total emancipation. The issues that need resolution with regards to Western Sudanic history are those which illumine the principles underlying the impressive development of certain states in the heart of Africa. The origins of the empire of Ghana go back to the 5th century A.D., but it reached its peak between the 9th and 11th centuries. Mali had its prime in the 13th and 14th centuries, and Songhai in the two subsequent centuries. The three were not in exactly the same location, and the ethnic origin of the three ruling classes was different, but they should be regarded as successor states, following essentially the same line of evolution and growth. They have been called trading states so often that it is almost forgotten that the principal activity of the population was agriculture. It was a zone in which several species of millet were domesticated, along with a species of rice, several other food plants, and at least one type of cotton. It was a zone which saw the relatively early introduction of iron in the millennium before the birth of Christ, and iron tools exercised their attendant benefits on agriculture. The open savanna country of the western Sudan also favored livestock. Some groups such as the Falani were exclusively pastoralist, but livestock was to be found in varying degrees throughout the huge region. Cattle were the most significant domesticated animals, followed by goats. The rearing of horses, mules, and donkeys was also carried on, which was made possible by wide tsetse-free areas. To add further variety, the great Niger River allowed for the rise of specialist fishermen. Population, the indispensable factor of production, could only have reached the density which it did because of increasing food supplies, while handicraft industry and trade sprang primarily from the products of agriculture. Cotton cultivation led to the making of cotton cloth with such a variety of specialization that there was internal trade in particular cotton cloths, such as the unbleached fabric of Futujalan and the blue cloth of Genie. Pastoralism provided a variety of products for manufacture, 
notably cattle hides and goatskins, which went into the making of sandals, leather jackets for military use, leather pouches for amulets, and so on. Horses served as a means of transport to the ruling class and made a major contribution to warfare and the size of the state. For the purpose of interbreeding, some horses were imported from North Africa, where the Arab bloodstock was of the finest quality. For pack transport, the donkey was, of course, better fitted. And the Mosi kingdom of Upper Volta, for a long time, specialized in breeding those pack animals, which were associated with long-distance trade within the vast region. On the edge of the Sahara, the camel took over, another technological asset introduced from the north. Mining was a sphere in which production was important. Some of the royal clans in the western Sudan, such as that of the Kante, were specialist blacksmiths. In a period of expansion by warfare, the control over iron supplies and over iron working skills was obviously decisive. Besides, the two most important articles of long-distance trade were salt and gold, both obtained principally by mining. Neither the salt supplies nor the gold supplies were originally within the domains of Ghana but it took steps to integrate them either by trade or by territorial expansion. Ghana struck north into the Sahara, and towards the very end of the 10th century it captured the town of Odegast from the Berbers, a town useful for the control of the incoming salt mined in the middle of the desert. Similarly, Mali and Songhai sought to secure control of Tagaza, which was the largest single center of salt mining. Songhai took the prize of Tagaza from the desert Berbers and held it for many years in the face of opposition from Morocco. Another crucial but seldom stressed element in the pattern of production was the ownership of copper mines in the Sahara by both Mali and Songhai. To the south of Ghana lay the important sources of gold on the upper Senegal and its tributary the Falimi. It is said that Ghana obtained its gold by silent or dumb barter, which was described as follows. The merchants beat great drums to summon the local natives, who were naked and lived in hole in the ground. From these holes, which were doubtless the pits from which they dug the gold, they refused to emerge in the presence of the foreign merchants. The latter, therefore, used to arrange their trade goods in piles on the river bank and retire out of sight. The local natives then came and placed a heap of gold beside each pile and withdrew. If the merchants were satisfied, they took the gold and retreated beating their drums to signify that the market was over. The writer of those lines, E. W. Beauville, a supposed European authority on the western Sudan, then goes on to say that silent trade, or dumb barter, was a feature of the western Sudan's gold trade throughout all the centuries until modern times. Actually, the only thing dumb about the trade is what he writes about it. The story of dumb barter for gold in West Africa is repeated in several accounts, starting with ancient Greek scripts. It is clearly a rough approximation of the first attempts at exchange of a people coming into contact with strangers, and it was not a permanent procedure. During the rule of Ghana, the people of the two principal goldfields of Bambuk and Bore were drawn into regular trade relations with the western Sudan. Ghana probably, and Mali certainly, exercised political rule over the two regions, where the mining and distribution of gold became a very complicated process. During the centuries of Mali's greatness, extensive mining of gold began in the forest of modern Ghana to supply the trans-Saharan gold trade. The existing social systems expanded, and strong states emerged to deal with the sale of gold. The merchants who came from the great cities of the western Sudan had to buy the gold by weight, using a small, accurate measurement known as the binda. 
when the Portuguese arrived at the river Gambia and got a glimpse at how gold was traded on the upper reaches of the river, they marveled at the dexterity shown by the Mandinga merchants. The latter carried very finely balanced scales, inlaid with silver, and suspended from cords of twisted silk. The gold dust and nuggets were weighted with brass weights. The expertise of the Mandinga in measuring gold and in other forms of commerce was largely due to the fact that within that ethnic group there was a core of professional traders, commonly referred to as the doulas. They were not very wealthy, but were distinguished by their willingness to travel thousands of miles from one end of the western Sudan to another. They also reached the coast, or very near to the coast of Gambia, Sierra Leone, Liberia, Ivory Coast, and Ghana. The doulas handled a long list of African products, salt from the Atlantic coast and the Sahara, cola nuts from the forests of Liberia and Ivory Coast, gold from Akan country in modern Ghana, leather from Hausaland, dried fish from the coast, cotton cloth from many districts, and especially from the central area of the western Sudan, iron from Futajalan in modern Guinea, shea butter from the upper Gambia, and a host of other local articles. In addition, the trade of the western Sudan involved the circulation of goods originating in North Africa, notably fabrics from Egypt and the Maghreb, and coral beads from Suta on the Mediterranean coast. Therefore, the pattern of western Sudanic and trans-Saharan commerce was integrating the resources of a wide area stretching from the Mediterranean to the Atlantic Ocean. Long-distance trade across the Sahara had special characteristics. Some scholars have spoken of the camel as the ship of the Sahara, and the towns which the camel caravans entered on either side of the desert were called ports. In practice, the trans-Saharan trade was as great an achievement as crossing an ocean. Much more than local trade, it stimulated the famous cities of the region, such as Walata, Timbuktu, Gao, and Jine, and it brought in the literate Islamic culture. Long-distance trade strengthened state power, which meant in effect the power of the lineages who transformed themselves into a permanent aristocracy. However, it is a gross oversimplification of cause and effect to say that it was the trans-Saharan trade which built the Western Sudanic empires. Ghana, Mali, and Songhai grew out of their environment and out of the efforts of their own populations, and it was only after they had achieved a certain status that their ruling classes could express an interest in long-distance trade and could provide the security to permit that trade to flourish. It is significant that the Western Sudan never provided any significant capital for the trans-Saharan trade. The capital came from the merchants of Fez, Tlemcen, and other cities of the Maghreb, and they sent their agents to reside in the Western Sudan. To some extent, it was a colonial relationship, because the exchange was unequal in North Africa's favor. However, the gold trade was at least capable of stimulating the development of the productive forces within West Africa, while the accompanying trade in slaves had no such benefits. Ghana, Mali, and Songhai all exported small numbers of slaves, and the empire of Kanem-Bornu gave slave exports a much higher priority because it controlled no gold supplies. Kanem-Bornu used its power to raid for captives to the south as far as Adamawa in modern Cameroon. The negative implications of such policies were to be fully brought out in later centuries when the steady trickle of slaves from a few parts of West Africa across the Sahara was joined by the massive flow of the continent's peoples towards destinations named by Europeans. Though falling considerably short of the feudal stage, 
state formation was more advanced in the western Sudan than in most other parts of Africa in the period 500 A.D. to 1500 A.D. Apart from Ghana, Mali, Songhai, and Kanembornu, there were outstanding kingdoms in Hausaland, in Mosi, in Senegal, and the Fotogelon Mountains of Guinea, and in the basin of the Benue tributary of the River Niger. The Western Sudanic techniques of political organization and administration spread out to many neighboring regions and influenced the rise of innumerable small states scattered throughout the coastal region from the River Senegal to the Cameroon Mountains. Some specific Sudanic features were discernible in many kingdoms, notably the position of the Queen Mother in the political structure. The strengths and weaknesses of the Western Sudanic states attest to the point which they had reached on the long road away from communalism with respect to social relations and to the level of production. The state held together several clashing social formations and ethnic groups. In the case of Cain and Bornu, pastoralists and cultivators were even able to integrate the camel nomads of the desert. Elsewhere, the Tureg nomads were kept at bay, so that cultivators and other sedentary peoples could live their lives in peace. Men, domestic beasts, and goods were free to move for thousands of miles in security. However, the state had not yet broken down the barriers between different social formations. The state existed as an institution which collected tribute from the various communities and restrained them from clashing. In periods of weakness, the superstructure of the state almost disappeared and left free scope for divisive political and social tendencies. Each successive great state was a further experiment to deal with the problem of unity sometimes on a conscious level and more often as an unconscious byproduct of the struggle for survival. Under feudalism, the ruling class and the state for the first time tore away the social institutions which prevented the first embryo states from exercising direct action on each subject. That is to say, feudalism brought about a series of direct obligatory ties between the landed rulers and the landless subjects. In the western Sudan, that clear-cut class division had not come into existence. By the time of Mali's preeminence in the 13th and 14th centuries, a small amount of local slavery had come into existence, and by the end of the 15th century, there were both chattel slaves and domestic slaves comparable to feudal serfs. For instance, in Senegal, the Portuguese traders found that there were elements in the population who worked most days for their masters and a few days per month for themselves a budding feudalist tendency. Nevertheless, most of the population still had ample access to land through their kin, and in political terms, that meant that the authority of the ruling class was exercised over heads of families and clans, rather than over each subject. Although communal egalitarianism was on its way out, communal relations still persisted and had, by the 15th century, become a break on the development of the Western Sudan. Such surplus as was being produced by the society over and above subsistence needs came out of tribute from the collective communities, rather than directly from the producer to the exploiting class. That gave an incentive for maintaining the old social structures, although they were incapable of increasing labor mobilization and specialization to a much greater degree. It was unlikely that there would be a violent social revolution. Under those circumstances, major advances of technology were required to spark off further changes. The degree of economic integration had to be enhanced by greater productivity in various areas, allowing for more trade, more specialization in the division of labor, 
and the possibility of surplus accumulation. But wheeled vehicles and the plow sloped in North Africa, and so too did large-scale irrigation. Indeed, through the critical absence of large-scale irrigation, the productive base in the western Sudan actually decreased, for the Sahara was advancing. Ghana had stood on fertile agricultural land, but both Mali and Songhai had their centers farther south, because the former northern terrain of Ghana was claimed by the Sahara through desiccation. Techniques necessary for the control of this hostile environment and for the increase of agricultural and manufacturing capacity had either to evolve locally or to be brought in from outside. In the next phase of African history, after the coming of the white men, both of those alternatives were virtually ruled out in West Africa. The Interlacustrine Zone The high level of social evolution in the Western Sudan has been the cause of lengthy debates as to whether the region had achieved feudalism of the European variety, or whether it should be classed together with the great Asian empires, or whether it created a new and unique category of its own. On the eastern side of the continent, development in the same period was definitely slower. For one thing, the people of East Africa acquired iron tools at a much later date than their brothers in the north and west. And secondly, the range of their technology and skills was narrower. However, by the 14th century, state formulation was well underway, and the principles of development revealed in the process are worth considering. An area of special interest is that of the Great Lakes of Africa, and particularly the zone around the group of lakes, which the British thought fit to rename in honor of various members of the British ruling family, Victoria, Albert, Edward, George. In that interlacustrine zone, several famous states eventually emerged, one of the earliest and largest being that of Bunyoro Kitara. Bunyoro Kitara comprised in whole or in part of the regions which today are called Bunyoro, Ankole, Toro, Karagwe, and Buganda, all of which fall in Uganda, except Karagwe, which is in Tanzania. Historical traditions have been orally preserved by these various peoples, who at one time fell within the boundaries of Bunyoro Kitara, and the traditions concentrate on the ruling dynasty, which is known as the Bakwezi. The Bakwezi were supposedly an emigrant pastoralist group. They introduced long-horned humped cattle, which later became the major species in the interlacustrine zone. Possession of these cattle undoubtedly aided them to becoming a ruling aristocracy in the 14th and 15th centuries. They became a social stratum above the clans which previously existed, and which had narrow territorial bases. The period of Bakwezi preeminence is also associated with iron-making, the manufacture of bark cloth, the technique of sinking well shafts through rocks, and most striking of all, the construction of extensive earthwork systems, used apparently both for defense and for enclosing large herds of cattle. The largest of the earthworks was at Bigo, with ditches extending over six and a half miles. The division of labor between pastoralists and cultivators, and the nature of their contacts, intensified the process of caste formation and class stratification in the interlacustrine area. The pastoralists, Bahima, had imposed their rule over the cultivators, or Bairu. Social classes grew out of a situation of changing labor relations. The earthworks of Bigo and elsewhere were not built by voluntary family labor, and some form of coercion must also have been used to get the cultivators to produce a surplus for their new lords, 
For instance, the Bagwezi are said to have established a system by which young men were conscripted into the king's service and were maintained by Bairu, who occupied and cultivated land assigned for the support of the army. They also introduced slave artisans and administrators. When administrative officials were appointed at a local level to rule on behalf of the aristocrats, that was a first step towards setting up feudal fiefs, as in Ethiopia. For while the question of land grants had not yet entered the picture, it must be borne in mind that inequality in the distribution of cattle meant in fact unequal access to the means of production. Much uncertainty surrounds the precise identification of the Bakwezi. It is possible that they were not immigrants. Nevertheless, it is generally held that they were light-complexioned pastoralists coming from the north. Assuming that this was so, it is essential to stress that whatever was achieved in the interlocustrian region in the 14th and 15th centuries was a product of the evolution of African society as a whole, and not a transplant from outside. In order to place those East African events within the context of universal human achievement, a parallel can be drawn with India. Centuries before the birth of Christ, northern India was also the recipient of light-complexioned pastoral immigrants, known as Aryans. There was a time when everything in Indian culture was attributed to the Aryans. But then careful scrutiny revealed that the bases of Indian society and culture had been laid by earlier population, known as the Dravidians. Therefore it is now considered far more sensible to see the achievements of North India as a product of synthesis or combination of Aryan and Dravidian. Similarly, in East Africa, one needs to seek the elements of synthesis between the new and the old, and that, in effect, was the path of development in the interlocustrian zone in the 14th and 15th centuries. As has just been noted, the Bakwezi are associated with techniques such as ironworking and bark cloth manufacture. It is not at all clearly established that they introduced such techniques for the first time, and it is much more probable that they presided over the elaboration of such skills. Certainly, iron-using societies were known in East Africa several centuries before the Bakwezi period, and in Goruka, just south of the present Kenya-Tanzania border, there are to be found the ruins of a small but impressive Iron Age society, which flourished sometime before the end of the first millennium A.D. In Goruka was a concentrated agricultural settlement engaging in terracing, irrigation, and the construction of walls by the technique known as dry stone building, whereby no time was required to hold the stones together. In the interlocustrian area itself, there had emerged a banana-based agriculture, which was capable of supporting a large sedentary population. That was the sort of precondition for moving from communal isolation to statehood. It is significant that orally preserved traditions imply the existence of kingdoms in Bonyoro and Caragüe before the Bakwezi. State formation was already in an embryo stage when the outsiders arrived, and the likelihood is that they did not remain outsiders for long. Unlike the Aryans in India, the Bakwezi did not even impose their own language, but adopted the Bantu speech of the local inhabitants. That reflects the dominance of local rather than foreign elements in the synthesis. In any event, the cultural product was African and was part of the pattern of development through localized evolution, combined with the interplay of social formations on a continent-wide scale. Among the contributions supposedly made by the Bakwezi to the interlocustrian kingdoms was the introduction of religion, based on the phases of the moon, 
In all of the situations examined so far, religion played a significant role in promoting the building of the state, leading away from the simple organization of the family community. Christianity and Islam have been most frequently associated with large-scale building both inside and outside of Africa. That is to be explained not so much by the actual religious beliefs, but because membership in a powerful universal church gave the ruling class of a young state many advantages. A Christian or Muslim prince had access to a literate culture and a wider world. He dealt with traders and craftsmen professing that religion. He used administrators and churchmen who were literate, and he could travel to parts of the world such as Mecca. Above all, the universal religions replaced traditional African ancestral religions in Ethiopia, Sudan, Egypt, the Maghreb, and progressively in the Western Sudan, because Christianity and Islam were not rooted in any given family community, and therefore could be used to mobilize the many communities that were merging into the state. However, religious beliefs which have been accepted by a single clan or ethnic group could be elevated in the same form or a slightly altered form to become the religion of the whole state. This was the situation in the interlocustrine zone, and indeed in most other parts of Africa outside the regions already described. Zimbabwe In Zimbabwe, one of the great constructions in brick, dated around the 14th century, is commonly referred to as a temple, and is felt to have served religious purposes. Even from the scanty evidence, it is clear that the religious aspect of social development was of the greatest importance in serving to cement ties between individuals and that emergent African society. For instance, the ruling class in the 15th century empire of Mutapa in Zimbabwe were pastoralists, and their religious ritual included objects that were symbolic of cattle, as was found in the interlocustrine kingdoms such as Bonyuro and Karagwe. One can guess that the rituals also symbolized the dominance of the cattle owners, just as they also paid respect to pre-existing ideas or the cultivators in order to effect a stable synthesis. The details of the picture are not available in the present stage of knowledge, but what is required is that any discussion of African religion must seek to present it in a mobile evolutionary manner and to relate it to changing socio-economic forms and institutions. That task being beyond the confines of the present study, it is proposed to examine Zimbabwe as yet another region where the productive base and the political superstructure can be ascertained to have developed appreciably in the last few centuries before Africa was drawn into contact with Europe. Within the southernmost section of the continent, the area in which striking achievements were registered by the 15th century was that between the rivers Zambezi and Limpopo covering the territories that were later to be called Mozambique and Rhodesia. Iron-using and state-building peoples were active there from early in the first millennium A.D., and eventually there emerged in the 15th century the empire which Europeans called Monomutapa. The term Zimbabwe is being used here to designate the Zambezi-Limpopo cultures in the few centuries preceding the European arrival, because it was from the 11th to the 14th century that there flourished the societies whose most characteristic feature was the building of large stone palaces known collectively as Zimbabwe. Much has been written about the buildings which distinguish the Zimbabwe culture. They are a direct response to the environment of granite rocks being built upon granite hills and of flaked granite. The most famous site of surviving stone ruins is that of Great Zimbabwe, 
north of the river Asabi. One of the principal structures of Great Zimbabwe was some 300 feet long and 220 feet broad, with the walls being 30 feet high and 20 feet thick. The technique of laying the bricks one on the other without time to act as a cement was the same style noted in the description of Ngaruka in northern Tanzania. It was in fact a peculiar aspect of material culture in Africa, being widely found in Ethiopia and the Sudan. The style of the encircling brick walls at Great Zimbabwe and other sites was also characteristically African in that it was an elaboration of the mud enclosures, or crawls, of many Bantu-speaking people. One European archaeologist is reported to have said that there was as much labor expended in Zimbabwe as on the pyramids in Egypt. That is surely an overstatement, for the pyramids were raised through the incredible amount of slave labor, which could not possibly have been at the disposal of the rulers in Zimbabwe. However, it is definitely necessary to reflect on the amount of labor which would have been required to construct the buildings within the Zimbabwe region up until the 15th century. The workers may well have been from particular ethnic groups who were subjugated by other ethnic groups, but in the process of subjugation, they were acquiring the character of a social class whose labor was being exploited. Nor was it sheer manual labor. Skill, creativity, and artistry went into the construction of the walls, especially with regard to the decorations, the inner recesses, and the doors. When Cecil Rhodes sent in his agents to rob and steal in Zimbabwe, they and other Europeans marveled at the surviving ruins of the Zimbabwe culture, and automatically assumed that it had been built by white people. Even today, there is still a tendency to consider the achievements with a sense of wonder, rather than with the calm acceptance that it was a perfectly logical outgrowth of human social development within Africa, as part of the universal process by which man's labor opened up new horizons. The sense of reality can only be restored by making it clear that the architecture rested on a foundation of advanced agriculture and mining which had come into existence over centuries of evolution. Zimbabwe was a zone of mixed farming, with cattle being very important, since the area is free from tsetse flies. Irrigation and terracing reached considerable proportions. There was no single darn or aqueduct comparable to those in Asia or ancient Rome, but countless small streams were diverted and made to flow around hills, in a manner that indicated an awareness of the scientific principles governing the motion of water. In effect, the people of Zimbabwe had produced hydrologists through their understanding of the material environment. On the mining side, it is equally striking that the African peoples in the zone in question had produced prospectors and geologists who had a clear idea of where to look for gold and copper in the subsoil. When the European colonists arrived in the 19th century, they found that virtually all the gold-bearing and copper-bearing strata had been mined previously by Africans, though, of course, not on the same scale as Europeans were to achieve with drilling equipment. Among the Zimbabwe people, there also arose craftsmen who worked the gold into ornaments with tremendous skill and lightness of touch. The presence of gold in particular was a stimulus to external trade, and in turn it was external demand which did most to accelerate mining. In the first millennium A.D., there was a gold-using aristocracy at Ngombe Here, just north of the Zambezi. Presumably they got their supplies from gold mines farther south. 
However, gold is required in large quantities only in a society which produces a very large economic surplus and can afford to transform part of that surplus into gold for prestige purposes, as in India, or into coinage and money to promote capitalism, as in Western Europe. The pre-feudal African societies did not have such a surplus, nor the social relations which made it necessary for gold to circulate a great deal internally. Hence it was the presence of Arab traders, as far south as Sofala, in the Mozambique Channel, which spurred Zimbabwe to mine more gold for export just about the same time in the 11th century when stone building was beginning. The implication is that a number of factors coincided, namely the intensification of class stratification, of state consolidation, of production and building techniques, and of trade. Several different ethnic groups contributed to the Zimbabwean society. The earliest populations of the region were the Bushmen, and Khoisan type of hunters who today are found only in small numbers in southern Africa. They were incorporated into the physical stock of newcomers from farther north, speaking Bantu languages, and in fact, they made their contribution to the Bantu languages of the area. Among the Bantu speakers, there were also several different groups coming into their own at different times. The material evidence which has been revealed by archaeologists shows various pottery styles, contrasting burial positions, and different bone structures among skeletons. Other material artifacts show that over the centuries, many societies occupied the region of Zimbabwe. Much of the interpenetration of one group by another was done peacefully, although at the same time, the very existence of the fortified hilltops and stone defenses shows that the largest states were engaged in military struggles for survival and preeminence. Furthermore, some ethnic groups must have been permanently relegated to inferior status, so as to provide the labor for agriculture, building, and mining. Other clans specialized in pastoralism, warfare, and the control of religious apparatus such as divination and rainmaking. It is believed that the inhabitants of Zimbabwe in the 11th to the 14th centuries were Sutu-speaking, but by the time the Portuguese arrived, a Shona-speaking dynasty had taken control of most of the region. That was the Roswe clan, which set up the state of Mutapa between the Zambezi and the Limpopo. The ruler was known as the Moene Mutapa, which apparently meant the great lord of Mutapa, to his own followers, but was held to mean the great pillager by peoples whom he conquered and wielded together into a single empire. The first individual to hold the title Mweni Mutapa ruled from about 1415 to 1450, but the dynasty had already been growing prominent before that date. The capital was at first sited at Great Zimbabwe, and later moved north. What was important was that the Mweni Mutapa appointed governors to rule over various localities outside the capital in a manner comparable to that of the Western Sudanic empires or the interlocustrian Bakwesi states. The Roswe lords of Mutapa did most to encourage production for export trade, notably in gold, ivory, and copper. Arab merchants came to reside in the kingdom, and the Zimbabwe region became involved in the network of Indian Ocean commerce, which linked them with India, Indonesia, and China. One of the principal achievements of the Roswe lords of Mutapa was to organize a single system of production and trade. They exacted tribute from the various communities in their kingdoms, which was both a sign of sovereignty and a form of trade, because the movement of goods was stimulated, 
There is no doubt that the foreign trade strengthened the Mutapa state, but above all, it strengthened the ruling strata which had a monopoly over that aspect of economic activity. In comparison with other African elites at that time, the Razwi of Zimbabwe still had a long way to go. They were not in the same category as the Amharic nobility of Ethiopia, or the Arab Berber feudal lords of the Maghreb. They did imbibe a few influences from outside, but they did not travel, as did the rulers of Mali and Songhai, who made the pilgrimage to Mecca. Their dress was still mainly animal skins, and such cloths as they utilized were recent imports from the Arab traders rather than the product of the evolution of their own skills in that field. In that respect, Zimbabwe also trailed behind other early African states such as Oyo and Yorubaland, Benin in the same area, and the 14th century empire of Congo, which Europeans referred to as the greatest state in West Africa at the time of their arrival. It has been considered necessary for the purposes of illustration to consider some, though by no means all, of the outstanding areas of development in Africa before the coming of the Europeans. Nor should it be forgotten that there were innumerable village communities emerging to become states that were small in size, but were sometimes sharply stratified internally and displayed an impressive level of material advance. Those described should be sufficient to establish that. Africa in the 15th century was not just a jumble of different tribes. There was a pattern, and there was historical movement. Societies such as feudal Ethiopia and Egypt were at the furthest point of the process of evolutionary development. Zimbabwe and the Bakwezi states were also clearly on the ascendant way from communalism, but at a lower level than the feudal states, and a few others that were not yet feudal, such as those in the western Sudan. Conclusion in introducing the concept of development, attention was drawn to the fact that the slow, imperceptible expansion in social productive capacity ultimately amounted to a qualitative difference, with the arrival at the new stage sometimes being announced by social violence. It can be said that most African societies had not reached a new stage that was markedly different from communalism, and hence the use in this study of the cautious term transitional. It can also be noted that nowhere had there been any internal social revolutions. The latter have taken place in European and world history only where class consciousness led to the massive intervention of people's wills within the otherwise involuntary socio-economic process. Such observations helped to situate African development up to the 15th century at a level that was below mature class-ridden feudalism. It should also be reiterated that slavery as a mode of production was not present in any African society, although some slaves were to be found where the decomposition of communal equality had gone furthest. This is an outstanding feature illustrating the autonomy of the African path within the broader framework of universal advance. One of the paradoxes in studying this early period of African history is that it cannot be fully comprehended without first deepening our knowledge of the world at large, and yet the true picture of the complexities of the development of man and society can only be drawn after intensive study of the long-neglected African continent. There is no escaping the use of comparisons as an age to clarity, and indeed the parallels have been narrowly restricted to Europe even though they could also be provided by examples from Asian history. Therein lies the cultural imperialism which makes it easier for the European-educated African to recall names like the French Capetians and the Prussian Hohenzollerns, 
rather than the Vietnamese dynasties of Id and Tran, for the latter are either unknown to him, or would be considered unimportant if known, or might even be judged too difficult to pronounce. Several historians of Africa have pointed out that after surveying the developed areas of the continent in the 15th century, and those within Europe at the same date, the difference between the two was in no way to Africa's discredit. Indeed, the first Europeans to reach West and East Africa by sea were the ones who indicated that in most respects, African development was comparable to that which they knew. To take but one example, when the Dutch visited the city of Benin, they described it thus. The town seems to be very great. When you enter it, you go into a great broad street, not paved, which seems to be seven or eight times broader than the Wormo Street in Amsterdam. The king's palace is a collection of buildings which occupy as much space as the town of Harlem, and which is enclosed with walls. There are numerous apartments for the prince's ministers, and fine galleries, most of which are as big as those on the exchange at Amsterdam. There are supported by wooden pillars, encased with copper, where their victories are depicted, and which are carefully kept very clean. The town is composed of thirty main streets, very straight, and one hundred and twenty feet wide, apart from an infinity of small intersecting streets. The houses are close to one another, arranged in good order. These people are in no way inferior to the Dutch as regards cleanliness. They wash and scrub their houses so well that they are polished and shining like a looking-glass. Yet it would be self-delusion to imagine that all things were exactly equal in Benin and in Holland. European society was already more aggressive, more expansionist, and more dynamic in producing new forms. The dynamism within Europe was contained within the merchant and manufacturing class. In the galleries of the exchange at Amsterdam sat Dutch burghers, the ancestors of the modern bourgeoisie of industry and finance. This class of 15th century Europe was able to push the feudal landowners forward or aside. They began to discard conservatism and to create the intellectual climate in which change was seen as desirable. A spirit of innovation arose in technology, and transformation of the mode of production was quickened. When Europe and Africa established close relations through trade, there was therefore already a slight edge in Europe's favor, an edge representing the difference between a fledgling capitalist society and one that was still emerging from communalism. Chapter 3 Africa's Contribution to European Capitalist Development The Pre-Colonial Period British trade is a magnificent superstructure of American commerce and naval power on an African foundation. Maliki Postlethwaite The African Trade The Great Pillar and Support of the British Plantation Trade in North America 1745 if you were to lose each year more than two hundred million liveries that you now get from your colonies, if you had not the exclusive trade with your colonies to feed your manufacturers, to maintain your navy, to keep your agriculture going, to repay for your imports, to provide for your luxury needs, to advantageously balance your trade with Europe and Asia, then I say it clearly, the kingdom would be irretrievably lost. Bishop Maury of France. 
argument against France's ending the slave trade and giving freedom to its slave colonies, presented in the French National Assembly, 1791. How Europe became the dominant section of a worldwide trade system. Because of the superficiality of many of the approaches to underdevelopment, and because of resulting misconceptions, it is necessary to re-emphasize that development and underdevelopment are not only comparative terms, but that they also have a dialectical relationship one to the other. That is to say, the two help produce each other by interaction. Western Europe and Africa had a relationship which ensured the transfer of wealth from Africa to Europe. The transfer was possible only after trade became truly international, and that takes one back to the late 15th century, when Africa and Europe were drawn into common relations for the first time, along with Asia and the Americas. The developed and underdeveloped parts of the present capitalist section of the world have been in continuous contact for four and a half centuries. The contention here is that over that period, Africa helped to develop Western Europe in the same proportion as Western Europe helped to underdevelop Africa. The first significant thing about the internationalization of trade in the 15th century was that Europeans took the initiative and went to other parts of the world. No Chinese boats reached Europe, and if any African canoes reached the Americas, as is sometimes maintained, they did not establish two-way links. What was called international trade was nothing but the extension overseas of European interests. The strategy behind international trade and the production that supported it was firmly in European hands, and specifically in the hands of the sea-going nations from the North Sea to the Mediterranean. They owned and directed the great majority of the world's sea-going vessels, and they controlled the financing of the trade between four continents. Africans had little clue as to the tricontinental links between Africa, Europe, and the Americas. Europe had a monopoly of knowledge about the international exchange system understood as a whole, for Western Europe was the only sector capable of viewing the system as a whole. Europeans used the superiority of their ships and cannon to gain control of all the world's waterways, starting with the Western Mediterranean and the Atlantic coast of North Africa. From 1415, when the Portuguese captured Ceuta, near Gibraltar, they maintained the offensive against the Maghreb. Within the next sixty years, they seized ports such as Arzila, El Qasar es Seguir, and Tangier, and fortified them. By the second half of the fifteenth century, the Portuguese controlled the Atlantic coast of Morocco and used its economic and strategic advantages to prepare for further navigations, which eventually carried their ships round the Cape of Hope in 1495. After reaching the Indian Ocean, the Portuguese sought with some success to replace Arabs as the merchants who tied East Africa to India and the rest of Asia. In the 17th and 18th centuries, the Portuguese carried most of the East African ivory, which was marketed in India, while Indian cloth and heads were sold in East and West Africa by the Portuguese, Dutch, English, and French. The same applied to cowrie shells from the East Indies. Therefore, by control of the seas, Europe took the first steps towards transforming the several parts of Africa and Asia into economic satellites. When the Portuguese and the Spanish were still in command of a major sector of world trade in the first half of the 17th century, they engaged in buying cotton cloth in India to exchange for slaves in Africa to mine gold in Central and South America. 
Part of the gold in the Americas would then be used to purchase spices and silks from the Far East. The concept of metropole and dependency automatically came into existence when parts of Africa were caught up in the web of international commerce. On the one hand, there were the European countries who decided on the role to be played by the African economy, and on the other hand, Africa formed an extension to the European capitalist market. As far as foreign trade was concerned, Africa was dependent on what Europeans were prepared to buy and sell. Europe exported to Africa goods which were already being produced and used in Europe itself: Dutch linen, Spanish iron, English pewter, Portuguese wines. French brandy, Venetian glassheads, German muskets. Europeans were also able to unload on the African continent goods which had become unsaleable in Europe. Thus, items like old sheets, cast-off uniforms, technologically outdated firearms, and lots of odds and ends found guaranteed markets in Africa. Africans slowly became aware of the possibility of demanding and obtaining better imported goods. And pressure was exerted on the captains of European ships, but the overall range of trade goods which left the European ports of Hamburg, Copenhagen, and Liverpool was determined almost exclusively by the pattern of production and consumption within Europe. From the beginning, Europe assumed the power to make decisions within the international trading system. An excellent illustration of that is the fact that the so-called international law, which governed the conduct of nations on the high seas, was nothing else but European law. Africans did not participate in its making, and in many instances, African people were simply the victims, for the law recognized them only as transportable merchandise. If the African slave was thrown overboard at sea, the only legal problem that arose was whether or not the slave ship. Could claim compensation from the insurers. Above all, European decision-making power was exercised in selecting what Africa should export in accordance with European needs. The ships of the Portuguese gave the search for gold the highest priority, partly on the basis of well-known information that West African gold reached Europe across the Sahara, and partly on the basis of guesswork. The Portuguese were successful in obtaining gold in parts of West Africa and in Eastern Central Africa. And it was the Gold Coast which attracted the greatest attention from Europeans in the 16th and 17th centuries. The number of forts built there was proof to that effect, and the nations involved included the Scandinavians and the Prussians, Germans, apart from other colonial stalwarts like the British, Dutch, and Portuguese. Europeans were anxious to acquire gold in Africa because there was a pressing need for gold coin within the growing capitalist money economy. Since gold was limited to very small areas of Africa, as far as Europeans were then aware, the principal export was human beings. Only in a very few places at given times was the export of another commodity of equal or greater importance. For instance, in Senegal there was gum, in Sierra Leone, camwood, and in Mozambique, ivory. However, even after taking those things into account, one can say that Europe allocated to Africa the role of supplier of human captives to be used as slaves in various parts of the world. When Europeans reached the Americas, they recognized its enormous potential in gold and silver and tropical produce, but that potential could not be made a reality without adequate labor supplies. The indigenous Indian population could not withstand new European diseases such as smallpox. 
nor could they bear the organized toil of slave plantations and slave mines, having barely emerged from the hunting stage. That is why in islands like Cuba and Hispaniola, the local Indian population was virtually wiped out by the white invaders. At the same time, Europe itself had a very small population and could not afford to release the labor required to tap the wealth of the Americas. Therefore, they turned to the nearest continent, Africa, which incidentally had a population accustomed to settled agriculture and disciplined labor in many spheres. Those were the objective conditions lying behind the start of the European slave trade, and those are the reasons why the capitalist class in Europe used their control of international trade to ensure that Africa specialized in exporting captives. Obviously, if Europe could tell Africans what to export, that was an expression of European power. However, it would be a mistake to believe that it was an overwhelming military power. Europeans found it impossible to conquer Africans during the early centuries of trade, except in isolated spots on the coast. European power resided in their system of production, which was at a somewhat higher level than Africa's at the time. European society was leaving feudalism and was moving towards capitalism. African society was then entering a phase comparable to feudalism. The fact that Europe was the first part of the world to move from feudalism towards capitalism gave Europeans a head start over humanity elsewhere in the scientific understanding of the universe, the making of tools, and the efficient organization of labor. European technical superiority did not apply to all aspects of production, but the advantage which they possessed in a few key areas proved decisive. For example, African canoes on the River Nile and the Senegal coast were of a high standard, but the relevant sphere of operations was the ocean, where European ships could take command. West Africans had developed metal casting to a fine artistic perfection in many parts of Nigeria, but when it came to the meeting with Europe, beautiful bronzes were far less relevant than the crudest cannon. African wooden utensils were sometimes works of great beauty, but Europe produced pots and pans that had many practical advantages. Literacy, organizational experience, and the capacity to produce on an ever-expanding scale also counted in the European favor. European manufacturers in the early years of trade with Africa were often of poor quality, but they were of new varieties and were found attractive. Esteban Montejo, an African who ran away from a Cuban slave plantation in the 19th century, recalled that his people were enticed into slavery by the color red. He said, it was the scarlet which did for the Africans. Both the kings and the rest surrendered without a struggle. When the kings saw that the whites were taking out these scarlet handkerchiefs as if they were waving, they told the blacks, Go on, then. Go and get a scarlet handkerchief. And the blacks were so excited by the scarlet, they ran down to the ships like sheep, and there they were captured. That version by one of the victims of slavery is very poetic. What it means is that some African rulers found European goods sufficiently desirable to hand over captives which they had taken in warfare. Soon, war began to be fought between one community and another for the sole purpose of getting prisoners for sale to Europeans, and even inside a given community, a ruler might be tempted to exploit his own subjects and capture them for sale. A chain reaction was started by European demand for slaves, and only slaves, and by their offer of consumer goods, this process being connected with divisions within African society. 
It is often said for the colonial period that vertical political divisions in Africa made conquest easy. This is even truer on the way that Africa succumbed to the slave trade. National unification was a product of mature feudalism and of capitalism. Inside Europe, there were far fewer political divisions than in Africa, where communalism meant political fragmentation, with the family as the nucleus, and there were only a few states that had real territorial solidity. Furthermore, when one European nation challenged another to obtain captives from an African ruler, Europe benefited from whichever of the two nations won the conflict. Any European trader could arrive on the coast of West Africa and exploit the political differences which he found there. For example, in the small territory that the Portuguese later claimed as Guinea-Bissau, there were more than a dozen ethnic groups. It was so easy to set one off against another that Europeans called it a slave trader's paradise. Although class divisions were not pronounced in African society, they too contributed to the ease with which Europe imposed itself commercially on large parts of the African continent. The rulers had a certain status and authority, and when bamboozled by European goods, they began to use that position to raid outside their societies as well as to exploit internally by victimizing some of their own subjects. In the simplest of societies where there were no kings, it proved impossible for Europeans to strike up the alliance which was necessary to carry on a trade in captives on the coast. In those societies with ruling groups, the association with Europeans was easily established, and afterwards Europe hardened the existing internal class divisions and created new ones. In effect, particular aspects of African society became weaknesses when Europeans arrived as representatives of a different phase of development, and yet the subjugation of the African economy through slave trade was a slow process at the outset, and in some instances African opposition or disinterest had to be overcome. In the Congo, the slave trade did not get underway without grave doubts and opposition from the king of the state of Congo at the beginning of the 16th century. He asked for masons, priests, clerks, physicians, but instead he was overwhelmed by slave ships sent from Portugal, and a vicious trade was opened up by playing off one part of the Congo kingdom against another. The king of the Congo had conceived the possibilities of mutually beneficial interchange between his people and the European state, but the latter forced him to specialize in the export of human cargo. It is also interesting to note that while the Oba, king of Benin, was willing to sell a few female captives, it took a great deal of persuasion and pressure from Europeans to get him to sell male African prisoners of war, who would otherwise have been brought into the ranks of Benin society. Once trade and slaves had been started in any given part of Africa, it soon became clear that it was beyond the capacity of any single African state to change the situation. In Angola, the Portuguese employed an unusual number of their own troops and tried to seize political power from Africans. The Angolan state of Matamba, on the river Kawango, was founded around 1630 as a direct reaction against the Portuguese, with Queen Nzinga at its head. Matamba tried to coordinate resistance against the Portuguese in Angola. However, Portugal gained the upper hand in 1648, and this left Matamba isolated. Matamba could not forever stand aside. So long as it opposed trade with the Portuguese, it was an object of hostility from neighboring African states, which had compromised with Europeans and slave trading. So, in 1656, Queen Nzinga resumed business with the Portuguese 
a major concession to the decision-making role of Europeans within the Angolan economy. Another example of African resistance during the course of the slave trade comes from the Baga people in what is now the Republic of Guinea. The Baga lived in small states, and in about 1720, one of their leaders, Tomba by name, aimed at securing an alliance to stop the slave traffic. He was defeated by local European resident traders, mulattoes, and other slave-trading Africans. It is not difficult to understand why Europeans should have taken immediate steps to see that Tomba and his Baga followers did not opt out of the role allocated to them by Europe. A parallel which presents itself is the manner in which Europeans got together to wage the Opium War against China in the 19th century to ensure that Western capitalists would make profit while the Chinese were turned into dope addicts. Of course, it is only as a last resort that the capitalist metropoles need to use armed force to ensure the pursuit of favorable policies in the dependent areas. Normally, economic weapons are sufficient. In the 1720s, Dahomey opposed European slave traders and was deprived of European imports, some of which had become necessary by that time. Agaja Trudeau, Dahomey's greatest king, appreciated that European demand for slaves and the pursuit of slaving in and around Dahomey was in conflict with Dahomey's development. Between 1724 and 1726, he looted and burned European forts and slave camps, and he reduced the trade from the slave coast to a mere trickle by blocking the paths leading to sources of supply in the interior. European slave dealers were very bitter, and they tried to sponsor some African collaborators against Agaja Trudeau. They failed to unseat him or to crush the Dahomeyan state, but in turn, Agaja failed to persuade them to develop new lines of economic activity, such as local plantation agriculture, and being anxious to acquire firearms and cowries through the Europeans, he had to agree to the resumption of slave trading in 1730. After 1730, Dahomean slaving was placed under royal control and was much more restricted than previously. Yet the failure of this determined effort demonstrated that a single African state at that time could not emancipate itself from European control. The small size of African states and the numerous political divisions made it so much easier for Europe to make the decisions as to Africa's role in world production and trade. Many guilty consciences have been created by the slave trade. Europeans know that they carried on the slave trade, and Africans are aware that the trade would have been impossible if certain Africans did not cooperate with the slave ships. To ease their guilty consciences, Europeans try to throw the major responsibility for the slave trade on to the Africans. One European author of a book on the slave trade explained how many other white people urged him to state that the trade was the responsibility of African chiefs, and that Europeans merely turned up to buy the captives, as though without European demand there would have been captives sitting on the beach by the millions. Issues such as those are not the principal concern of this study, but they can be correctly approached only after understanding that Europe became the center of a worldwide system, and that it was European capitalism which set slavery and the Atlantic slave trade in motion. The trade in human beings from Africa was a response to external factors. At first, the labor was needed in Portugal, Spain, and in Atlantic islands such as Sao Tome, Cape Verde, and the Canaries. Then came the period when the Greater Antilles and the Spanish-American mainland needed replacements for the Indians who were victims of genocide, 
and then the demands of Caribbean and mainland plantation societies had to be met. The records show direct connections between levels of exports from Africa and European demand for slave labor in some part of the American plantation economy. When the Dutch took Pernambuco in Brazil in 1634, the director of the Dutch West Indian Company immediately informed their agents on the Gold Coast that they were to take the necessary steps to pursue the trade in slaves on the adjacent coast east of the Volta, thus creating for that area the infamous name of the Slave Coast. When the British West Indian Islands took to growing sugarcane, Gambia was one of the first places to respond. Examples of this kind of external control can be cited right up to the end of the tirade, and this embraces eastern Africa also, since European markets in the Indian Ocean islands became important in the 18th and 19th centuries, and since demand in places like Brazil caused Mozambicans to be shipped around the Cape of Good Hope. Africa's Contribution to the Economy and Beliefs of Early Capitalist Europe the kinds of benefits which Europe derived from its control of the world commerce are fairly well known, although it is curious that the recognition of Africa's major contribution to European development is usually made in works devoted specifically to that subject. While European scholars of Europe often treat the European economy as if it were entirely independent, European economists of the 19th century certainly had no illusions about the interconnections between their national economies and the world at large. J. S. Mill, as spokesman for British capitalism, said that as far as England was concerned, the trade of the West Indies is hardly to be considered as external trade, but more resembles the traffic between town and country. By the phrase trade of the West Indies, Mill meant the commerce between Africa, England, and the West Indies, because without African labor, the West Indies were valueless. Karl Marx also commented on the way that European capitalists tied Africa, the West Indies, and Latin America into the capitalist system, and, being the most bitter critic of capitalism, Marx went on to point out that what was good for Europeans was obtained at the expense of untold suffering by Africans and American Indians. Marx noted that the discovery of gold and silver in America, the extirpation, enslavement, and entombment of mines of the aboriginal population, the turning of Africa into commercial warren for the hunting of black skins signalized the rosy dawn of the era of capitalist production. Some attempts have been made to quantify the actual monetary profits made by Europeans from engaging in the slave trade. The actual dimensions are not easy to fix, but the profits were fabulous. John Hawkins made three trips to West Africa in the 1560s and stole Africans whom he sold to the Spanish in America. On returning to England after the first trip, his profit was so handsome that Queen Elizabeth I became interested in directly participating in his next venture, and she provided for that purpose a ship named the Jesus. Hawkins left with the Jesus to steal some more Africans, and be returned to England with such dividends that Queen Elizabeth made him a knight. Hawkins chose as his coat of arms the representation of an African in chains. Of course, there were inevitable voyages that failed, slave ships that were lost at sea. Sometimes trade in Africa did well, while at other times it was the profit in the Americas that was really substantial. When all the ups and downs are ironed out, the level of profit had to be enough to justify continued participation in that particular form of trade for centuries. A few bourgeois scholars have tried to suggest that the trade in slaves did not have worthwhile monetary returns. 
they would have us believe that the same entrepreneurs whom they praise in other contexts as the heroes of capitalist development were so dumb with regards to slavery and slave trade that for centuries they absorbed themselves in a non-profit venture. This kind of argument is worth noting more as an example of the distortions of which white bourgeois scholarship is capable than as something requiring serious consideration. Besides, quite apart from capital accumulation, Europe's trade with Africa gave numerous stimuli to Europe's growth. Central and South American gold and silver, mined by Africans, played a crucial role in meeting the need for coin in the expanding capitalist money economy of Western Europe, while African gold helped the Portuguese to finance further navigations around the Cape of Good Hope and into Asia from the 15th century on. African gold was also the main source for the mintage of Dutch gold coin in the 17th century, helping Amsterdam to become the financial capital of Europe in that period. And further, it was no coincidence that when the English struck a new gold coin in 1663, they called it the Guinea. The Encyclopedia Britannica explains that the Guinea was a gold coin at one time current in the United Kingdom. It was first coined in 1663 in the reign of Charles II from gold imported from the Guinea coast of West Africa by a company of merchants trading under charter from the British crown, hence the name. Throughout the 17th and 18th centuries, and for most of the 19th century, the exploitation of Africa and African labor continued to be a source for the accumulation of capital to be reinvested in Western Europe. The African contribution to European capitalist growth extended over such vital sectors as shipping, insurance, the formation of companies, capitalist agriculture, technology, and the manufacture of machinery. The effects were so wide-ranging that many are seldom brought to the notice of the public. For instance, the French Saint-Malo fishing industry was revived by the opening of markets in the French slave plantations, while the Portuguese in Europe depended heavily on dyes like indigo, camwood, Brazil wood, and cochineal brought from Africa and the Americas. Gum from Africa also played a part in the textile industry, which is acknowledged as having been one of the most powerful engines of growth within the European economy. Then there was the export of ivory from Africa, enriching many merchants in London's Mincing Lane, and providing the raw material for industries in England, France, Germany, Switzerland, and North America, producing items ranging from knife handles to piano keys. Africa's being drawn into the orbit of Western Europe speeded up the latter's technological development. For example, the evolution of European shipbuilding from the 16th century to the 19th century was a logical consequence of their monopoly of sea commerce in that period. During that time, the North Africans were bottled up in the Mediterranean, and although it was from them that Europeans initially borrowed a great deal of nautical instrumentation, the North Africans made no further worthwhile advances. Where the original European advantage was not sufficient to assure supremacy, they deliberately undermined other people's efforts. The Indian Navy, for instance, suffered from the rigid enforcement of the English navigation law. Yet the expenses involved in building new and better European ships were met from the profits of overseas trade with India and Africa. The Dutch were pioneers in improving upon the caravels, which took the Spanish and Portuguese out across the Atlantic, and the success of Dutch trading companies operating in Asia, Africa, and America were the ones responsible for experimentation. By the 18th century, the British were using Dutch know-how as a basis for surpassing the Dutch themselves, 
and the Atlantic was their laboratory. It used to be said that the slave trade was a training ground for British seamen. It is probably more significant to note that the Atlantic trade was the stimulator of consistent advances in naval technology. The most spectacular feature in Europe which was connected with African trade was the rise of seaport towns, notably Bristol, Liverpool, Nantes, Bordeaux, and Seville. Directly or indirectly connected to those ports, there often emerged the manufacturing centers which gave rise to the Industrial Revolution. In England, it was the county of Lancashire, which was the first center of the Industrial Revolution, and the economic advance in Lancashire depended first of all on the growth of the port of Liverpool through slave trading. The connections between slavery and capitalism in the growth of England is adequately documented by Eric Williams in his well-known book, Capitalism and Slavery. Williams gives a clear picture of the numerous benefits which England derived from trading and exploiting slaves, and he identified by name several of the personalities and capitalist firms who were the beneficiaries. Outstanding examples are provided in the persons of David and Alexander Barclay, who were engaging in slave trade in 1756, and who later used the loot to set up Barclay's bank. There was a similar progression in the case of Lloyd's, from being a small London coffee house to being one of the world's largest banking and insurance houses after dipping into profits from slave trade and slavery. Then there was James Watt, expressing eternal gratitude to the West Indian slave owners, who directly financed his fatuous steam engine and took it from the drawing board to the factory. A similar picture would emerge from any detailed study of French capitalism and slavery, given the fact that during the 18th century, the West Indies accounted for 20% of France's external trade, much more than the whole of Africa in the present century. Of course, benefits were not always directly proportionate to the amount of involvement of a given European state in the Atlantic trade. The enormous profits of Portuguese overseas enterprise passed rapidly out of the Portuguese economy into the hands of the more developed Western European capitalist nations who supplied Portugal with capital, ships, and trade goods. Germany was included in this category along with England, Holland, and France. Commerce deriving from Africa helped a great deal to strengthen transnational links within the Western European economy, bearing in mind that American produce was the consequence of African labor. Brazilian dyewoods, for example, were re-exported from Portugal into the Mediterranean, the North Sea, and the Baltic, and passed into the continental cloth industry of the 17th century. Sugar from the Caribbean was re-exported from England and France to other parts of Europe to such an extent that Hamburg in Germany was the biggest sugar refining center in Europe in the first half of the 18th century. Germany supplied manufacturers to Scandinavia, Holland, England, France, and Portugal for resale in Africa. England, France, and Holland found it necessary to exchange various classes of goods, the better to deal with Africans for gold, slaves, and ivory. The financiers and merchants of Genoa were the powers behind the markets of Lisbon and Seville, while Dutch bankers played a similar role with respect to Scandinavia and England. Western Europe was that part of Europe in which by the 15th century the trend was most visible that feudalism was giving way to capitalism. In Eastern Europe, feudalism was still strong in the 19th century. The peasants were being driven off the land in England, and agriculture was becoming technologically more advanced, producing food and fibers to support a larger population and to provide a more effective basis for the woolen and linen industries in particular.
the technological base of industry as well as its social and economic organization was being transformed. African trade speeded up several aspects, including the integration of Western Europe. That is why the African connection contributed not merely to economic growth, which relates to quantitative dimensions, but also to real development in the sense of increased capacity for further growth and independence. In speaking of the European slave trade, mention must be made of the United States, not only because its dominant population was European, but also because Europe transferred its capitalist institutions more completely to North America than to any other part of the globe, and established a powerful form of capitalism after eliminating the indigenous inhabitants and exploiting the labor of millions of Africans. Like other parts of the New World, the American colonies of the British Crown were used as means of accumulating primary capital for re-export to Europe. But the northern colonies also had direct access to benefits from slavery in the American South and in the British and French West Indies. As in Europe, the profits made from slavery and slave trade went firstly to commercial ports and industrial areas, which meant mainly the northeastern seaboard district known as New England and the state of New York. The pan-Africanist W.E.B. Du Bois, in a study of the American slave trade, quoted a report of 1862 as follows. The number of persons engaged in the slave trade and the amount of capital embarked in it exceed our powers of calculation. The city of New York has been, until of late, the principal port of the world for this infamous commerce, although the cities of Portland and Boston are only second to her in that distribution. American economic development up to the mid-nineteenth century rested squarely on foreign commerce, of which slavery was a pivot. In the 1830s, slave-grown cotton accounted for about half the value of all exports from the United States of America. Furthermore, in the case of the American colonies of the 18th century, it can again be observed that Africa contributed in a variety of ways, one thing leading to another. For instance, in New England, trade with Africa, Europe, and the West Indies in slaves and slave-grown products supplied cargo for their merchant marine, stimulated the growth of their shipbuilding industry, built up their towns and their cities, and enabled them to utilize their forests, fisheries, and soil more effectively. Finally, it was the carrying trade between the West Indian slave colonies and Europe which lay behind the emancipation of the American colonies from British rule, and it was no accident that the struggle for American independence started in the leading New England town of Boston. In the 19th century, the connection with Africa continued to play an indirect role in American political growth. In the first place, Profits from the slave activities went into the coffers of political parties, and even more important, the African stimulation and black labor played a vital role in extending European control over the present territory of the United States, notably in the South, but including also the Wild West, where black cowboys were active. Slavery is useful for early accumulation of capital, but it is too rigid for industrial development. Slaves had to be given crude, non-breakable tools which held back the capitalist development of agriculture and industry. That explains the fact that the northern portions of the United States gained far more industrial benefits from slavery than the South, which actually had slave institutions on its soil. And ultimately, the stage was reached during the American Civil War when the northern capitalist 
fought to end slavery within the boundaries of the United States so that the country as a whole could advance to a higher level of capitalism. In effect, one can say that within the United States, the slave relations in the South had by the second half of the 19th century come into conflict with the further expansion of the productive base inside the United States as a whole, and a violent clash ensued before the capitalist relations of legally free labor became generalized. Europe maintained slavery in places that were physically remote from European society, and therefore inside Europe itself, capitalist relations were elaborated without being adversely affected by slavery in the Americas. However, even in Europe, there came a moment when the leading capitalist states found that the trade in slaves and the use of slave labor in the Americas was no longer in the interest of their further development. Britain made this decision early in the 19th century, to be followed later by France. Since capitalism, like any other mode of production, is a total system which involves an ideological aspect, it is also necessary to focus on the effects of the ties with Africa on the development of ideas within the superstructure of European capitalist society. In that sphere, the most striking feature is undoubtedly the rise of racism as a widespread and deeply rooted element in European thought. The role of slavery in promoting racist prejudice and ideology has been carefully studied in certain situations, especially in the United States. The simple fact is that no people can enslave another for centuries without coming out with a notion of superiority, and when the color and other physical traits of those peoples were quite different, it was inevitable that the prejudice should take a racist form. Within Africa itself, the same can be said for the situation in the Cape Province of South Africa, where white men have been establishing military and social superiority over non-whites since 1650. It would be much too sweeping a statement to say that all racial and color prejudice in Europe derived from the enslavement of Africans and the exploitation of non-white peoples in the early centuries of international trade. There was also anti-Semitism at an even earlier date inside Europe, and there is always an element of suspicion and incomprehension when peoples of different cultures come together. However, it can be affirmed without reservations that the white racism which came to pervade the world was an integral part of the capitalist mode of production. Nor was it merely a question of how the individual white person treated a black person. The racism of Europe was a set of generalizations and assumptions which had no scientific basis, but were rationalized in every sphere from theology to biology. Occasionally it is mistakenly held that Europeans enslaved Africans for racist reasons. European planters and miners enslaved Africans for economic reasons, so that their labor power could be exploited. Indeed, it would have been impossible to open up the new world and to use it as a constant generator of wealth, had it not been for African labor. There were no other alternatives. The American Indian population was virtually wiped out, and Europe's population was too small for settlement overseas at that time. Then, having become utterly dependent on African labor, Europeans at home and abroad found it necessary to rationalize that exploitation in racist terms as well. Oppression follows logically from exploitation, so as to guarantee the latter. Oppression of African people on purely racial grounds accompanied, strengthened, and became indistinguishable from oppression for economic reasons. C. L. R. James, noted Pan-Africanist and Marxist, once remarked that the race question is subsidiary to the class question in politics, 
and to think of imperialism in terms of race is disastrous. But to neglect the racial factor as merely incidental is an error only less grave than to make it fundamental. It can further be argued that by the 19th century, white racism had become so institutionalized in the capitalist world, and notably in the USA, that it sometimes ranked above the maximization of profit as a motive for oppressing black people. In the short run, European racism seemed to have done Europeans no harm, and they used those erroneous ideas to justify their further domination of non-European peoples in the colonial epoch. But the international proliferation of bigoted and unscientific racist ideas was bound to have its negative consequences in the long run, when Europeans put millions of their brothers, Jews, into ovens under the Nazis. The chickens were coming home to roost. Such behavior inside of democratic Europe was not as strange as it is sometimes made out to be. There was always a contradiction between the elaboration of democratic ideas inside Europe and the elaboration of authoritarian and thuggish practices by Europeans with respect to Africans. When the French Revolution was made in the name of liberty, equality, fraternity, it did not extend to black Africans who were enslaved by France in the West Indies and the Indian Ocean. Indeed, France fought against the efforts of those people to emancipate themselves, and the leaders of their bourgeois revolution said plainly that they did not make it on behalf of black humanity. It is not even true to say that capitalism developed democracy at home in Europe and not abroad. At home. It was responsible for a talk of certain rhetoric of freedom, but it was never extended from the bourgeoisie to the oppressed workers, and the treatment of Africans must surely have made such hypocrisy a habit of European life, especially within the ruling class. How else can one explain the fact that the Christian Church participated fully in the maintenance of slavery and still talked about saving souls? The hypocrisy reached its highest levels inside the United States. The first martyr in the American National War of Liberation against the British colonialists in the 18th century was an African descendant, Crispus Attucks, and both slave and free Africans played a key role in Washington's armies. And yet, the American Constitution sanctioned the continued enslavement of Africans. In recent times, it has become an object of concern to some liberals that the United States is capable of war crimes of the order of Milai in Vietnam. But the fact of the matter is that the Milais began with the enslavement of Africans and American Indians. Racism, violence, and brutality were the concomitants of the capitalist system when it extended itself abroad in the early centuries of international trade. Chapter Four. Europe, and the roots of African underdevelopment to 1885. The relation between the degree of destitution of peoples of Africa and the length and nature of the exploitation they had to endure is evident. Africa remains marked by the crimes of the slave traders. Up to now, her potentialities are restricted by underpopulation. Ahmed Sekou Toure, Republic of Guinea, 1962. The European slave trade as a basic factor in African underdevelopment. To discuss trade between Africans and Europeans in the four centuries before colonial rule is virtually to discuss slave trade. Strictly speaking, the African only became a slave when he reached a society where he worked as a slave. 
Before that, he was first a free man, and then a captive. Nevertheless, it is acceptable to speak of the trade in slaves when referring to the shipment of captives from Africa to various other parts of the world where they were to live and work as the property of Europeans. The title of this section is deliberately chosen to call attention to the fact that the shipments were all by Europeans to markets controlled by Europeans, and this was in the interest of European capitalism and nothing else. In East Africa and the Sudan, many Africans were taken by Arabs and were sold to Arab buyers. This is known in European books as the Arab slave trade. Therefore, let it be clear that when Europeans shipped Africans to European buyers, it was the European slave trade from Africa. Undoubtedly, with few exceptions, such as Hawkins, European buyers purchased African captives on the coasts of Africa, and the transaction between themselves and Africans was a form of trade. It is also true that very often a captive was sold and resold as he made his way from the interior to the port of embarkation and that, too, was a form of trade. However, on the whole, the process by which captives were obtained on African soil was not trade at all. It was through warfare, trickery, banditry, and kidnapping. When one tries to measure the effect of European slave trading on the African continent, it is essential to realize that one is measuring the effect of social violence rather than trade in any normal sense of the word. Many things remain uncertain about the slave trade and its consequences for Africa, but the general picture of destructiveness is clear, and that destructiveness can be shown to be the logical consequence of the manner of recruitment of captives in Africa. One of the uncertainties concerns the basic question of how many Africans were imported. This has long been an object of speculation, with estimates ranging from a few millions to over 100 million. A recent study has suggested a figure of about 10 million Africans landed alive in the Americas, the Atlantic Islands, and Europe. Because it is a low figure, it is already being used by European scholars who are apologists for the capitalist system and its long record of brutality in Europe and abroad. In order to whitewash the European slave trade, they find it convenient to start by minimizing the numbers concerned. The truth is that any figure of Africans imported into the Americas, which is narrowly based on the surviving records, is bound to be low, because there were so many people at the time who had a vested interest in smuggling slaves and withholding data. Nevertheless, if the low figure of 10 million was accepted as a basis for evaluating the impact of slaving on Africa as a whole, the conclusions that could legitimately be drawn would confound those who attempt to make light of the experience of the rape of Africans from 1445 to 1870. On any basic figure of Africans landed alive in the Americas, one would have to make several extensions, starting with a calculation to cover mortality in transshipment. The Atlantic Crossing, or Middle Passage, as it was called by European slavers, was notorious for the number of deaths incurred, averaging in the vicinity of 15 to 20 percent. There were also numerous deaths in Africa between time of capture and time of embarkation, especially in cases where captives had to travel hundreds of miles to the coast. Most important of all, given that warfare was the principal means of obtaining captives, it is necessary to make some estimate as to the number of people killed and injured so as to extract the millions who were taken alive and sound. 
The resultant figure would be many times the millions landed alive outside of Africa, and it is that figure which represents the number of Africans directly removed from the population and labor force of Africa because the establishment of slave production by Europeans. The massive loss of the African labor force was made more critical because it was composed of able-bodied young men and young women. Slave buyers preferred their victims between the ages of 15 and 35 and preferably in the early twenties, the sex ratio being about two men to one woman. Europeans often accepted younger African children, but rarely any older person. They shipped the most healthy wherever possible, taking the trouble to get those who had already survived an attack of smallpox and who were therefore immune from further attacks of that disease, which was then one of the world's great killer diseases. Absence of data about the size of Africa's population in the 15th century makes it difficult to carry out any scientific assessment of the results of the population outflow, but nothing suggests that there was any increase in the continent's population over the centuries of slaving, although that was the trend in other parts of the world. Obviously, fewer babies were born than would otherwise have been the case if millions of childbearing ages were not eliminated. Besides, it is essential to recognize that the slave trade across the Atlantic Ocean was not the only connection which Europeans had with slaving in Africa. The slave trade on the Indian Ocean has been called the East African slave trade and the Arab slave trade for so long that it hides the extent to which it was also a European slave trade. When the slave trade from East Africa was at its height in the 18th century and in the early 19th century, the destination of most captives was the European-owned plantation economies of Mauritius, Réunion, and Seychelles, as well as the Americas, via the Cape of Good Hope. Besides, Africans laboring as slaves in certain Arab countries in the 18th and 19th centuries were all ultimately serving the European capitalist system, which set up a demand for slave-grown products, such as the cloves grown in Zanzibar, under the supervision of Arab masters. No one has been able to come up with a figure representing total losses to the African population sustained through the extraction of slave labor from all areas to all destinations over the many centuries that slave trade existed. However, on every other continent from the 15th century onwards, the population showed constant and sometimes spectacular natural increase. It is striking that the same did not apply to Africa. One European scholar gave the following estimates of world population in millions, according to continents. Africa in 1650, 100, 1750, 100, 1850, 100, 1900, 120. Europe in 1650, 103, in 1750, 144, in 1850, 274, in 1900, 423. Asia, in 1650, 257, in 1750, 437, in 1850, 656, in 1900, 857. None of the figures is really precise but they do indicate a consensus among researchers on population that the huge African continent has an abnormal record of stagnation in this respect, and there is no causative factor other than the trade in slaves to which attention can be drawn. An emphasis on population loss as such is highly relevant to the question of socioeconomic development. 
population growth played a major role in European development in providing labor, markets, and the pressures which led to further advance. Japanese population growth had similar positive effects, and in other parts of Asia which remained pre-capitalist, the size of the population led to a much more intensive exploitation of the land than has ever been the case in what is still a sparsely peopled African continent. So long as the population density was low, then human beings, viewed as units of labor, were far more important than other factors of production, such as land. From one end of the continent to the other, it is easy to find examples showing that African people were conscious that population was, in their circumstances, the most important factor of production. Among the Bimba, for instance, numbers of subjects were held to be more important than land. Among the Shambhala of Tanzania, the same feeling was expressed in the saying, A king is people. Among the Balanta of Guinea-Bissau, the family strength is represented by the number of hands there are to cultivate the land. Certainly many African rulers acquiesced in the European slave trade for what they considered to be reasons of self-interest, but on no scale of rationality could the outflow of population be measured as being anything but disastrous for African societies. African economic activity was affected both directly and indirectly by population loss. For instance, when the inhabitants of a given area were reduced below a certain number in an environment where the tsetse fly was present, the remaining few had to abandon the area. In effect, enslavement was causing these people to lose their battle to tame and harness nature, a battle which is at the basis of development. Violence almost meant insecurity. The opportunity presented by European slave dealers became the major, though not the only, stimulus for a great deal of social violence between different African communities and within any given community. It took the form more of raiding and kidnapping than of regular warfare, and that fact increased the element of fear and uncertainty. Both openly and by implication, all the European powers in the 19th century indicated their awareness of the fact that the activities connected with producing captives were inconsistent with other economic pursuits. That was the time when Britain in particular wanted Africans to collect palm produce and rubber and to grow agricultural crops for export in place of slaves, and it was clear that slave trading was violently conflicting with that objective in Western, Eastern, and Central Africa. Long before that date, Europeans accepted that fact when their self-interest was involved. For example, in the 17th century, the Portuguese and Dutch actually discouraged slave trade on the Gold Coast, for they recognized that it would be incompatible with gold trade. However, by the end of that century, gold had been discovered in Brazil, and the importance of gold supplies from Africa was lessened. Within the total Atlantic pattern, African slaves became more important than gold and Brazilian gold was offered for African captives at Rida, Dahomey, and Accra. At that point, slaving began undermining the Gold Coast economy and destroying the gold trade. Slave raiding and kidnapping made it unsafe to mine and to travel with gold, and raiding for captives proved more profitable than gold mining. One European on the scene noted that, as one fortunate marauding makes a native rich in a day, they therefore exert themselves rather in war robbery, and plunder than in their old business of digging and collecting gold. The changeover from gold mining to slave raiding took place within a period of a few years, between 1700 and 1710, when the Gold Coast came to supply about 5,000 to 6,000 captives per year. By the end of the 18th century, 
A much smaller number of captives were exported from the Gold Coast, but the damage had already been done. It is worth noting that Europeans sought out different parts of West and Central Africa at different times to play the role of major suppliers of slaves to the Americas. This meant that virtually every section of the long western coastline between the Senegal and Kunene rivers had at least a few years' experience of intensive trade in slaves, with all of its consequences. Besides, in the history of eastern Nigeria, the Congo, northern Angola, and Dahomey, there were periods of extending over decades when exports remained at an average of many thousands per year. Most of those areas were also relatively highly developed within the African context. They were leading forces inside Africa, whose energies would otherwise have gone towards their own self-improvement and the betterment of the continent as a whole. The changeover to warlike activities and kidnapping must have affected all branches of economic activity and agriculture in particular. Occasionally, in certain localities, food production was increased to provide supplies for slave ships, but the overall consequences of slaving on agricultural activities in western, eastern, and central Africa were negative. Labor was drawn off from agriculture, and conditions became unsettled. Dahomey, which in the 16th century was known for exporting food to parts of what is now Togo, was suffering from famines in the 19th century. The present generation of Africans will readily recall that in the colonial period, when able-bodied men left their homes as migrant laborers, that upset the farming routine in the home districts and often caused famines. Slave trading, after all, meant migration of labor in a manner 100 times more brutal and disruptive. To achieve economic development, one essential condition is to make the maximum use of the country's labor and natural resources. Usually, that demands peaceful conditions, but there have been times in history when social groups have grown stronger by raiding their neighbors for women, cattle, and goods, because they then used the booty from the raids for the benefit of their own community. Slaving in Africa did not even have that redeeming value. Captives were shipped outside instead of being utilized within any given African community for creating wealth from nature. It was only as an accidental byproduct that in some areas, Africans who recruited captives for Europeans realized that they were better off keeping some captives for themselves. In any case, slaving prevented the remaining population from effectively engaging in agriculture and industry, and it employed professional slave hunters and warriors to destroy rather than build. Quite apart from the moral aspect and the immense suffering that it caused, the European slave trade was economically totally irrational from the viewpoint of African development. For certain purposes, it is necessary to be more specific and to speak of the trade in slaves, not in general continent-wide terms, but rather with reference to the varying impact on several regions. The relative intensity of slave raiding in different areas is fairly well known. Some South African peoples were enslaved by the Boers, and some North African Muslims by Christian Europeans. But those were minor episodes. The zones most notorious for human exports were, firstly, West Africa, from Senegal to Angola, along a belt extending about 200 miles inland, and, secondly, that part of East Central Africa, which today covers Tanzania, Mozambique, Malawi, northern Zambia, and eastern Congo. Furthermore, within each of those broad areas, finer distinctions can be drawn. It might therefore appear that slave trade did not adversely affect the development of some parts of Africa simply because exports were non-existent or at a low level. 
However, the contention that European slave trade was an underdeveloping factor for the continent as a whole must be upheld, because it does not follow that an African district, which did not trade with Europe, was entirely free from whatever influences were exerted by Europe. European trade goods percolated into the deepest interior, and more significantly, the orientation of large areas of the continent towards human exports meant that other positive interactions were thereby ruled out. That proposition may be more fully grasped by making some comparisons. In any given economy, the various components reflect the well-being of others. Therefore, when there is depression in one sector, that depression invariably transfers itself to others to some extent. Similarly, when there is buoyancy in one sector, then others benefit. Turning to biological sciences, it will be found that students of ecology recognize that a single change, such as the disappearance of a snail species, could trigger off negative or positive reactions in spheres that superficially appear unconnected. Parts of Africa left free by export trends and captives must have been affected by the tremendous dislocation in ways that are not easy to comprehend because it is so much a question of what might have happened. Hypothetical questions such as, what might have happened if, sometimes lead to absurd speculations. But it is entirely legitimate and very necessary to ask, what might have happened in Baratsaland, southern Zambia, if there were not generalized slave trading across the whole belt of Central Africa, which lay immediately north of Baratsaland? What would have happened in Buganda, if the Katangese were concentrating on selling copper to the Baganda, instead of captives to Europeans. During the colonial epoch, the British forced Africans to sing, Rule Britannia. Britannia rule the waves. Britons never, never, never shall be slaves. The British themselves started singing the tune in the early 18th century at the height of using Africans as slaves. What would have been Britain's level of development had millions of them been put to work as slaves outside of their homelands over a period of four centuries? Furthermore, assuming that those wonderful fellows could never, never, never have been slaves, one could speculate further on the probable effects on their development had continental Europe been enslaved. Had that been the case, its nearest neighbors would have been removed from the ambit of fruitful trade with Britain. After all, trade between the British Isles and places like the Baltic and the Mediterranean is unanimously considered by scholars to have been the earliest stimulus to the English economy in the late feudal and early capitalist period, even before the era of overseas expansion. One tactic that is now being employed by certain European, including American scholars, is to say that the European slave trade was undoubtedly a moral evil, but it was economically good for Africa. Here, attention will be drawn only very briefly to a few of those arguments to indicate how ridiculous they can be. One that receives much emphasis is that African rulers and other persons obtained European commodities in exchange for their captives, and this was how Africans gained wealth. This suggestion fails to take into account the fact that several European imports were competing with and strangling African products. It fails to take into account the fact that none of the long list of European articles were of the type which catered into the productive process, but were rather items to be rapidly consumed or stowed away uselessly. And it incredibly overlooks the fact that the majority of the imports were of the worst quality, even as consumer goods. Cheap gin, cheap gunpowder, pots and kettles full of holes, beads and other assorted rubbish. 
It is suggested that certain African kingdoms grew strong economically and politically as a consequence of the trade with Europeans. The greatest of the West African kingdoms, such as Oyo, Benin, Dahomey, and Asante, are cited as examples. Oyo and Benin were great long before making contact with Europeans, and while both Dahomey and Asante grew stronger during the period of the European slave trade, the roots of their achievements went back to much earlier years. Furthermore, and this is a major fallacy in the argument of the slave trade apologists, the fact that a given African state grew politically more powerful at the same time as it engaged in selling captives to Europeans is not automatically to be attributed to the credit of the trade in slaves. A cholera epidemic may kill thousands in a country, and yet the population increases. The increase obviously came about in spite of and not because of the cholera. This simple logic escapes those who speak about the European slave trade benefiting Africa. The destructive tendency of slave trading can be clearly established. Wherever a state seemingly progressed in the epoch of slave trading, the conclusion is simply that it did so in spite of the adverse effects of a process that was more damaging than cholera. This is the picture that emerges from a detailed study of Dahomey, for instance, and in the final analysis, although Dahomey did its best to expand politically and militarily while still tied to slave trade, that form of economic activity seriously undermined its economic base and left it much worse off. A few of the arguments about the economic benefits of the European slave trade for Africa amount to nothing more than saying that exporting millions of captives was a way of avoiding starvation in Africa. To attempt to reply to that would be painful and time-wasting, but perhaps a slightly more subtle version of the same argument requires a reply, namely, the argument that Africa gained because in the process of slave trading, new food crops were acquired from the American continent, and these became staples in Africa. The crops in question are maize and cassava, which became staples in Africa late in the 19th century and in the present century. But the spread of food crops is one of the most common phenomena in human history. Most crops originated in only one of the continents, and then social contact caused their transfer to other parts of the world. Trading in slaves has no special bearing on whether crops spread. The simplest forms of trade would have achieved the same result. Today, the Italians have hard wheat foods like spaghetti and macaroni as their staple, while most Europeans use the potato. The Italians took the idea of the spaghetti-type foods from the Chinese noodle after Marco Polo returned from travels there, while Europe adopted the potato from American Indians. In neither case were Europeans enslaved before they could receive a benefit that was the logical heritage of all mankind, but Africans are to be told that the European slave trade developed us by bringing us maize and cassava. All of those points are taken from books and articles published recently as the fruit of research in major British and American universities. They are probably not the commonest views even among European bourgeois scholars, but they are representative of a growing trend that seems likely to become the new accepted orthodoxy in metropolitan capitalist countries. And this significantly coincides with Europe's struggle against the further decolonization of Africa economically and mentally. In one sense, it is preferable to ignore such rubbish and isolate our youth from its insults. But, unfortunately, one of the aspects of current African underdevelopment is that the capitalist publishers and bourgeois scholars dominate the scene and help mold opinions the world over. It is for that reason that writing of the type which justifies the trade in slaves has to be exposed as racist bourgeois propaganda.
having no connection with reality or logic. It is a question not merely of history, but a present-day liberation struggle in Africa. Technical Stagnation and Distortion of the African Economy in the Pre-Colonial Epoch It has already been indicated that in the 15th century European technology was not totally superior to that of other parts of the world. There were certain specific features which were highly advantageous to Europe, such as shipping and, to a lesser extent, guns. Europeans trading to Africa had to make use of Asian and African consumer goods, showing that their system of production was not absolutely superior. It is particularly striking that in the early centuries of trade, Europeans relied heavily on Indian cloths for resale in Africa, and they also purchased cloths in several parts of the West African coast for resale elsewhere. Morocco, Mauritania, Senegambia, Ivory Coast, Benin, Yorubaland, and Loango were all exporters to other parts of Africa through European middlemen. Yet by the time that Africa entered the colonial era, it was concentrating almost entirely on the export of raw cotton and the import of manufactured cotton cloth. This remarkable reversal is tied to technological advance in Europe and to stagnation of technology in Africa owing to the very trade with Europe. Cloth manufacture in the world went through a stage of hand looms and a small-scale craft production. Up to the 16th century, there was the general pattern in Africa, Asia, and Europe, with Asian cloth makers being the most skilled in the world. India is the classic example where the British used every means at their disposal to kill the cloth industry so that British cloth could be marketed everywhere, including inside India itself. In Africa, the situation was not so clear-cut, nor did it require so much conscious effort by Europeans to destroy African cloth manufacture, but the trend was the same. Europe benefited technologically from its external trade contacts, while Africa either failed to benefit or actually lost. Vital inventions and innovations appeared in England in the late 18th century after profits from external trade had been reinvested. Indeed, the new machinery represented the investment of primary capital accumulated from trading and from slavery. African and Indian trade strengthened British industry, which in turn crushed whatever industry existed in what is now called the underdeveloped countries. African demand for cloth was increasing rapidly in the 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries, so that there was a market for all cloth produced locally, as well as room for imports from Europe and Asia. But directed by an acquisitive capitalist class, European industry increased its capacity to produce on a large scale by harnessing the energy of wind, water, and coal. European cloth industry was able to copy fashionable Indian and African patterns and eventually to replace them, partly by establishing a stranglehold on the distribution of cloth around the shores of Africa and partly by swamping African products by importing cloth in bulk, European traders eventually succeeded in putting an end to the expansion of African cloth manufacture. There are many varied social factors which combine to determine when a society makes a breakthrough from small-scale craft technology to equipment designed to harness nature so that labor becomes more effective. One of the major factors is the existence of a demand for more products than can be made by hand, so that technology is asked to respond to a definite social need, such as that for cloths. When European cloth became dominant on the African market, it meant that African producers were cut off from the increasing demand. The craft producers either abandoned their task in the face of cheap, available European cloth, or they continued on the same small hand-worked instruments to create styles and pieces for localized markets.
Therefore, there was what can be called technological arrest or stagnation, and in some instances, actual regression, since people forgot even the simple techniques of their forefathers. The abandonment of traditional iron smelting in most parts of Africa is probably the most important instance of technological regression. Development means a capacity for self-sustaining growth. It means that an economy must register advances, which in turn will promote further progress. The loss of industry and skill in Africa was extremely small if we measure it from the viewpoint of modern scientific achievements, or even by standards of England in the late 18th century. However, it must be borne in mind that to be held back at one stage means that it is impossible to go on to a further stage. When a person was forced to leave school after only two years of primary school education, it is no reflection on him that he is academically and intellectually less developed than someone who had the opportunity to be schooled right through to university level. What Africa experienced in the early centuries of trade was precisely a loss of development opportunity, and this is of the greatest importance. One of the features associated with technological advance is a spirit of scientific inquiry closely related to the process of production. This leads to inventiveness and innovation. During the period of capitalist development in Europe, this was very much the case, and historians lay great emphasis on the spirit of inventiveness of the English in the 18th century. Socialist societies do not leave inventions merely to chance or good luck. They actively cultivate tendencies for innovation. For instance, in the German Democratic Republic, the youth established a Young Innovators Fair in 1958. Calling upon the intellectual creativity of socialist youth, so that within ten years over two thousand new inventions were presented at that fair. The connection between Africa and Europe from the fifteenth century onwards served to block this spirit of technological innovation, both directly and indirectly. The European slave trade was a direct block, removing millions of youth and young adults who are the human agents from whom inventiveness springs. Those who remained in areas badly hit by slave capturing were preoccupied about their freedom, rather than with improvements in production. Besides, even the busiest African in West, Central, or East Africa was concerned more with trade than with production, because of the nature of the contacts with Europe, and that situation was not conducive to the introduction of technological advances. The most dynamic groups over a great area of Africa became associated with foreign trade. Notably, the Afro-Portuguese middlemen of Upper Guinea, the Akan market women, the Aro traders of Mozambique, and the Swahili and Wanyamwezi of East Africa. The trade which they carried on was in export items like captives and ivory, which did not require the invention of machinery. Apart from that, they were agents for distributing European imports. When Britain was the world's leading economic power, it used to be referred to as a nation of shopkeepers. But most of the goods in their shops were produced by themselves, and it was while grappling with the problems posed by production that their engineers came up with so many inventions. In Africa, the trading groups could make no contribution to technological improvement because their role and preoccupation took their minds and energies away from production. Apart from inventiveness, we must also consider the borrowing of technology. When a society, for whatever reason, finds itself technologically trailing behind others, It catches up not so much by independent inventions, but by borrowing. Indeed, very few of man's major scientific discoveries have been separately discovered in different places by different people. Once a principle or a tool is known, it spreads or diffuses to other peoples. 
Why then did European technology fail to make its way into Africa during the many centuries of contact between the two continents? The basic reason is that the very nature of Afro-European trade was highly unfavorable to the movement of positive ideas and techniques from the European capitalist system to the African pre-capitalist, communal, feudal, and pre-feudal system of production. The only non-European society that borrowed effectively from Europe and became capitalist is that of Japan. Japan was already a highly developed feudal society, progressing towards its own capitalist forms in the 19th century. Its people were neither enslaved nor colonized by Europe, and its foreign trade relations were quite advantageous. For instance, Japanese textile manufacturers had the stimulus of their own growing internal market, and some abroad in Asia and Europe. Under those circumstances, the young Japanese capitalist class, including many former feudalist landowners, borrowed technology from Europe and successfully domesticated it before the end of the 19th century. The use of this example from outside Africa is meant to emphasize that for Africa to have received European technology, the demand would have had to come from inside Africa, and most probably from a class or group who saw profit in the new technology. There had to be both willingness on part of Europeans to transfer technology and African socio-economic structures capable of making use of that technology and internalizing it. Hunting for elephants or captives did not usually induce in Africa a demand for any technology other than firearms. The lines of economic activity attached to foreign trade were either destructive, as slavery was, or at best purely extractive. Like ivory hunting and cutting camwood trees, therefore there was no reason for wanting to call upon European skills. The African economies would have had little room for such skills unless negative types of exports were completely stopped. A remarkable fact that is seldom brought to light is that several African rulers in different parts of the continent saw the situation clearly and sought European technology for internal development, which was meant to replace the trade in slaves. Europeans deliberately ignored those African requests that Europe should place certain skills and techniques at their disposal. This was an element in the Congo situation of the early 16th century, which has already been mentioned. It happened in Ethiopia also, though in Ethiopia no trade in captives was established with Europeans. A Portuguese embassy reached the court in 1520, having examined Portuguese swords, muskets, cloths. Books and other objects, the emperor Lebna Dengel felt the need to introduce European technical knowledge into Ethiopia. Correspondence exists between the emperor and European rulers, such as Kings Manuel I and John III of Portugal, and Pope Leo X, in which requests were made for European assistance to Ethiopian industry. Until late in the 19th century, Ethiopian petitions to that effect were being repeated with little or no success. In the first half of the 18th century, there were two further examples of African rulers appreciating European technology and slating their presence for skills and not slave ships. When Agaja Trudeau of Dahomey sought to stop the trade in captives, he made an appeal to European craftsmen, and he sent an ambassador to London for that purpose. One European who stayed at the court of Dahomey in the late 1720s told his countrymen that if any tailor. Carpenter, Smith, or any other sort of white man that is free be willing to come here, he will find very good encouragement. The Asante Hine Opokuere also asked Europeans to set up factories and distilleries in Asante, but he got no response. 
Bearing in mind the history of Japan, it should be noted that the first request for technical assistance came from the Ethiopian and Congo empires, which in the 16th century were at a level undoubtedly comparable to that of most European feudal states, with the important exception that they had not produced the seeds of capitalism. During the 18th century, the great African states of Dahomey and Asante became prominent. They had passed out of the communal stage and had a somewhat feudal class stratification, along with specialization in many activities such as the working of gold, iron, and cloth. Asante society under Opokuware had already shown a capacity for seeking out innovations by going through the trouble of taking imported silk and unraveling it so as to combine the silk threads with cotton to make the famous kente cloth. In other words, there would have been no difficulty in such African societies mastering European technical skills and bridging the rather narrow gap which existed between them and Europe at that time. Well into the 19th century, Europe displayed the same indifference to requests for practical assistance from Africa, although by that period both African rulers and European capitalists were talking about replacing slave trade. In the early 19th century, one king of Calabar in eastern Nigeria wrote to the British asking for a sugar refinery, while around 1804, King Adondozan of Dahomey was bold enough to ask for a firearms factory. By that date, many parts of West Africa were going to war with European firearms and gunpowder. There grew up a saying in Dahomey that he who makes the powder wins the war, which was a far-sighted recognition that Africans were bound to fall between the superiority of Europeans in the field of arms technology. Of course, Europeans were also fully aware that their arms technology was decisive, and there was not the slightest chance that they would have agreed to teach Africans to make firearms and ammunition. The circumstances of African trade with Europe were unfavorable to creating a consistent African demand for technology relevant to development, and when that demand was raised, it was ignored or rejected by the capitalists. After all, it would have not been in the interest of capitalism to develop Africa, in more recent times, Western capitalists had refused to build the Volta River Dam for Ghana under Kwame Nkrumah, until they realized that the Czechoslovakians would do the job. They refused to build the Oswan Dam for Egypt, and the Soviet Union had to come to the rescue. And in a similar situation, they placed obstacles in the way of the building of a railway from Tanzania to Zambia, and it was the socialist state of China that stepped in to express solidarity with African peasants and workers in a practical way. Placing the whole question in historical perspective allows us to understand that capitalism has always discouraged technological evolution in Africa and blocks Africa's access to its own technology. As will be discussed in a subsequent section, capitalism introduced into Africa only such limited aspects of its material culture as were essential to more efficient exploitation, but the general tendency has been for capitalism to underdevelop Africa in technology. The European slave trade and overseas trade in general had what are known as multiplier effects on Europe's development in a very positive sense. This means that the benefits of foreign contacts extended to many areas of European life, not directly connected with foreign trade, and the whole society was better equipped for its own internal development. The opposite was true of Africa, not only in the crucial sphere of technology, but also with regards to the size and purpose of each economy in Africa. Under the normal processes of evolution, an economy grows steadily larger, so that after a while two neighboring economies merge into one. That was precisely how national economies were created in the slates of Western Europe, 
through the gradual combination of what were once separate provincial economies. Trade with Africa actually helped Europe to weld together more closely the different national economies, but in Africa there was disruption and disintegration at the local level. At the same time, each local economy ceased to be directed exclusively or even primarily towards the satisfaction of the wants of its inhabitants, and whether or not the particular Africans recognized it, their economic efforts served external interests and made them dependent on those external forces based in Western Europe. In this way, the African economy taken as a whole was diverted away from its previous line of development and became distorted. It has now become common knowledge that one of the principal reasons why genuine industrialization cannot easily be realized in Africa today is that the market for manufactured goods in any single African country is too small, and there is no integration of the markets across large areas of Africa. The kind of relationship which Africa has had with Europe from the very beginning has worked in a direction opposite to integration of local economies. Certain interterritorial links established on the continent were broken down after the 15th century because of European trade. Several examples arose on the West African coast down to Angola because in those parts European trade was most voluminous and the surviving written record is also more extensive. When the Portuguese arrived in the region of modern Ghana in the 1470s, they had few commodities to offer the inhabitants in exchange for the gold coveted by Europe. However, they were able to transship from Benin in Nigeria supplies of cotton cloths, beads, and female slaves, which were saleable on the Gold Coast. The Portuguese were responding to a given demand on the Gold Coast so that a previous trade must have been in existence between the people of Benin and those of the Gold Coast, particularly the Akan. The Akan were gold producers, and the people of Benin were specialist craftsmen who had a surplus of cloth and beads which they manufactured themselves. As an expansionist state with a large army, Benin also had access to prisoners of war, while the Akan seemed concerned with building their own population and labor force, so the latter acquired female captives from Benin and rapidly integrated them as wives. When the Portuguese intervened in this exchange, it was subordinated to the interests of European trade. As soon as Portugal and other European nations had sufficient goods so as not to be dependent on the re-export of certain commodities from Benin, then all that remained were the links between the Gold Coast and Europe on the one hand, and between Benin and Europe on the other. Probably Benin products had reached the Gold Coast by way of the creeks behind the coast of what is now Dahomey and Togo. Therefore, it would have been more convenient when Europeans established a direct link across the open sea. As pointed out earlier, the superiority of Europeans at sea was of the greatest strategic value, along with their organizational ability. This was illustrated in several places, beginning with the Maghreb and Mauritania. After the Portuguese took control of the Atlantic coast of northwest Africa, they were able to secure horses, woolen goods, and beads, which they shipped farther south to West Africa for gold and slaves. Up to the early 16th century, the most important article brought by the Portuguese for trade in Senegambia was the horse. In exchange for one horse, they received as many as 15 captives. North African woolens and beads were also utilized by the Portuguese in buying gold on the river Gambia, as far south as Sierra Leone. It needs to be recalled that the western Sudan had links with the West African coast and with North Africa. Long before the European arrival, horses were moving from North Africa to be interbred with local West African stock. 
long before the European arrival, the Arabs and Mauritanians traveled to the river Senegal and farther south to meet the Mandinga Jola traders and hand over to them products such as beads made in Ceuta and cloth spun from the wool of North African sheep. With the advantage of rapidity of transport by sea as opposed to overland across the desert, the Portuguese were in effect breaking up the economic integration of the region. As with the Benin Akan example, the point to note is that after the Portuguese became middlemen, they had the opportunity of developing a new trade pattern by which both Northwest Africa and West Africa looked to Europe and forgot about each other. A similar situation came into existence on the Upper Guinea coast, and this time the European exploitation was aided by the presence of white settlers in the Cape Verde Islands. The Portuguese and the Cape Verde settlers broke into the pattern of local Upper Guinea trade as early as the 1470s. They intervened in transfers of raw cotton and indigo dye from one African community to another, and the Cape Verdean settlers established a flourishing cotton-growing and cotton-manufacturing industry. They used labor and techniques from the mainland and exported the finished products along the length of the coast down to Accra. The Portuguese also took over the trade in cowries in the Congo and its offshore islands, the trade in salt along the Angolan coast, and the trade in high-quality palm cloth between northern and southern Angola. In some instances, they achieved dominance not just because of their ships and commercial skills, but also by the use of force, provided they were operating on the coast and could bring their cannon into use. In East Africa, for instance, the Portuguese used violence to capture trade from the Arabs and Swahili. The disruption of African commerce between the Ivory Coast and the Gold Coast followed that pattern. A strong coastal canoe trade existed between these two regions, with the people of Cape Lahau, modern Ivory Coast, sailing past Cape Three Points to sell their cloth as far east as Accra. The Portuguese set up a fort at Axum, near Cape Three Points, to service gold trade with the hinterland, and one of its functions was to chop the cast west coastal African trade. They banned Axum residents from going to Cape Lahau, and they stopped canoes from Ivory Coast from traveling east beyond Axum. The purpose was obviously to make both areas separate economic entities, exclusively tied to Europe. The aforementioned African commerce proved to have deep roots. The Dutch found it still going on when they took over Axum in 1637. The servants of the Dutch West India Company, which was operating on the Gold Coast, wanted to put a complete stop to the African trade, and when that was not achieved, they tried to force the people of the Ivory Coast to buy a certain amount of Dutch goods. The Dutch ruled that each Axum canoe man going to Cape Lahau should carry Dutch goods worth at least four ounces of gold. The purpose was to convert a purely intra-African exchange into a European-African trade. What was doubly detrimental to African attempts to integrate their own economies was the fact that when Europeans became middlemen in local trade networks, they did so mainly to facilitate the extraction of captives, and thereby subordinated the whole economy to the European slave trade. In Upper Guinea and the Cape Verde Islands, the Portuguese and their mulatto descendants engaged in a large variety of exchanges involving cotton, dyes, cola nuts, and European products. The purpose of it all was to fill the holds of slave ships. In Congo and Angola, the same picture emerges. The salt, cowrie shells, and paint cloth that came in Portuguese hands made up for their shortage of trade goods and served to purchase captives on different parts of the coast and deep in the interior. 
The element of subordination and dependence is crucial to an understanding of African underdevelopment today, and its roots lie far back in the era of international trade. It is also worth noting that there is a type of false or pseudo-integration, which is a camouflage for dependence. In contemporary times, it takes the form of free trade areas in the formerly colonized sections of the world. Those free trade areas are made to order for the penetration of multinational corporations. From the 15th century onwards, pseudo-integration appeared in the form of the interlocking of African economies over long distances from the coast, so as to allow the passage of human captives and ivory from a given point inland to a given port on the Atlantic or Indian Ocean. For example, captives were moved from Congo through what is now Zambia and Malawi to Mozambique, where Portuguese, Arab, and French buyers took them over. That was not genuine integration of the economies of the African territories concerned. Such trade merely represented the extent or foreign penetration, thereby stilling local trades. The West African gold trade was not destroyed, but it became directly dependent on European buyers by being diverted from the northward routes across the Sahara. Within the savanna belt of the western Sudan, the trans-Saharan gold trade had nourished one of the most highly developed political zones in all Africa from the 5th century onwards, but it was more convenient for Europe to obtain its gold on the west coast than through North African intermediaries, and one is left to speculate on what might have occurred in the western Sudan if there had been a steady increase in the gold trade over the 17th and 18th centuries. Nevertheless, there is something to be said in favor of African trade with Europe in this particular commodity. Gold production involved mining and an orderly system of distribution within Africa. A con country in parts of Zimbabwe and Mozambique sustained flourishing socio-political systems up to the 19th century, largely because of gold production. Certain benefits also derived from the export of ivory. The search for ivory became the most important activity in several East African societies at one time or another, sometimes in combination with the trade in captives. The Wanyamwezi of Tanzania were East Africa's best-known traders, acquiring the reputation through carrying goods for hundreds of miles between Lake Tanganyika and the Indian Ocean. When the Wanyamwezi gave their attention to the export of ivory, this sparked off other beneficial developments, such as increased trading in hose, food, and salt between themselves and their neighbors. Yet ivory was an asset that was rapidly exhausted in any given region, and the struggle to secure new supplies could lead to violence, comparable to that which accompanied the search for human captives. Besides, the most decisive limitation of ivory trade was the fact that it did not grow logically from local needs and local production. Large quantities of ivory were not required by any society inside Africa, and no African society turned to elephant hunting and ivory collection on a big scale until the demand came from Europe or Asia. Any African society which took ivory exports seriously then had to restructure its economy so as to make ivory trade successful. That, in turn, led to excessive and undesirable dependence on the overseas market and an external economy. There could be growth in the volume of commerce and the rise of some positive side effects, but there was decrease in the capacity to achieve economic independence and self-sustaining social progress. Besides, at all times, one must keep in mind the dialectical opposite of the trade in Africa, namely, production in Europe or in America under European control.
The few socially desirable byproducts of elephant hunting within Africa were chicken feed in comparison with the profits, technology, and skills associated with the product in Europe. In that way, the gap between Africa and Europe was constantly widening, and it is on the basis of that gap that we arrive at development and underdevelopment. Continuing political military developments in Africa, 1500 to 1885. Modern Africa nationalist historians correctly stress that Africa had a meaningful past long before the coming of Europeans. They also stress that Africans made their own history long after coming into contact with Europe, and indeed right up to the period of colonization. That African-centered approach to the continent's past is quite compatible with one which equally emphasizes the transformatory role of external forces, such as overseas trade in slaves, gold, ivory. The reconciliation of the two approaches is facilitated by bearing in mind the following three factors: one, the external and mainly European impact up to 1885 was very uneven in geographical terms, and the coasts being obviously more exposed. Two, commerce and Europeans affected different aspects of African life in varying degrees, with the political, military, and ideological apparatus being virtually untouched. Three, dynamic features of independent African evolution and development continued to operate after 1500. It has already been argued that it would be misleading to try to compartmentalize Africa into areas that were affected by slave trading and those which were not. For the continent as a whole, had to bear the costs. However, for present purposes, it is enough to make the crude distinction between those parts of Africa which were directly caught up in European-generated activities, and those parts which, to all appearances, continued in the traditional manner. Developments continued in certain areas, such as South-Central Africa, because the population there was free to pursue a path dictated by the interplay between African people and the African environment in the particular localities. Besides, there were achievements even in those societies under the heaviest bombardment of slaving. Slave trading led to the commercial domination of Africa by Europe within the context of international trade. In very few instances did Europeans manage to displace African political authorities in the various social systems. So, African states in close contact with Europe in the pre-colonial era nevertheless had scope for political maneuver, and their evolution could and did continue. Military conquest of Africa awaited the years of the imperialist scramble. In pre-colonial centuries of contact with Europe, African armies were in existence, with all the socio-political implications which attach to an armed sector in society. Equally important was the fact that direct imports from Europe and the cultural and ideological spheres were virtually nil. Christianity tried sporadically and ambivalently to make an impact on some parts of the continent. But most of the few missionaries in places like the Congo, Angola, and Upper Guinea concentrated on blessing Africans as they were about to be launched across the Atlantic into slavery. As it was, Christianity continued only in Ethiopia, where it had indigenous roots. Elsewhere, there flourished Islam and other religions which had nothing to do with European trade. As before, religion continued to act as an element of the superstructure, which was crucial in the development of the state. So long as there is political power, so long as people can be mobilized to use weapons, and so long as a society has the opportunity to define its own ideology and culture, 
then the people of that society have some control over their own destinies, in spite of constraints such as those imposed as the African continent slipped into orbit as a satellite of capitalist Europe. After all, although historical development is inseparable from material conditions and the state of technology, it is also partially controlled by a people's consciousness at various stages. That is part of the interdependence of base and superstructure alluded to at the outset. Revolution is the most dramatic appearance of a conscious people or class on the stage of history, but to greater or lesser extent, the ruling class in any society is always engaged in the developmental process as conscious instruments of change or conservatism. Attention in this section will be focused on the political sphere and its power companion, the military. In those areas, Africans were able to excel even in the face of slave trading. Politico-military development in Africa from 1500 to 1885 meant that African social collectives had become more capable of defending the interests of their members, as opposed to the interests of people outside the given community. It also meant that the individual in a politically mature and militarily strong state would be free from external threat of physical removal. He would have more opportunities to apply his own skill in fields as diversified as minstrelsy and bronze working under the protection of the state. He also could use his creativity and inventiveness to refine the religion of his people, or to work out a more manageable constitution, or to contribute to new techniques of war, or to advance agriculture and trade. Of course, it is also true that the benefits of all such contributions went mainly to a small section of African society, both within and without the zone of slaving. For as communalism receded, the principle of egalitarian distribution was disregarded. These various points can be illustrated by concrete historical examples drawn from all over the continent during the pre-colonial period in question. The Yoruba in a previous discussion, the Yoruba state of Oyo was merely listed as one of the outstanding representatives of African development up to the eve of European arrival in the 15th century. The remarkable 14th and 15th century artistic achievements of Oyo, of its parent state of Ife, and of the related state of Benin have been well studied because of the preservation of ivory, terracotta, and bronze sculptures. It is clear that the earliest bronzes were the best, and that there was a deterioration in execution and sensitivity from the 16th through to the 18th century. However, politically, states such as Oyo and Benin did continue to prosper for a very long time after the arrival of Europeans on the West African coast, since Oyo and the Yoruba people were within an intensive area of slave trading, their fate between 1500 and 1885 is of considerable significance. The kingdom of Oyo kept fairly clear of any involvement with slave trading until the late 18th century. Instead, its people concentrated on local production and trade, and on the consolidation and expansion of the trade. Indeed, although the nucleus of the Oyo kingdom had already been established in the 15th century, it was during the next three centuries that it expanded to take control of most of what was later termed Western Nigeria, larger zones north of the River Niger, and the whole of what is now Dahomey. In effect, it was an empire, ruled over by an alafin, in conjunction with an aristocracy. It was in the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries that the subtle constitutional mechanisms which regulated relations between the alafin and his principal subjects, and between the capital and the provinces, were crystallized. Insofar as Oyo had an interest in the coast, it was as an outlet more for cloth than for slaves. 
Being some distance inland, the Yoruba of Oyo concentrated on relations with the hinterland, thereby connecting with the western Sudanic trading zone. It was from the north that Oyo got the horses which made its armies feared and respected. Oyo is a prime example of that African development which had its root deep in the past, and the contradictions between man and environment. Its people continued to develop on the basis of forces which they did consciously manipulate, as well as through the deliberate utilization of political techniques. Early in the 19th century, Oyo and Yorubaland, in general, began to export captives in considerable numbers. They were obtained partly by military campaigns outside Yorubaland, but also through local slave procuring. Local slave procuring involved kidnapping, armed raids, uncertainty, and disunity. Those features, together with internal constitutional tensions and an external threat from the Islamic North, brought about the downfall of the Oyo Empire by about 1830. The famous Yoruba ancestral home of Ife was also despoiled and its citizens turned into refugees because of quarrels among the Yoruba over kidnapping for sale into slavery. But it was testimony to the level of development in that part of Africa that within a few years the inhabitants were able to reconstruct new political states, notably those of New Oyo, Ibadan, Ajaye, Abeokuta, and Ijebu, each centered on a town and with enough land for successful agriculture. Until the British arrived to kindly impose order in Nigeria, the Yoruba people kept experimenting with various political forms, with heavy emphasis on the military and keeping to the religion of their forefathers. Being conscious of territorial boundaries, the inhabitants and rulers of any given state invariably became involved in clashes with neighboring states. The state in the feudal epoch in Europe and Asia was particularly concerned with its military capacity. The ruling class comprised in whole or in part the professional fighting forces of the state. One rationalization by which they justified their enjoyment of the major portion or the surplus of society was that they offered armed protection to the ordinary peasant or serf. This generalization was as true of 19th century Yoruba land as it was of Prussia and Japan. Without a doubt, Africans in that region were proceeding along the line of development leading to social organization comparable to feudalism in Europe, Asia, and such parts of Africa as Ethiopia and the Maghreb, which had been at that stage some centuries earlier. In the Oyo Empire, the civil power was dominant, and the military generals were servants of the king. Subsequently, however, the military took over effective political power. For instance, the Ajaye state was founded by Kurunmi, said to have been the greatest Yoruba general of those troubled times following the fall of Oyo. Kurunmi established a personal military ascendancy in Ajaye. Ibadan was slightly different, in that there was a group of military officers who collectively formed the political elite. Efforts to put civilians back in power were half-hearted and unsuccessful. After all, the town itself grew out of a military encampment. The city-state of Ebeokuta perhaps made the most consistent effort to make the military an arm of the civil state. But what mattered most was the defense of the townships within the fortified walls of Ebeokuta. Ebeokuta's fortified walls became famous as the place where many a rival army met disaster, and under those circumstances the Olagan, or war chiefs, were the social and political powers. While the militarization of politics was going on in Yorubaland, Changes were taking place in the structure of the society, which brought about sharper class stratification. Numerous captives were taken in war, most of whom were sold to Europeans, 
so that Yorubaland became notorious as a slave-supplying region right up to the 1860s. But many war prisoners were retained locally, in conditions approximating either to slavery or to serfdom, depending on whether or not they were first-generation captives. Sometimes, refugees fleeing from destroyed towns also had no option other than to become clients or serfs of other free Yoruba. Such refugees were made to give service to their new overlords by farming the land, in return for armed protection. However, serfs were also used as soldiers, which means that they had access to the means of production, the land, only through meeting an obligation in military labor. That is a measure of the extent to which the principle of kinship had been weakened, and it indicates that, in contrast to the typical communal village, states such as those in 19th century Yoruba land allocated roles and rewards to their citizens on the basis of reciprocal obligations characteristic of feudalism. During the period under discussion, the division of labor among the Yoruba was extended with the rise of professional soldiers, or war boys as they were called. The professional soldiers, who were sons of aristocrats, left farming disdainfully to prisoners and serfs, the large number of whom ensured agricultural plenty. Other branches of economic activity also nourished, notably the making of cloth and palm oil and the trade in various products. These things were true, in spite of the fact that by that time some labor was being lost both in the form of slaves, exported, and in the form of labor power devoted to capturing people for export. European visitors to Yoruba land in the middle of the 19th century could still admire the level of its material culture, along with the highly colorful and impressive aspects of its non-material culture, such as the annual yam festivals, and the ritual of the religious cults of Shango, Ogbani, and others. One item of European technology that was anxiously sought by Africans, and that was fairly easily obtainable from Europeans, was the firearm. From the 1820s onwards, the Yoruba acquired European firearms in large numbers and integrated them into the pattern of trade, politics, and military strategy. On the eve of colonial rule, Yoruba generals were reaching out for breech-loading rifles and even rockets, but Europe stepped in too quickly for that move to get very far. Through a series of actions which started as early as 1860 in Lagos and which included missionary infiltration as well as armed invasion, the British managed to bring that part of Africa under colonial rule. Economic development is a matter of an increasing capacity to produce, and it is tied up with patterns of land tenure and class relations. These basic facts were well brought out, both positively and negatively in Yoruba history, in the decades before independence was lost. So long as agricultural production was not disrupted, then for so long any given Yoruba state remained in a strong position. Ibadan, was once the greatest military power in Yoruba land, selling captives as well as retaining many for use as laborers for its own benefit. But Ibadan's farming areas were hit by war, and Ibadan's rulers also started removing prisoners farming the land and selling them instead to Europeans. That became necessary because Ibadan needed firearms, and those could be obtained only by selling slaves. It was at that point that the undermining effect of the presence of European slave buyers on the coast became really paramount. By selling its own captives and serfs, Ibadan was undermining its own socio-economic base. If the prisoners were to develop into a true serf class, then those prisoners would have had to be guaranteed the rights to remain fixed on the soil and protected from sale. This was one of the reasons why slavery as a mode of production in Europe had to give way to serfdom and feudalism, and under normal circumstances, 
Yoruba society did rapidly guarantee the irremovability of those captives who were integrated into the local production pattern. But forces unleashed by the European presence as slave buyers were too great to be withstood, and any hope of solving the problem disappeared with the loss of political power under colonialism. Too often, historians lay undue emphasis on the failure of 19th-century Yoruba states to unite and produce an entity as large as the former empire of Oyo. But, firstly, the size of a political unit is not the most important criterion for elevating the achievement of its peoples. And, secondly, a given people can disintegrate politically and later integrate even more effectively. The Yoruba states of Ibadan, Abiyokuta, Ajaye, and populations of up to 100,000 citizens, as large as most of the city-states, principalities, and palatinates of feudal Germany. That is a comparison which is worth bringing to light, and it is one that struck European observers who happened to visit Yoruba land in the middle years of the 19th century. Germany has long held a common culture and language, and there was a form of political unity under the Holy Roman Empire from the 12th to the 15th century. However, after the Reformation and the breakup of the Holy Roman Empire, the German people were divided into as many separate political entities as there are days in the year, some of them being hardly bigger than a public park. Yet the internal class relations and productive forces continued to develop throughout Germany, and ultimately, by 1870, unity was again achieved, with feudalism giving way to a powerful capitalist nation-state. Similarly, the Yoruba were a widely spread cultural entity with a single language. After the fall of the Oyo Empire, the developmental processes were slowed down by both internal and external factors, but they were not stopped. It took the arrival of European colonialism to do that. Within the sphere of West and Central African slaving, state-building continued with varying degrees of success. For instance, the Akan state system grew up in a manner as impressive as that of the Oyo Empire. Fortunately for the Akan, slave exports reached alarming proportions only during the first half of the 18th century. By that time, a state such as Asante had sunk roots deep enough to withstand the adverse effects of slaving. It continued to be incorporated with the heartlands of the western Sudan, and by the 1870s, when the British tried to dictate to Asante, these famous African people did not give up without heroic armed struggle. Asante's connection with the export of slaves in the 18th century led its rulers to concentrate on expansionism of the type which would bring in captives through wars, raids, tribute, and as articles of trade from regions where they had been made prisoner. Besides, since the 15th century, a Khan country was building up rather than exporting its human resources. Captives were incorporated locally into the society, and on the eve of colonialism, a substantial proportion of Asante society was made up of Odonkoba, the descendants of one-time captives, who were the laboring population on the land. Development had come not through exporting and losing labor, but by increasing and maximizing it. Dahomey Asante's eastern neighbor beyond the Volta River was Dahomey. Since Dahomey was more deeply involved in the European slave trade, and for a much longer period, its experiences shall be cited at a greater length. Throughout the 18th and 19th centuries, Dahomey had a stagnant if not declining population, and an economy that had virtually no props other than slave exports. What Dahomey succeeded in doing in spite of all that is a tribute to the achievements of man inside the African continent. It should be made clear that the groundwork for the socio-political development of the Aja, or Fon people, or Dahomey, was laid down in the period preceding the influence of Europe on West Africa. 
By the 15th century, the Aja states of Alada and Wida were already in existence, having a loose connection with the Yoruba of Ife. Dahomey was an offshoot from Alada in the 16th century, and by the early 18th century, it expanded to incorporate both Alada and Wida. The kings of Alada and Wida had made the mistake of either failing to protect their own citizens from enslavement, or of actually conniving at their enslavement. Dahomey never followed such a policy, which was directly antagonistic to the very maintenance of the state. Instead, Dahomey eventually became the classic raiding state of West Africa after failing to get Europeans to accept any products other than human beings. To achieve that, Dahomey had first to build up a tightly organized military state, whose monarch came much closer to an authoritarian or despot than did the Alephen of Oyo or the Asantehine of Asante. Secondly, Dahomey invested a great deal of time and ingenuity on its army so as to protect its own citizens and wage war abroad. Within European history, the state of Sparta stood out as one that was completely dedicated to the art of war. Europeans in Africa in the 18th and 19th centuries invariably referred to Dahomey as a black Sparta. Throughout the 18th century, the cavalry of Oyo was much more than a match for Dahomey's foot soldiers, and Dahomey remained a tribute-paying portion of the Oyo Empire. But with the fall of Oyo, Dahomey became the supreme military state in that region, and indeed wreaked vengeance on its former Yoruba overlords. Warfare was necessary for securing slaves outside of Dahomey and for obtaining firearms. It was, in fact, essential for survival. Dahomey's profound preoccupation with militaristic activities can be illustrated in many ways. Their value system rewarded the brave and the victorious, while ruthlessly despising and even liquidating the cowardly and the unsuccessful on the battlefield. The two chief ministers of the king were the commanders of the left and right armies, and other military officers held political appointments. Then, too, the artistic media constantly harped upon the theme of war. Beautiful mosaics and paintings appeared on the walls of the palaces of Abome, all dealing with military victories. Historical accounts, as rendered by professional reciters, reflected the same bias, and the cloth workers busied themselves making emblems, colors, and umbrellas for the generals and the regiments. Two unique innovations set Dahomey off from its African neighbors, and even gives it a special claim within the context of feudal or semi-feudal military organization. Firstly, Dahomey encouraged young boys to become apprentices of war. By the age of eleven or twelve, a boy would be attached to a veteran soldier, helping to carry his supplies and observing battle. The second innovation, and the one that was more widely commented upon, was Dahomey's utilization of its female population within the army. Apparently, the wives in the royal palace started off as a ceremonial guard in the eighteenth century, and then progressed to become an integral part of Dahomey's lightning machine— on terms of complete equality of hardship and reward. Dahomey's population in the 19th century was probably no more than 200,000, and the state consistently managed to send 12 to 15,000 actives on its annual campaigns. Of those, it was estimated in 1845 that some 5,000 were women, the so-called Amazons of Dahomey, who were feared for their ferocity in battle. In the long run, the trade in slaves cast a blight on Dahomey, Slaving campaigns were costly and not always rewarding in terms of captives. European buyers failed to turn up during certain years, depending on European conditions, such as during the American War of Independence, the French Revolution, and the subsequent Revolutionary Wars, 
there was a lull in Dahomean slave exports because far fewer European ships could be spared for the trade in slaves. Without selling captives to get firearms to carry on more warfare for slaves, Dahomey felt its glory and military honor was slipping. Resort to human sacrifice was one attempt to compensate for the diminishing reputation of the state and its monarch, as was the case with the Oba of Benin in the 19th century. Even so, the story of the reputed savagery of Dahomey was exaggerated incredibly. The Dahomeyan state created such refinements as a population census. It conducted diplomacy far and wide, with all the niceties and the protocol that one usually hears of only in connection with civilized European states. And it built up a system of espionage and intelligence as an essential ingredient in its own security. Above all, attention should be focused at least briefly on the role of the artist in Dahomean society. Much of African art springs from elaboration of things functional, such as pottery and cloth. However, both religion and the state power also stimulated art. For instance, the brasses and bronzes of Ife were executed on behalf of the religious cults and were associated with the Oni of Ife and the royal family. Indeed, it is a most widespread phenomenon that the feudal ruling class gave its protection to artists, along with sustenance and recognition. This was true in Mandarin China with pottery makers and theater artists. It was true of 16th century Italy of the Renaissance, and it was true of Dahomey from the 17th to the 19th centuries. No one now knows which Dahomeyan is to be credited with any given artistic achievement of the independent pre-colonial period. However, in that time, particular individuals were being given the opportunity for self-discovery and self-development and of serving the society as a whole. Their task was to give pleasure and to capture the hopes and ambitions of the people in palace wall paintings in wrought iron sculptures, in the stamped patterns of hand-woven cloths designed for royalty, in the intricately carved heads of the safe-conduct stuffs of the king's ambassadors, and in the lively tales of how the founder of the Dahomean kingdom came out of the belly of a leopard. It was art that centered around royalty and noble families, but it was also a national product and a point of identification for the people as a whole. Subsequently, such artistic skills either disappeared or became debased to serve the curiosity of Philistine colonialists. It is still held in some quarters that Dahomey's development in certain spheres must be credited to slave trading. To demonstrate conclusively that African political and military development through to the 19th century was an extension of groundwork already laid in an earlier epoch, it is best to turn to zones where foreign influence was non-existent. The interlacustrine zone of East Africa is one such. The Eastern Interlacustrine States In an earlier discussion, attention was directed to Bonyoro Ketara as the most advanced sociopolitical formation in East Africa up to the 15th century. Its ruling dynasty, the Bakwesi, declined for reasons that are not clear, and they were overwhelmed by new immigrants from the north. While there is some doubt as to whether the Bakwesi had an Ethiopian origin, it is clearly established that the 16th century immigrants were Luo peoples from a section of the Nile that flows through the Sudan. Following upon Luo migrations, a new line, known as the Babito dynasty, was placed in power over Bunyoro proper. Other branches of the same dynasty were enthroned in several places, sometimes breaking off from the main line. As late as the 19th century, a separate Babiito kingdom was carved out in Toro. Meanwhile, the Bakwesi, or Bahima, had staged a comeback in regions to the south, in the form of a clan known as the Bahinda. 
the Bahinda were one of the pastoralist clans of the old Bonyoro Kitara state, and in the period from the 16th century onwards, their stronghold was in Ancole and Caragüe. Obviously, the new Babayito ruling class immediately sought to take control of the land, but in accordance with settled African customs, they later tried to protect themselves as the original owners of the land, rather than usurpers. In Busoga, where there were several small Babayito kings, a researcher reported the following dialogue about land between a member of the royal clan and a commoner. Royal clan member, we found this place empty and made something of it. You fellows later came round begging for land, so we were generous and gave you some. Naturally, you're now our slaves. Commoner. Oh, ho, what a lie. We were here long before you. You took your power by trickery. Your princes have always been scoundrels. At no stage in the independent history of these interlocustrian states did land become purely a personal possession, to be monopolized by a given class, as in the classic European feudal model. Scholars frequently demand this feature before they concede that feudalism has arrived, but they fail to take into account the reality of the fact that distribution and usufruct, or produce, of the land may be in the hands of a few, and they fail to realize that where cattle was a dominant form of wealth, then private ownership of herds was also part of a process by which producers were separated from the means of production. To be specific, those who owned the herds were usually the Bahinda or other Bahima, or the new Babiito families, while those who tended them were clients and virtually serfs of the owners. As far as land was concerned, the peasant who farmed it paid a heavy tax in crops to the clan heads and ruling authorities to allow the latter to live without resort to agricultural work. It is necessary to recall that in the process of independent evolution on all continents, the increase in productive capacity was accompanied by increasing inequality at all stages, except socialism. To say that the interlocustrian zone continued developing uninterruptedly up to the eve of colonialism is to highlight the expanded productive capacity of the states, and at the same time, to recognize frankly that it was the result or increased exploitation not only of natural resources, but also of the labor of the majority. The latter were disenfranchised and oppressed to get them to toil in the interest of a few who lived in palaces. The interlocustrian kingdoms fell mainly in what is now Uganda, Rwanda, and Burundi. Only in the northeast of Tanzania are there representatives of the interlocustrian complex of states. Northeast Tanzania was the most developed portion of the country in the pre-colonial epoch because the rest of mainland Tanzania comprised numerous small kingdoms that had not decisively left behind the communal stage. But northeast Tanzania was also the corner of the country in which problems arose when a new ideology of egalitarianism was being preached after the end of the colonial era, because there was already a regime of inequality in the distribution of land and produce, and in the rights granted to individuals. In fact, in any meaningful political sense, the area was feudal. There is some disagreement as to the origins of the important interlocustrian suite of Uganda, some traditions give it the same Lua origin as Bunyoro, while others tend to hold that it was a Bakwezi survival. Its social structure certainly paralleled that of Babiito Bunyoro closely. Contrary to the situation in Nankole, in Buganda, the Bahima did not have the reins of political power. They were only associated with the Kalo-owning ruling class, very often in the junior capacity of herdsmen. In any event, 
Buganda's history was one of gradual expansion and consolidation at the expense of Bonyoro and other neighbors. By the 18th century, it had become the dominant power in the whole region. The Buganda state had a sound agricultural base, with bananas as a staple and with cattle products being available. Their craftsmen manufactured backcloth for export, and local production of iron and pots was supplemented by imports from neighboring African communities. Their lack of salt was a big stimulus to the extending of their trade network to obtain necessary supplies, and as was true of the Western Sudan, such an extension of the network of commerce was in effect integrating the productive resources of a large area. Carl Peters, the advance agent of German colonialism in East Africa, remarked that in estimating the political and commercial affairs of East Africa, too little stress is laid on this internal trade among the tribes. The barter trade of Buganda defies all direct calculation. In Buganda's case, the absence of slave trading must have been important in expanding internal production and trade, and therefore providing a sound base for the political superstructure. The kings of Buganda set up a small permanent armed force, which served as a bodyguard. The rest of the national army was raised when necessary. The political administration was centralized under the Kabaka, and district rulers were appointed by the Kabaka and his council, rather than left to be provided by the clans on a hereditary family basis. Great ingenuity went into devising plans for administering this large kingdom through a network of local officials. Perhaps the best tributes to the political sophistication of Buganda came from the British, when they found Buganda and other East African feudalities in the 19th century. They were the best tributes because they were reluctantly extracted from white racists and culturally arrogant colonialists who did not want to admit that Africans were capable of anything. Actually, Europeans were so impressed with what they saw in the interlacustrine zone that they invented the thesis that those political states could not possibly have been the work of Africans and must have been built at an earlier date by white Hamites from Ethiopia. This myth seems to get some support from the fact that the Bakwesi were said to have been light-skinned. However, in the first place, had the Bakwesi come from Ethiopia, they would have been black or brown Africans. And secondly, as noted earlier, the cultures of East Africa were syntheses of local developments, plus African contributions from outside the specific localities. They were certainly not foreign imports. Assuming that the Bakwesi or Bahima were from Ethiopia, then they lost their language and became Bantu-speaking like their subjects. The same thing happened to the Babiito dynasty of Luo extraction, indicating that they had been absorbed by the local culture. Furthermore, the Babiito and the Bahima slash Bahinda also forged close connections from the 16th to the 19th centuries. In effect, out of different ethnic groups, castes, and classes, a number of nationalities were emerging. The nationality group is held to be that social formation which immediately precedes the nation-state, and the definition applies to the peoples of Buganda, Bonyoro, Ancole, Caragwe, and Toro, as well as to those in Rwanda and Burundi. Rwanda The westernmost portion of the interlocustrian zone comprised the kingdoms of Rwanda and Burundi. The two countries which today hear those names are centered around the old kingdoms, the experiences of Rwanda will be cited here. Like the old Binyoro Katara kingdom, and like its northeastern neighbor state in Ankole, Rwanda was split into two major social groups. Though the great majority of the population were cultivators, known as the Bahutu, 
political power was in the hands of Batutsi pastoralists, comprising about 10% of the population. An even smaller minority were the Batwa, about 1%, who were at a very low level of pre-agricultural social organization. The relative physiques of the three social segments in Rwanda offer an interesting commentary on the development of human beings as species. The Batutsi are one of the tallest human groups in the world. The Bahutu are short and stocky, and the Batwa are pygmies. The differences can be explained largely in terms of social occupation and diet. The Batwa were not living in settled agricultural communities. Instead, they wandered around in small bands, hunting and digging roots, thereby failing to assure themselves a plentiful or rich food. At the other extreme, the Batutsi pastoralists were subsisting on a constantly accessible and rich diet of milk and meat. The Bahutu were more socially advanced than the Batwa. They ate more and more regularly than the latter because Bahutu agriculture meant that they did not live entirely on the whims of nature following scarce game like the Batwa. However, the quality of their food fell short of the protein-rich Batutsi diet. Thus, the development of man as physical being is also linked in a broad sense to the expansion of productive capacity and the distribution of food. In any event, it was their political and military achievements, rather than their height, which distinguished the Batutsi from a historical viewpoint. Their contribution to the Kingdom of Rwanda goes back to the 14th century, to a period contemporaneous with the Bakwezi. There were indeed striking parallels and actual links between Rwanda and Ancole and between Caragwe and Burundi. But unlike Bonyoro Kitara, Rwanda in the 14th and 15th centuries was far from being a single political entity. There were several small chiefdoms, and it was the expansion of a central Rwanda Tutsi clan which gradually created a small compact state in the 17th century. Later still, that central Rwanda state extended its frontiers, and it was still doing so when the colonialists arrived. For instance, rulers in Impororo, Ankole, were already paying tribute to Rwanda, which was growing at Ankole's expense. At the head of the Rwanda kingdom was the Imwami. As with so many other African rulers, his powers were sanctioned by religious beliefs, and his person surrounded by religious ritual. Feudal kings in Europe often tried to get their subjects to believe that royal authority emanated from God, and that the king, therefore, ruled by divine right. Subjects of African kings, like those of the Mwami of Rwanda, often accepted something quite close to that proposition. Of course, in addition, the authority of the king had to be based on real power, and the Mwami of Rwanda did not overlook that fact. Rujagira was a famous Mwami of the 18th century, and the last of the independent line was Rabugiri, known also as Kigiri IV, who died in 1895. Gahindiro is another whose praises were sung by the court musicians and historians. Each of them was associated with one or more contributions to relining and elaborating the power structure of the state, which meant that they each embodied certain historical, class, and national forces. The Mwame Rujagira in the 18th century took the step of placing his frontier zones under the exclusive authority of a military commander and stationing strong contingents of soldiers there. The move was significant because in any young and growing state, the most uncertain areas are those on the frontiers. Known as the Marches Provinces, in European feudal terminology, Rujagira was in effect placing the Marches Provinces under military law, and he also put permanent military camps at strategic places. 
Early in the 19th century, Enwamengenhendiro overhauled the civil administration. In each province, there was created both a land chief and a cattle chief, one being responsible for farm rents and the other for cattle dues. Besides, there were smaller district authorities or hill chiefs within all the provinces, all members of the Batutsi aristocracy. Whether by accident or design, it turned out that administrators responsible for different areas and different matters were jealous of each other, and that kept them from uniting to conspire against the Mwami. The hill chiefs were for a long time hereditary within given Batutsi clans or lineages, but under Rabugiri they became appointive, another move which strengthened central government. Meanwhile, the civil servants and councillors, collectively known as Biru, were given grants of land, which were free from the intervention of the land and cattle chiefs, thereby cementing the loyalty of the Biru to the throne. The system of social relations which emerged in Rwanda was more completely hierarchical and feudal than in most other parts of Africa. Hierarchy and socio-legal interdependence of classes and individuals were features found in the army, in the civil administration, and in the social fabric itself. The key to everything else was the control over cattle through an institution known as Umbahake. This meant that the poor, and cattle, and those of low status, by birth, could approach anyone with more cattle and more respected status and offer his physical labor services in return for cattle and protection. The cattle were never given as outright property, but only the usufruct was handed over to a client. Therefore, the client could have the use of the cattle for so long as he reciprocated by handing over milk and meat to his overlord, and for so long as he remained loyal. Of course, the peasant on the land also had to perform labor services and provide tribute in the form of food. The Batutsi aristocracy fulfilled their function of offering protection, partly by making representations at the Mwame's court, or by defending their dependents in legal cases. Above all, however, the protection came through specialization in the military art. Ever since the 15th century, there had been compulsory military service for certain Batutsi lineages. Sons of the Batutsi aristocracy became royal pages, receiving all their educational training within a military context. Each new Mwame made a fresh recruitment to add to existing forces. Some Bahutu were associated with particular regiments to provide supplies, and the Batwa were also incorporated as specialist archers with poisoned arrows. Of course, the protection which the Batutsi gave the Bahutu was a myth, in the sense that what they were guarding was their exploitation of the Bahutu. They defended them from external enemies so that the population became dense and plentiful. They conserved the Bahutu so that the latter could exercise their highly developed agronomical knowledge to produce surplus. Furthermore, the top stratum of Batutsi were the cattle owners, and they left their cattle to the lesser Batutsi to tend, thereby exploiting the labor and profound empirical knowledge which the common cattle herders possessed. As in Europe and Asia, such was the socio-economic base which supported a life of leisure and intrigue among the Batutsi aristocracy. There was little intermarriage between Batutsi and Bahutu, and hence they are regarded as castes. The Batwa, too, can be similarly categorized. But since the castes were hierarchically placed one over the other, it was also a situation of class, and there was upward and downward mobility from one class to another to a certain extent. At the same time, Batutsi, Bahutu, and Batwa together evolved as the Rwanda nation, having common interests to defend against, even the Batutsi, Bahutu and Batwa, who comprised the kingdom of Burundi. 
The people of Rwanda were not unique in developing a state and a sense of national consciousness, while at the same time experiencing the rise of more sharply differentiated classes and castes in society. The important thing is that they were free to develop relatively unaffected by alien influence, and certainly free from direct ravages of slave trading. Amazulu The same freedom from slave trading was operational in South Africa, for West African exports of captives began in Angola, and Eastern African exports came from Mozambique and zones farther north. The area south of the Limpopo was one that had some of the simpler social formations in Africa up to the 15th century. The eastern side was sparsely peopled up to a late date by the Khoikhoi herdsmen, who were slowly edged out by Bantu speakers. When European ships touched on the Natal coast in the 16th century, it was still a region of widely scattered homesteads, but in the years to come, the population became denser and important political military development took place. Anyone with a nodding acquaintance with the African past would have heard the name of Shaka, the Zulu leader who most embodied the social and political changes which took place in the eastern portion of South Africa. One biographer, a European, had this to say of Shaka. Napoleon, Julius Caesar, Hannibal, Charlemagne. Such men as these have arisen periodically throughout the history of the world to blaze a trail of glory that has raised them high above the common level. Such a man was Shaka, perhaps the greatest of them all. That praise song appeared on the back cover of the biography in question, and since capitalist publishers treat books just like boxes of soap powder, one has admittedly to be suspicious of any advertisement designed to sell the book. Nevertheless, all commentators on Shaka, both African and European, frequently compare him favorably with the great men of European history. It is therefore appropriate to examine Amazulu society up to the 19th century with a view to understanding the role of the leader in relationship to the development of society as a whole. Shaka was born about the year 1787, and the impressive achievements attributed to him in his 40-year lifespan can only be briefly enumerated here. By 1816, he was head of a small Ama-Ngoni clan, the Amazulu. Within a few years, he had reorganized it militarily, both in terms of weapons and the tactics and strategy of war, so that the Amazulu clan became a feared fighting force. Through warfare and political maneuvering, he united and commanded the Ama-Ngoni, who had previously been divided into dozens of independent or semi-independent clans. At one point, it seemed as though Shaka was about to unite under one rule the whole of the region that is now Natal, Lesotho, and Swaziland. That task was not accomplished when he met his death in 1828, nor were his successors able to maintain Shaka's sway. But the territory belonging to the Amazulu nation in the late 19th century was a hundred times greater than the 100 square miles of the original patrimony of the Amazulu clan as inherited by Shaka in 1816. It was a diminished and less powerful Amazulu that was still capable in 1876 of inflicting upon the British one of the most crushing defeats in their history of overseas adventuring at the Battle of Isandwana. Shaka grew up at a time when the questions of unity and of effective armies were being posed seriously for the first time among the Ama-Ngoni. Previously, the clans, which generally coincided with chiefdoms, displayed a tendency to segment or break into smaller and smaller units. As the eldest son of a clan head grew to adulthood, he went off to settle his own crawl, and a new junior clan was born, 
for his father's clan remained senior, and its headship passed to the eldest son of the great wife. That pattern or segmentation was possible so long as population density was low and land was plentiful for farming and grazing. Under those circumstances there was little competition for resources or political power, and wars were hardly any more dangerous than a game of football in Latin America. Usually a clan had traditional rivalry with another given clan. They knew each other well, and their champions fought in a spirit of festivity. One or two might have been killed, but then everyone went home until the rematch. Early in the nineteenth century, the casual tempo of Orozulu life and politics had changed considerably. A greater population meant less and less room for junior members to hive off on their own. It meant less grazing land for cattle, and disputes over cattle and land. As the Amazulu began to fight more frequently, so they began to feel the necessity to fight more effectively. At the same time, senior clan heads began to recognize the need for a political structure to ensure unity, the maximization of resources, and the minimization of internecine conflict. Shaka addressed himself to both the military and the political problems of Zululand, which he saw as two sides of the same coin. He thought that the centralizing political nucleus should achieve military superiority and demonstrate it to other sectors. That would generally lead to peaceful acceptance of the greater political state, or else the dissidents would be thoroughly crushed. The era of conflict and warfare in Zululand in the early 19th century brought troops face to face much more often, but the pattern of military encounter still remained that of the long-distance hurling of light umkonto, or spears. For close fighting, a weapon grasped in the hands is much more damaging, as feudal armies discovered in Europe and Asia, and therefore resorted to sword and pike. Shaka, while serving as a young soldier, came up with the solution of devising a heavy, short osagai, which was used purely for stabbing rather than throwing. In addition, he discarded the loose sandals so as to achieve more speed in closing with the enemy and more dexterity at close quarters. Through experience, Shaka and his fellow youths then discovered the specific techniques of using their shields and asagais to best effect. Of course, warfare comprises not just the encounter of individual soldiers, but, more importantly, a pattern of tactics and strategy in relationship to the opposing forces taken as a whole. This aspect of war also attracted Shaka's attention, and his outstanding innovation came in the form of Izimpi, regiments, deployed so as to allow for a reserve behind the fighting vanguard, and for two wings, or horns, capable of encircling the enemy's flanks. Finally, and most importantly, an army has to be trained, disciplined, and organized, so that it is a meaningful unit in peace and in war. Shaka created new regiments to include men up to forty years of age. He kept his izimpi on constant exercises and fatigues, so that the individual soldier was fit and proficient, while the army as a whole synchronized in accordance with the wishes of its commanders. The Zulu army was more than a fighting force. It was an educational institution for the young, and an instrument for building loyalties that cut across clans and could be considered as national. Promotion came through merit, and not through clan or regional origin. The enforced use of the Zulu branch of the family of Ngoni languages also worked in the direction of national consciousness. Over an area of 12,000 square miles, citizens came to call themselves Amazulu and to relegate their clan names to second place. Over a much larger area still, Zulu influence was profoundly felt. Policies such as curbing the excesses of witchcraft diviners, Izanzusi, and the fact that Zululand became free of internal struggles 
led to an influx of population from outside its boundaries, a positive contribution to the resources of the Zulu state. European travelers who have left written accounts of Zululand in Chaka's time were impressed by the cleanliness, as they were in Benin in the 15th century, and they were equally struck by the social order, absence of theft, sense of security, just as were the Arabs who traveled in the western Sudan during its period of imperial greatness. In actual fact, both the cleanliness and the security of fief and property were part of Zulu life from long before, and under Shaka, what was impressive was the scale on which these things extended, owing to the productive umbrella of the state. The people being impressed were Europeans, and European evidence is the best evidence in that it can scarcely be said to have been pro-African propaganda. One white visitor who saw a march past of fifteen of Shaka's regiments wrote that it was a most exciting scene, surprising to us, who could not have imagined that a nation termed savages could be so disciplined and kept in order. A great deal more could be added concerning Amazulu political institutions and its army, but what is relevant here is to understand why a Shaka was possible in Africa in the nineteenth century before the coming of colonial rule. Had Shaka been a slave to some cotton planter in Mississippi, or some sugar planter in Jamaica, he might have had an ear or a hand chopped off for being a recalcitrant nigger, or at best he might have distinguished himself in leading a slave revolt. For the only great men among the unfree and the oppressed are those who struggle to destroy the oppressor. On a slave plantation, Shaka would not have built a Zulu army and a Zulu state. That much is certain nor could any African build anything during the colonial period, however much a genius he may have been. As it was, Shaka was a herdsman and a warrior. As a youth, he tended cattle on the open plains, free to develop his own potential and apply it to his environment. Shaka was able to invest his talents and creative energies in a worthwhile endeavor of construction. He was not concerned with fighting for or against slave traders, he was not concerned with the problem of how to resell goods made in Sweden and France. He was concerned with how to develop the Zulu area within the limits imposed by his people's resources. It must be recognized that things such as military techniques were responses to real needs, that the work of the individual originates in and is backed by the action of society as a whole, and that whatever was achieved by any one leader must have been hounded by historical circumstances and the level of development, which determine the extent to which an individual can first discover, then augment, and then display his potential. To substantiate those points, it can be noted that Shaka was challenged to create the heavy stabbing Asagai when he realized that the throwing spear broke when used as a stabbing weapon. More important still, what Shaka came up with, depended upon the collective effort of the Amazulu. Shaka could ask that a better Asagai be forged, because the Ama Ngoni had been working iron for a long time, and specialist blacksmiths had arisen within certain clans. It was a tribute to the organizational and agricultural capacity of the society as a whole that it could feed and maintain a standing army of thirty thousand men, re-equip them with iron weapons, and issue each soldier with the full-length Zulu shield made from cattle hide. Because the scientific bases and experimental preconditions were lacking in Zulu society, Shaka could not have devised a firearm, no matter how much genius he possessed. But he could get his people to forge better weapons, and he found them receptive to better selective breeding practices when he set up special royal herds because the people already had a vast fund of empirical knowledge about cattle and a love of the cattle-herding profession. 
In the politico-military sphere, Shaka was following in the footsteps of his original protector, Dingusweo, and to some extent in the footsteps of Zwick, who was a rival to both Dingusweo and Shaka. Dingusweo opened up trade with the Portuguese at Dilogoa Bay in 1797, mainly in ivory, and he stimulated arts and crafts. His most distinguished innovation was in the army, when he instituted a system of recruiting regiments according to age grades. Previously, each locality tended to dominate within a given regiment, and in any event, people were accustomed to fighting side by side with members of their own crawl, locality, and clan. However, when all men in a given age grade were brought into the same regiment, this emphasized a greater national feeling and also increased Dingusweo's power vis-à-vis -vis the smaller clan heads. Dingusweo was head of the important Ama Mtethwa clan and he succeeded in establishing his paramountcy in what later became the southern portion of Zululand. In the north, Zuide, of the Apra in Duandwe, was also engaging in political consolidation. Shaka served in one of the junior age-grade regiments of Digasweo and remained faithful to the latter's centralizing power until Digasweo met his death at the hands of Zuide in 1818. Thereafter, Shaka took up many of the military and political techniques of Ningasweo and greatly improved them. That is development. It is a matter of building upon what is inherited while advancing slowly, provided that no one comes to civilize you. The regions of Yorubaland, Dahomey, the Interlacustran kingdoms, and Zululand, which have so far been discussed, are examples of leading forces in the political development which was taking place in Africa right up to the eve of colonization. They were not the only leading forces, and even where the states were territorially much smaller, there were observable advances in political organization. Areas of Africa that were most advanced by the 15th century generally maintained the standards, with a few exceptions, such as Congo. In North Africa and Ethiopia, for example, feudal structures remained intact, though there was a noticeable lack of continued growth. In the western Sudan, the house estates were heirs to the political and commercial tradition of the great empires after the fall of the Songhai in the 17th century, and early in the 19th century there arose the Islamic Caliphate of Sokoto, with its center in Hausaland. The Sokoto Empire was one of the largest political units ever established on the African continent, and it suffered from many internal schisms through lack of adequate mechanisms for integrating so vast a territory. Experiments to deal with the problem of unity were continued in the western Sudan, with Islam as the hoped-for unifying factor. An Islamic theocratic state was established across the Niger Bend by Amadu Amadu in the middle of the 19th century, while another was created by at Al-Hajj Omar on the upper Niger. Most outstanding of all was the Mandinga state, carved out under the leadership of Samore Ture by the 1880s. Samore Ture was not scholarly like the renowned Usman Danfodio and Alhaj Omar, who before him had been creators of Islamic states, but Samore Ture was a military genius and a political innovator who went further than the others in setting up a political administration where a sense of loyalty could prevail over the clans, localities, and ethnic groups. Zimbabwe, too, progressed with only slight interference from Europeans. Locally, the center of power shifted from Mutapa to Shangamaya and eventually in the 19th century, Nguni groups, fleeing from the power of the Zulu, overran Zimbabwe. So long as the Nguni were warrior bands on the march, they obviously proved destructive. But by the middle of the 19th century, the Nguni had already spread their own state-building techniques to Mozambique, 
and to what is now southern Rhodesia, and had joined with the local population to establish new and larger kingdoms, infused with a sense of nationality, as was the case in Zululand. Meanwhile, across vast areas of Central Africa, striking political change was also taking place. Up to the 15th century, the level of social organization was low in the area between Congo and Zimbabwe. Precisely in that area, there arose the group of states known as the Lubalundi Complex. Their political structures, rather than their territorial size, made them significant, and their achievements were registered in the face of constantly encroaching slaving activities. On the large island of Madagascar, the several small states of an earlier epoch had by the late 18th century given way to the powerful feudal Marina Kingdom. More often than not, Madagascar is ignored in general assessments of the African continent, although, both in the physical and the cultural sense, Africa is writ large on the Malagasy people. They too suffered from loss of population through slave exports, but the Marina Kingdom did better than most slaving states because more intensive cultivation of high-yielding swamp rice and the breeding of cattle offset the loss of labor. This situation should serve as a reminder that development accompanied by slave trading must not be superficially and illogically attributed to the export of the population and the dislocation attendant upon slave raiding. The basis of the political development of the Marina Kingdom and of all others, whether or not engaged in slavery, lay in their own environment, in the material resources, human resources, technology, and social relations. So long as any African society could at least maintain its inherited advantages springing from many centuries of evolutionary change, then for so long could the superstructure continue to expand and give further opportunities to whole groups of people, to classes, and to individuals. At the beginning of this section, attention was drawn to the necessity for reconciling a recognition of African development up to 1885 with an awareness of the losses simultaneously incurred by the continent in that epoch due to the nature of the contact with capitalist Europe. That issue must also be explicitly alluded to at this point. It is clearly ridiculous to assert that contacts with Europe built or benefited Africa in the pre-colonial period, nor does it represent reality to suggest, as President Leopold Singhor once did, that the slave trade swept Africa like a bushfire, leaving nothing standing. The truth is that a developing Africa went into slave trading and European commercial relations as into a gale-force wind, which shipwrecked a few societies, set many others off course, and generally slowed down the rate of advance. However, pursuing the metaphor further, it must be noted that African captains were still making decisions before 1885, though already forces were at work which caused European capitalists to insist on and succeed in taking over command. THE COMING OF IMPERIALISM AND COLONIALISM In the centuries before colonial rule, Europe increased its economic capacity by leaps and bounds, while Africa appeared to have been almost static. Africa in the late 19th century could still be described as part communal and part feudal, although Western Europe had moved completely from feudalism to capitalism. To elucidate the main thesis of this study, it is necessary to follow not only the development of Europe and the underdevelopment of Africa, but also to understand how those two combined in a single system, that of capitalist imperialism. The European economy was producing far more goods by making use of their own resources and labor, as well as the resources and labor of the rest of the world. 
there are many qualitative changes in the European economy which accompanied and made possible the increase in the quantity of goods. For example, machines and factories, rather than land, provided the main source of wealth, and labor had long since ceased to be organized on a restricted family basis. The peasantry had been brutally destroyed, and the labor of men, women, and children was ruthlessly exploited. Those were the great social evils of the capitalist system, which must not be forgotten. But on the issue of comparative economics, the relevant fact is that what was a slight difference when the Portuguese sailed to West Africa in 1444 was a huge gap by the time that European robber statesmen sat down in Berlin 440 years later to decide who should steal which parts of Africa. It was that gap which provided both the necessity and the opportunity for Europe to move into the imperialist epoch, and to colonize and further underdevelop Africa. The growing technological and economic gap between Western Europe and Africa was part of the trend within capitalism to concentrate or polarize wealth and poverty at two opposite extremes. Inside Western Europe itself, some nations grew rich at the expense of others. Britain, France, and Germany were the most prosperous nations. Poverty prevailed in Ireland, Portugal, Spain, and southern Italy. Inside the British, French, and German economies, the polarization of wealth was between the capitalists on the one hand and the workers and a few peasants on the other. The big capitalists got bigger, and the little ones were eliminated. In many important fields such as iron and steel manufacture, textiles, and particularly banking, it was noticeable that two or three firms monopolized most of the business. The banks were also in a commanding position within the economy as a whole, providing capital to the big monopoly industrial firms. European monopoly firms operated by constantly fighting to gain control over raw materials, markets, and means of communications. They also fought to be the first to invest in new profitable undertakings related to their line of business, whether it be inside or outside their countries. Indeed, after the scope for expansion became limited inside their national economies, their main attention was turned to those countries whose economics were less developed and who would therefore offer little or no opposition to the penetration of foreign capitalism. That penetration of foreign capitalism on a worldwide scale from the late 19th century onwards is what we call imperialism. Imperialism meant capitalist expansion. It meant that European and North American and Japanese capitalists were forced by the internal logic of their competitive system to seek abroad, in less developed countries, opportunities to control raw material supplies, to find markets, and to find profitable fields of investment. The centuries of trade with Africa contributed greatly to that state of affairs, where European capitalists were faced with the necessity to expand in a big way outside their national economies. There were certain areas of Africa in which European investment was meant to get immediate super-profits. The mines of South Africa, the loans to North African governments, and the building of the Suez Canal also ensured the greater profitability of European investment in and trade with India. However, Africa's greatest value to Europe at the beginning of the imperialist era was as a source of raw materials such as palm products, ground nuts, cotton, and rubber. The need for those materials arose out of Europe's expanded economic capacity, its new and larger machines, and its increasing wage-earning population in towns. All of those things had developed over the previous four centuries, and again it needs to be repeated that one of the important factors in that process was the unequal trade with Africa. 
Imperialism is essentially an economic phenomenon, and it does not necessarily lead to direct political control or colonization. However, Africa was the victim of colonization. In the period of the notorious scramble for Africa, Europeans made a grab for whatever they thought spilled profits in Africa, and they even consciously acquired many areas not for immediate exploitation, but with an eye to the future. Each European nation that had these short-term and long-term economic interests ran up its own flag in different parts of Africa and established colonial rule. The gap that had arisen during the period of pre-colonial trade gave Europe the power to impose political domination on Africa. Pre-colonial trade in slaves, ivory, gold, and other things was conducted from the coasts of Africa. On the coasts, European ships could dominate the scene, and if necessary, forts could be built. Before the 19th century, Europe was incapable of penetrating the African continent because the balance of force at their disposal was inadequate. But the same technological changes which created the need to penetrate Africa also created the power to conquer Africa. The firearms of the imperialist epoch marked a qualitative leap forward. Breech-loading rifles and machine guns were a far cry from the smooth-bored muzzle-loaders and flintlocks of the previous era. European imperialists in Africa boasted that what counted was the fact that they had the Maxim machine gun, and Africans did not. Curiously, Europeans often derived the moral justification for imperialism and colonialism from features of the international trade as conducted up to the eve of colonial rule in Africa. The British were the chief spokesmen for the view that the desire to colonize was largely based on their good intentions and wanting to put a stop to the slave trade. True enough, the British in the 19th century were as opposed to slave trading as they were once in favor of it. Many changes inside Britain had transformed the 17th century necessity for slaves into the 19th century necessity to clear the remnants of slaving from Africa so as to organize the local exploitation of land and labor. Therefore, slaving was rejected insofar as it had become a fetter on further capitalist development. This was particularly true of East Africa, where Arab slaving persisted until late in the 19th century. The British took special self-righteous delight in putting an end to Arab slave trading and in deposing rulers on the grounds that they were slave traders. However, in those very years, the British were crushing political leaders in Nigeria, like Jaja and Nana, who had by then ceased the export of slaves and were concentrating instead on products like palm oil and rubber. Similarly, the Germans in East Africa made a pretense of being most opposed to rulers like Bushiri, who were engaged in slave trading, but the Germans were equally hostile to African rulers with little interest in slaving. The common factor underlying the overthrow of African rulers in East, West, Central, North, and South Africa was that they stood in the way of Europe's imperial needs. It was the only factor that mattered, with anti-slaving sentiments being at best superfluous and at worst calculated hypocrisy. King Leopold II of Belgium also used the anti-slavery excuse to introduce into Congo forced labor and modern slavery. Besides, all Europeans had derived ideas of racial and cultural superiority between the 15th and 19th centuries, while engaged in genocide and the enslavement of non-white peoples. Even Portugal, an impoverished and backward European nation in the imperialist era, could still presume that it had a destiny to civilize the natives in Africa. There is a curious interpretation of the scramble and African partition, 
which virtually amounts to saying that colonialism came about because of Africa's needs rather than those of Europe. Africa, they say, required European colonization if it were to advance beyond the stage it had reached in the late 19th century. Clearly, they do not appreciate that such a line of reasoning was suggesting that Africa would develop if it were given bigger doses of the European concoction that had already started its underdevelopment, that it would develop if it lost the last remnants of its freedom of choice, which had clearly been seriously undermined by the pre-colonial trade, that it would develop if its economy became more integrated with Europe's on terms that were entirely dictated by Europe. Those implications and their fallacies would be plain to anyone who tries to understand the development process before making pronouncements on any particular epoch of human development in Africa. Throughout the 14th century, African rulers were displaying great initiative in pursuit of the broadest forms of cultural contact with Europe. In the case of West Africa, that meant seeking substitutes for trade and slaves. Dahomey, one of the most embroiled in slave trading, was among those states that used many of the last years of its independence to find a healthy basis for cultural exchange with Europeans. In 1850, the reigning Dahomeyan king, Gezo, proclaimed an edict whereby all young oil palms were to be freed from parasites surrounding them, and severe penalties were to be imposed for cutting palm trees. Gezo, who ruled from 1818 to 1857, was a reformer, and he made sincere efforts to meet criticisms of his policies by groups such as missionaries and anti-slavery campaigners. It soon became clear that Europeans were not bent on seeing Dahomey re-emerge as a strong state, but were rather creating excuses and the subjective conditions to justify their proposed colonization of the people of Dahomey. Under those circumstances, the last Dahomeyan monarch, Galele, fell back on his capital at Abomey and pursued the policies which he considered most consistent with the dignity and independence of Dahomey. Galele raided Abeokuta, which contained converts who were already British-protected persons. He told the French to get the hell out of Porto Novo, and he generally resisted until defeated militarily by the French in 1889. African groups who had little or nothing to do with slave exports also intensified their efforts to integrate into a wider world in the 19th century. Gun Gunhana the Nguni ruler of Gaza in Mozambique, asked for a Swiss missionary doctor and maintained him at his court for several years until the Portuguese conquered his kingdom in 1895. After the Portuguese imposed colonial rule, it was a long time before Africans saw another doctor. It is particularly instructive to turn to the example of Egypt under Muhammad Ali, who ruled from 1805 to 1849. Capitalist Europe had left feudal North Africa behind over the course of the 17th and 18th centuries. Muhammad Ali was aware of that, and consciously aimed at catching up with Europe. He instituted a series of reforms, the most important of which were of an economic nature. Egypt grew and manufactured its own cotton, and it made glass, paper, and other industrial goods. Egypt was not to be used as a dumping ground for European goods, which would undermine local industry so that protective tariff walls were set up around Egypt's infant industries. That did not mean that Egypt became isolated from the rest of the world. On the contrary, Muhammad Ali borrowed experts from Europe, and he increased Egypt's foreign trade. The ideals of Muhammad Ali could be related to the idiom of modern social science as being the creation of a viable, self-propelling economy to provide the basis for national independence. Such ideals were diametrically opposed to the needs of European capitalism.
British and French industrialists wanted to see Egypt not as a textile manufacturer, but a producer of raw cotton for export and an importer of European manufactures. European financiers wanted Egypt to be a source of investment, and in the second half of the 18th century, they turned the Sultan of Egypt into an international beggar, who mortgaged the whole of Egypt to international monopoly financiers. Finally, European statesmen wanted Egyptian soil to serve as a base for exploiting India and Arabia. Therefore, the Suez Canal was dug out of Egyptian soil by Egyptians, but it was owned by Britain and France, who then extended political domination over Egypt and Sudan. Education is undeniably one of the facets of European life, which had grown most appreciably during the capitalist epoch. Through education and extensive use of the written word, Europeans were in a position to pass on to the others the scientific principles of the material world which they had discovered, as well as a body of varied philosophical reflections on man and society. Africans were quick to appreciate advantages deriving from a literate education. In Madagascar, the Marina Kingdom did a great deal to sponsor reading and writing. They used their own language and an Arabic script, and they welcomed the aid of European missionaries. That conscious borrowing from all relevant sources was only possible when they had the freedom to choose. Colonization far from springing from Malagasy needs actually erected a barrier to the attainment of the modernization initiated by the Merino kings in the 1860s and 1870s. A similar example can be found in the history of Tunisia before the acts of partition fell. In many parts of the world, Capitalism in its imperialist form accepted that some measure of political sovereignty should be left in the hands of the local population. This was so in Eastern Europe, in Latin America, and to a more limited extent in China. However, European capitalists came to the decision that Africa should be directly colonized. There is evidence to suggest that such a course of action was not entirely planned. Britain and France up to the 1850s and 1860s would have preferred to divide Africa into informal spheres of influence. That means that there would have been a gentleman's agreement that, say, Nigeria would be exploited by the British merchants, while Senegal would be exploited by Frenchmen. At the same time, both Englishmen and Frenchmen would trade in a minor way in each other's informal empire. But, firstly, there was disagreement over who should suck which pieces of Africa, especially since Germany wanted to join the grabbing. And, secondly, the moment that one European power declared an area of Africa as a protectorate or a colony, it put up tariffs against European traders of other nationalities, and, in turn, forced their rivals to have colonies and discriminatory tariffs. One thing led to another— and soon, six European capitalist nations were falling over each other to establish direct political rule over particular sections of Africa. Make no mistake about it. Gentlemen like Carl Peters, Livingston, Stanley, Harry Johnston, de Braza, General Gordon, and their masters in Europe were literally scrambling for Africa. They barely avoided a major military conflagration. In addition to the factors that caused the chain reaction of the scramble as described, Europeans were also racially motivated to seek political domination over Africa. The 19th century was one in which white racism was most violently and openly expressed in capitalist societies, with the United States as a focal point, and with Britain taking the lead among the Western European capitalist nations. Britain accepted granting dominion status to its old colonies of white settlers in Canada, 
Australia, and New Zealand, but it withdrew self-government from the West Indies when the white planters were ousted from the legislative assemblies by black or brown people. As far as Africa is concerned, Englishmen violently opposed black self-government, such as the Fonte Confederation, on the Gold Coast in the 1860s. They also tried to erode the authority of black Creoles in Sierra Leone. In 1874, when Fora Bay College sought and obtained affiliation with Durham University, the Times newspaper declared that Durham should next affiliate with the London Zoo. Pervasive and vicious racism was present in imperialism as a variant independent of the economic rationality that initially gave birth to racism. It was economics that determined that Europe should invest in Africa and control the continent's raw materials and labor. It was racism which confirmed the decision that the form of control should be direct colonial rule. Africans everywhere fought against alien political rule and had to be subdued by superior force. But a sizable minority did insist that their trade connections with Europe should remain unbroken, for that was a measure of the extent to which they were already dependent on Europe. The most dramatic illustration of that dependence was the determination with which some Africans fought the end of the European slave trade. For most European capitalist states, the enslavement of Africans had served its purpose by the middle of the 19th century. But for those Africans who dealt in captives, the abrupt termination of the trade at any given point was a crisis of the greatest magnitude. In many areas, many social changes had taken place to bring the particular regions effectively into the service of the European slave trade, one of the most significant being the rise of domestic slavery and various forms of class and caste subjugation. African rulers and traders who found their social existence threatened by the earliest legal edicts, such as the 1807 British Act, against the trade in slaves, found ways of making contact with Europeans who still wanted slaves. In sub-Saharan Africa, and especially in West Africa, the export of slaves declined most rapidly where Europeans were prepared to buy other commodities. As soon as inhabitants of any region found that they had a product which Europeans were accepting, in place of the former slave trade, those inhabitants put tremendous effort into organizing the alternatives, namely ivory, rubber, palm products, ground nuts. Once more, those efforts demonstrated the determination of a small but decisive proportion of Africans. It was a determination based on the desire to obtain European trade goods, many of which had ceased to be mere curiosities or luxuries and were regarded instead as necessities. The first four centuries of Afro-European trade, in a very real sense, represent the roots of African underdevelopment. Colonialism flourished rapidly from a European viewpoint, because several of its features were already rooted in Africa in the preceding period. One of the most decisive features of the colonial system was the presence of Africans serving as economic, political, and cultural agents of the European colonialists. Those agents, or compradors, were already serving European interests in the pre-colonial period. The impact of trade with Europe had reduced many African rulers to the status of middlemen for European trade. It had raised ordinary Africans to that same middleman commercial role, and it had created a new trading group of mixed blood, the children of European or Arab fathers. Those types can all be referred to as compradors and they played a key role in extending European activity from the coast into the hinterland, as soon as Europeans thought of taking over political power. 
One outstanding example is the way that the French colonialists used Africans and mulattoes on the Senegalese coast as agents for the spread of French control for thousands of miles into areas now covered by Senegal, Mali, Chad, Upper Volta, and Niger. Those particular blacks and mulattoes were living in the trading ports of Goree, Dakar, St. Louis, and Rufisque, and they had had long-standing links with Atlantic trade. Africans conducting trade on behalf of Europeans were not merely commercial agents, but also cultural agents, since inevitably they were heavily influenced by European thought and values. The search for European education began in Africa before the colonial period. Coastal rulers and traders recognized the necessity to penetrate more deeply into the way of life of the white man who came across the sea. The mulatto sons of white traders and the sons of African rulers were the ones who made the greatest effort to learn the white man's ways. This helped them to conduct business more efficiently. One Sierra Leone ruler in the 18th century explained that he wished to learn book, to be rogue as good as white man. And there were many others who saw the practical advantages of literacy. However, the educational process also meant imbibing values which led to further African subjugation. One West African educated in this early period wrote a Ph.D. thesis in Latin justifying slavery. That was not surprising. The Reverend Thomas Thompson was the first European educator on the Gold Coast, and he wrote in 1778 a pamphlet entitled The African Trade for Negro Slaves, shown to be consistent with the principles of humanity and the laws of revealed religion. One of the most striking features of 19th century West African history is the manner in which Africans returned from slavery under European masters and helped in the establishment of colonial rule. This was especially true of Africans who returned from the West Indies and North America to Sierra Leone, or who were released from slave ships and landed in Sierra Leone. To a lesser extent, it also applied to Africans who were once in Brazil. Such individuals had assimilated capitalist values, and like most European missionaries, promoted the kinds of activity that went along with colonial rule. In a rather different context, it can be argued that the Arabs of Zanzibar and the East African coast were also transformed into agents of European colonialism. At first, they resisted, because European colonialism affected their own expansionist ambitions on the East African mainland, but they soon came to an arrangement which gave Europeans the ultimate powers. The Europeans reduced the small Arab clique into political and economic instruments of imperialism. European superiority over the Arabs in East and North Africa and in the Middle East demonstrates conclusively that modern imperialism is inseparable from capitalism and underlines the role of slavery in the context of capitalism. The Arabs had acquired Africans as slaves for centuries, but they were exploited in a feudal context. African slaves in Arab hands became domestics, soldiers, and agricultural serfs. Whatever surplus they produced was not for reinvestment and multiplication of capital, as in the West Indian or North American slave systems, but for consumption by the feudal elite. Indeed, slaves were often maintained more for social prestige than for economic benefit. The major exceptions to that rule were 19th century Zanzibar and Egypt under Muhammad Ali. In both those instances, African labor was being exploited to produce profit on a plantation basis, and this may also have applied to date palm production in Arabia. But Europe had already been exploiting African labor to maximize surplus for three centuries previously, and the contribution which the plantation system made to the European capitalist development was so great 
that Western Europe in the 19th century had engulfed the lesser exploitation of Zanzibar and Arabia, and it secured a firm grasp on Egypt's economy after the death of Muhammad Ali in 1849. In other words, the cloves, cotton, and dates produced in Zanzibar, Egypt, and Arabia, respectively, previous to colonization, were already going to strengthen European trade and production. Eventually, it was no problem for the capitalist slave traders of Europe to extend political domination over the feudalist Arab slave traders and to use the latter as agents of colonialism in East Africa. Returning to the question of indigenous African agents of European colonial rule in Africa, it should be recognized that Europeans recruited Africans to serve in the armies that actually conquered Africa in the bloody period from the 1880s through the First World War, started by Europeans in 1914. It is a widespread characteristic of colonialism to find agents of repression from among the colonial victims themselves. Yet without the previous centuries of trade between Africa and Europe, it would have been impossible for Europeans to have so easily recruited the Ascaris, porters, and others who made their colonial conquest possible. African residents of the Senegalese ports already referred to were the ones who were put in French army uniform and fought to establish French rule in the interior and other parts of the coast, such as Dahomey. When the British defeated Asante in 1874, they had in their forces African troops from the coastal towns around the Gold Coast forts. Those Africans had been in contact with Europeans for so long that from the 17th century they identified themselves as Dutch, Danish, or English, depending upon whose fort gave them employment. They had fought battles for one European nation against another, and by the late 19th century it was an easy matter to get them to fight against fellow Africans on behalf of the conquering colonial power of Britain. In the Portuguese territories, the origins of the black colonial police and army also went back into the pre-colonial trade period. Around the forts of Luanda and Benguela in Angola and Lorenco Marquis and Biera in Mozambique, there grew up communities of Africans, mulattoes, and even Indians who helped pacify large areas for the Portuguese after the Berlin Conference. Traders in Mozambique and in the rest of East, West, and Central Africa who had experience with Europeans previous to colonialism were the ones to provide porters to carry the heavy machine guns, cannons, and the support equipment. They were the ones who provided the would-be European colonialist with the information and military intelligence that facilitated conquest. And they were the interpreters who were the voice of the Europeans on African soil. Of course, it is true that many Africans who had little or nothing to do with pre-colonial trade also allied themselves with European newcomers. In that respect, the gap in levels of political organization between Europe and Africa was very crucial. The development of political unity in the form of large states was proceeding steadily in Africa, but even so, at the time of the Berlin Conference, Africa was still a continent of a large number of socio-political groupings who had not arrived at a common purpose. Therefore, it was easy for the European intruder to play the classic game of divide and conquer. In that way, certain Africans became unwitting allies of Europe. Many African rulers sought a European alliance to deal with their own African neighbor, with whom they were in conflict. Few of those rulers appreciated the implications of their actions. They could not know that Europeans had come to stay permanently. They could not know that Europeans were out to conquer not some, but all Africans. 
This partial and inadequate view of the world was itself a testimony of African underdevelopment relative to Europe, which in the 19th century was self-confidently seeking dominion in every part of the globe. Political divisions in Africa were no evidence of innate inferiority or backwardness. That was the state in which the continent then found itself, a point along a long road that others had traversed and along which Africa was moving. Commercial impact of Europe slowed down the process of political amalgamation and expansion, in contrast to the way trade with Africa strengthened Europe's nation's stales. When European capitalism took the form of imperialism and started to subjugate Africa politically, the normal political conflicts of the pre-capitalist African situation were transformed into weakness, which allowed the Europeans to set up their colonial domination. Altogether, it is very clear that to understand the coming of colonialism in Africa, one has to consider the previous historical evolution of both Africa and Europe, and in particular, one has to consider ways in which their trade contacts influenced the two continents mutually, so that what was called pre-colonial trade proved to be a preparatory stage for the era of colonial rule. It is widely accepted that Africa was colonized because of its weakness, the concept of weakness should be understood to embrace military weakness and inadequate economic capacity, as well as certain political weaknesses, namely the incompleteness of the establishment of nation-states, which left the continent divided, and the low level of consciousness concerning the world at large, which had already been transformed into a single system by the expansion of capitalist relations. Chapter 5 Africa's Contribution to the Capitalist Development of Europe The Colonial Period The colonies have been created for the metropole by the metropole. French saying. Sales operations in the United States and management of the 14 Unilever plants are directed from Lever House on New York's fashionable Park Avenue. You look at all this tall, striking glass and steel structure and you wonder how many hours of underpaid black labor and how many thousands of tons of underpriced palm oil and peanuts and cocoa it cost to build it. W. Alpheus Hunton Expatriation of African Surplus Under Colonialism Capital and African Wage Labor Colonial Africa fell within that part of the international capitalist economy from which surplus was drawn to feed the metropolitan sector. Exploitation of land and labor is essential for human social advance, but only on the assumption that the product is made available within the area where the exploitation takes place. Colonialism was not merely a system of exploitation, but one whose essential purpose was to repatriate the profits to 